Hi, I'm Richard Hatch, and you're listening to the Survivor Historians. If you'd like to really have some insight into the game, feel free to follow me on Twitter at @hatchrichard on Instagram, or subscribe to my YouTube channel. But for now, here are four guys who think they know how to play Survivor. <laughs> Enjoy. And welcome to the Survivor Historians, the only Survivor podcast where we take down a vine, we make a circle out of it, we step through it, and we reclaim our own name. As always, I'm Mario Lanza. I'm Jay Fisher, and uh, hey, uh, meet the captain. It's my dad. My dad's the captain. I'm Mike Bloom, and I cannot wait to take several drinks of water over the course of this podcast. Stay away, vultures. I'm Paul Oselson, and this bud's for you. And here we are to recap and finish off the last couple episodes of Survivor Borneo, the most important Survivor episode. Some would argue the only Survivor, or only important Survivor episode. And uh, are you guys ready to finish strong here with some with something historic? Yeah, this is going to be an interesting group of episodes because, you know, capping off last podcast with the J for Jenna boot, the next two episodes from a results-oriented perspective, even the episode after that, are going to be pretty straightforward, right? We Now that the Alliance has the majority, it's four, two, three, technically speaking. They're just going to dismantle the Pagongs and then get rid of Sean and make their way to the final four. But I think something that I realized this watch of Borneo is that even though some people might grouse about the Pagonging of it all, honestly, this particular batch of episodes... If you look beyond the scope of, like, Richard Hatch winning, and you just look at these four episodes from a story perspective as the Sue and Kelly relationship, it is incredibly fascinating and enjoyable. Uh, Or I guess enjoyable is a sort of an operative term, but, you know, this is really the sequence of episodes where Kelly really breaks away from the Alliance, and her and Sue have this big, you know, breakdown, and then building back together, and then breakdown again, culminating in... Not one of the biggest Survivor moments, but one of the biggest reality TV moments. Arguably one of the biggest TV moments of the past 20 years in the Snakes and Rats speech. To the point where she ends up being the vote that cost Kelly $900,000. It's I forget so much because I guess of the legacy of characters like Richard and Rudy. How much Sue and Kelly and their relationship specifically was a seminal part of these last four episodes. Yeah, you guys like I'm, I'm assuming you're kind of like me and that we're all, you know, historians. We go back to day one. We know the show inside and out. I know we've all seen Borneo endless amount of times. Are you are you just guys just in a sort of state of reverence that we're about to talk about these four episodes here? Well, it, no. it, it, it's interesting for me because <laughs> I 
like, well, for so long from on, on a personal note, like I, um, um, I don't know if I ever talked about this. Like when I, I would watch these early seasons on just like repeat again and again and again and again. But Borneo actually, I uh, they got recorded over except for the finale because oh, no. when I, I had gotten through it, I had kept every VHS up through Africa, and I think Africa was coming to an end or it ended, whatever. And I had kept all these, and I hadn't watched really any of them very much at all. Like I, I had them because I I had this intention to do it. Keep in mind here, I'm a sixth grader at this time. I don't know what else I had going on, but. I, um, so I remember my dad was like, are you actually need all these survivor tapes or, uh, you know, can I tape over them? And I remember saying, okay, you can tape over, um, all the ones that aren't Australia. You can get rid of Africa. You can get rid of Borneo, but I want to keep Australia because it's important to me. And then I don't know how much late, later afterwards I, I rewatched some episode and I was like, what am I doing? I have to save these. Like, so I remember I went through the house and was like finding all the tapes and like, Every time I would find another piece of the puzzle, I would just be like so relieved to save it. So um, <laughs> saved all of Africa, all of Australia was there. But the only thing I had from Borneo was um, the finale. And so the rest got recorded over. And so it wasn't until – it's actually funny. It felt like a long time. Now I look back and I was in eighth grade when I think the first season came out. So there was a whole two years in there when I didn't have it when I was rewatching things. Um, so I've, I've seen the, the Borneo finale especially many, 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 many times because when I rewatched Borneo, I would literally watch the finale and then go on to Australia. <laughs> so like I've, I feel like I've thought so much about this like final stretch of, season, uh, of the season and – and what it is, but I, 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 jot, I jotted something down in my notes as I was watching this here, and it's like I didn't really realize how like how the story arc really works so well, how it really is Richard's story and Kelly's story down to the end, and Kelly's looped in with Sue because of the whole the whole Sue Kelly dynamic. But as I was watching these final stretch of episodes, I was thinking, wow, this really is the two main things we keep going back to is like obviously Rich and his alliance and keeping whatever what's going to happen with Rich, and then the fall of Kelly and her whole struggle. And I, I love that those are the two we get in the end because I think it, there's a really nice lead up to that final two. So Jay, you curmudgeon, you are not in reverence of these episodes. Uh, I mean, they are reverential, but you're like, are you, are you in awe to talk about them? I'm like, no, cause we kind of did. <laughs> That's true. You guys did, okay. though. Again, this I think we're taking what you guys talked about in like ten minutes too. But I probably imagine. Mm. I don't remember your first podcast, but I can imagine when talking about Borneo, this was probably the stretch that got the most amount of attention from you four, right? Well, yeah, yeah. But I also want to say this: like, you know, we're going to talk about these last few episodes, and we're going to talk about you know the fact that so much so much of America watched them and stuff like that. And you know, TV ratings then are different than TV ratings now, and we we. We could talk about all those differences uh, till the cows come home, but what we what is irrefutable is that these episodes were not just watched by a ton of people, but talked about by a ton of people. The final four of Survivor were on the cover of Time magazine for crying out loud. Like, which one is gonna win? You know, this was an important moment for like just as part of the American zeitgeist. You know, like uh, the only thing I can compare it to would be like the finale of Game of Thrones or something recently, where like just seemed like everyone was talking about it. And the funny part to me is, is that, you know, Survivor picked up steam almost like not not that the ratings picked up steam, like the ratings caught fire and then the ratings are fire. But, you know, just the talk about it, like, you know, the the, the grumble, the 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 importance and, and the way like word of mouth and people just 
openly talking about Survivor sort of grew and grew and grew and grew and grew, and it's going to culminate in the finale. But to me, a lot of like the really great episodes are kind of this middle to end, middle end stretch, you know, like the Gretchen vote, Jay for Jenna, Colleen's boot, like some of these episodes are like the better episodes like the finale to me it's 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 nice there's some really nice stuff going on in the finale but the finale is like i don't think it's the best episode of the season you know is it a good episode yes but like am i in reverence to talk about the finale of survivor borneo no but we but i'm so excited to talk about it because i love this season i love everything about talking about this season so that i, I i'm excited but i'm not in awe Okay, and I, I want to follow up on something you just said about the numbers, because, you know, you were going to talk about the ratings and blah, blah, blah. This is something that really could not be repeated often enough, and I have to say it again. The finale of Survivor Borneo got, I think, 51 point something million viewers. Mm. And you know, it's a big number. A lot of people don't really grasp what 50 million viewers is. Now, again, like Jay said, ratings from then and ratings from now, you can't compare because there's different forms of media. But this is the way I always put that into perspective. Think of the Oscars, the Academy Awards, the show that everybody on earth talks about and watches the biggest Hollywood event every year. The Oscars has only cleared 50 million viewers twice. It has only beaten the Survivor Borneo finale one time. I believe that's the year Titanic won in 1998. They got 55 million viewers. They have never... I do not believe beat the Borneo finale since then. And all the other years when it's the biggest event of the year, they still did not beat the Borneo finale. And again, again, you can't do numbers of different eras, but 51 million viewers for the Borneo finale, the Oscars this year, again, still a big deal, 23 million viewers. So the Borneo finale was like more than double the Oscars in a lot of years. So just put that in perspective. And then to follow up on that even more, like there have been other TV events that are bigger deals. I think the, the Cheers finale, mm, the Seinfeld, yeah, finale. Seinfeld finale. Yeah, the Friends. Those, I, always, I, I wrote about this in my book and I pointed out this fact. It's something that most people don't mention. Those were amazing TV events, but they also took 12 seasons of loyal TV watching to build up to this finale. So it's like, it, it's impressive that they could pull off 50 million in their finale. Survivor pulled off 50 million in their finale after 13 weeks. Yeah. Just put that in perspective. Yeah. It was amazing how fast it happened. I mean, Jay brought it up. Like these people became celebrities in their own right. And Survivor was not the show to necessarily pioneer the concept of reality TV, even Americanized. The real world did that. But I think due to a number of things, the network or the material or the way it was packaged, this just it caught so much fire. It caught so much fire that Richard was doing, uh, you know, a nice little weird dance to it after it happened. And it cannot be stated how big the show got and how big Survivor got, uh, or how big the castaways got. It, it really was, you know, I can imagine something like a live reunion show, which is now like a tantamount part, for the most part, of the show, that just got originated in, you know, right after the finale, because I can imagine the show was so big. They're like, all right, let's get Brian Gumbel and throw them on stage because everyone wants to talk to them about this thing. It just was a phenomenon in every sense of the word and something that will never be replicated because, you know, I think the show has been trying to capture lightning in a bottle ever since. And not to say that it hasn't had absolutely outstanding moments, but there is something about the way 
this show was received as just, you know, something that was better than some of the best scripted shows out there that really paved the way towards uh, a growing interest and then resentment towards the concept of reality television (laughs) and turning regular, quote-unquote, ordinary people into uh, over-the-top characters. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the backlash happened real fast. (laughs) But uh, yeah, that's, that's the one thing I just wanted to get across, that Survivor went from zero to 50 million viewers in like three months. That you will never, ever see that again. That is never going to happen. Although, it, just to put it in perspective, like 50 million is not the biggest TV event ever. The Super Bowl every year gets about 90 million. In fact, I just read somewhere that last year alone, 50 million women alone would just watch the Super Bowl. So, so Survivor's a big deal, but like a, stuff like the Super Bowl, it doesn't match up. But in single script or single episodes of TV, this is one of the most astounding things that ever happened. And this is just the finale we're talking about. All right, I have a couple emails here just because we had people write in about our last part three of Borneo. I have a really good one. I think I sent it to you guys, Our uh, the one about the Gretchen vote. You guys got that, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sorry, I was too busy reading, reading your fan fiction, but please go ahead. <laughs> God damn it, you're starting early. That's Jay's job. Fuck you, Paul. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> So, okay, we got a great email here because in the last episode we talked about the Gretchen vote and how what a big deal that was. And I really hoped we captured that. That is it's so much bigger than just a, you know, a four to one to one to one to one vote. That was a big moment in TV history. And I actually got an email afterwards from a guy who worked in television at the time. So like he was kind of a rival to Survivor and he was in, in the industry and he He really summed up that Gretchen episode even better than I could have. And I want to read this to you. He said, you know, this is why the Gretchen episode was such a big deal. For the first six episodes of Survivor, the the editors explained to us why each person was voted out. Even Dirk, who you could describe as a blind side, was explained to the audience. He was so skinny that they were worried about him. You know, that was the justification they used on CBS's website back in the day. Then we come to the Gretchen vote. And he wrote... Gretchen was the first unexplainable vote to the audience. And he's right. And he writes, it, it frustrates me that people don't understand the seismic significance of that vote in television history. And he adds, I would never say this publicly because it would be misconstrued. You have to know, re- understand it in context. But I had never seen anything as shocking as the Gretchen vote on television. And to this day, the only thing that ever shocked me more than that was when the second plane hit the World Trade Center. He goes, you have to remember, the year before Gretchen was voted off, ER had a shocking episode where two of their main cast members were, two of their main characters were stabbed and Kelly Martin was killed off the show. I remember being flabbergasted by that. They'd kill such a major star, but then reminded myself that it was just make-believe. Kelly Martin is an actress worth millions of dollars. There was no such comfort with Gretchen. I felt like I had just witnessed a beheading. And the fact that most of my friends don't understand the very real emotions we went through that night is so frustrating. And he adds, obviously, Mario, you were in the spoiler community, so you remember that shot of the final nine where people were arguing whether Jervis or Gretchen was the one that was missing. Again, there was a whole spoiler thing that people thought Gretchen might not make it far in the game, but it was most people thought it was a fake spoiler. And this guy points out, what you don't remember, Mario, is that there was another spoiler in which Gretchen was the winner. It started on the early show with Ramona. 
Brian Gumble did a question and answer where he listed everyone on Ramona's tribe and asked her for a one-word association. Ramona said Gretchen was, quote-unquote, a survivor. Gretchen was set up as the winner, Mario, not just from the show, but from all the media surrounding Survivor. And he adds, the National Enquirer put Ramona's Survivor answer on its cover as the spoiler who won the show. I bought the issue. I still have it. There was speculation that Ramona was going to be sued for $5 million. So those of us who were paying attention were blindsided that night, even though there was the tribal council picture with Gretchen missing. And then he finishes up, I wish I could explain to my friends that this was so much more than a game to people who had never seen this type of thing on TV before. Survivor was marketed to us as a social experiment that was shedding some light on how America worked. This show was the topic of hundreds of think pieces from the very start, and we were being conditioned that this was indicative of our, of our society. So to see someone like Gretchen, who was so capable, so likable, efficient, resourceful, kind, and helpful, and then watch her be swarmed by mediocre, average people, he goes, there were literally sociologists telling us that we have just seen a harbinger of the death of our society, a canary in the coal mine. Obviously, we know it was just a game. We're not more. We weren't morons, but we were told that Survivor meant so much more. No one nowadays understands that. And then we all hoped against hope that maybe Colleen would somehow avenge Gretchen, but she didn't. The bad guys won. And this is the last paragraph. CBS faced very real threats of boycotting. Nobody remembers that to the point that I believe they trotted Gretchen out a bit more than usual just so we could see that she was still alive and she was okay. They had to do that for Survivor. It was that big a deal. So anyway, I just wanted to share that email that really puts it into context, hopefully. Well, thanks, Renee, for sending in that intel. Uh, since she was working for CBS <laughs> at the time, she obviously knew firsthand. I mean, I think what the the emailer makes in terms of the, the main point that I really am just obsessed with from that is maybe not the 9-11 comparison, but the fact that what differs this from, even from a show like Game of Thrones, is that there is sort of like fiction versus reality, right? And there's been a lot of talk, especially nowadays, of Survivor still sort of being a bit fiction-based. They even talk about it on the island. Richard says, I believe in the end, uh, you know, this is not, this cannot truly be me. You cannot truly get to know a person in 39 days, especially in the context of this game. But I think from a viewer perspective, that's another reason why this became such a firebrand topic and show is because these were real people. You know, you can certainly fall in love with characters, but when there are almost quote-unquote life-and-death stakes of real people, people you might run into on the street, it brings a different set of stakes to it. And that brings almost a different level of investment to it. That's why I think reality TV is such an interesting medium, is because there's a bit of voyeurism knowing that you are observing real-life human beings that you hope people aren't writing the script for. And so even the, the good and the bad stuff they do and the good and bad stuff that happens to them hits harder because you know it's not like, okay, well, they're going to move on to the next project, you know, or maybe the character will come back from the dead. No, these are real things that happen to these people, and so it, it makes you feel even worse or better for the things that they do on that screen. Yeah, I'm curious, Jay or Paul, do you have any thoughts on that email? Like, does that resonate with you at all? <sighs> yeah, it does. Uh, it's, I, I mean, I think that a, a lot of it is is very true, but you know that that's the whole thing is is that we as an audience just 
you know, I, 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 we can't stress that enough. We've said it in all of, I mean, how many Borneo podcasts have we done now? Like seven? Like Seven. Yeah, 70 billion. Like in all of them, I believe I at least have said it. So I'm a broken record, but I think we all have said it in the sense that like, nobody really knew what this game was or what this show was or, or how it would work. And so, you know, the Alliance in this, in this show, the Toggy Alliance, where, where it's like, Hey, let's get a voting block. And then, you know, we control the votes like that strategy. We didn't even know if like that, you know, it, it seemed like borderline cheating, right? Like, can they do that? I, I guess they can do that. Is that a thing? So it was one of those things where we sort of hated it at the beginning, but now, you know, w within a season by survivor Australia, we're basically like, well, you got to get an alliance. So like everyone sort of gets on board with it, but Gretchen is kind of the victim of this in the sense that, you know, like, like the, uh, the, like Renee Seiler said, um, you know, we as an audience really identified with Gretchen because Gretchen is, was so seemingly so perfect, like a, a representative for the winner of Survivor. You know, she's, she's an educator, she's tough, she's, you know, super nice. And, you know, there, there's lots of great things to have Gretchen be your winner of Survivor. And yet she just gets cut from the game and she gets cut from the game almost for just being good. And and we don't we didn't really have a way to to contextualize that. So I totally get where uh, this email comes from in the sense that, like, it's so crushing because we don't know. And sort of what Mike said, these are people. These are real people. You know, a lot of times we try to to marbleize them in, in certain ways. But these are just people. But in the sense, it almost makes it worse because you see these people go out there and they're being put on film and they're and they're they're. You know, providing us this entertainment and their hopes and their dreams and, and their emotions are sort of getting played with in the show for our entertainment, more or less. And when things don't work out for them, it's it's even more crushing, because like you said, if an actor gets killed off a show, most of the time it's because either they're in a contract dispute and they're asking for more money, in which case. I mean, hey, respect the hustle, but okay. Or the other thing is, is that they've got another project somewhere else where like, they're literally like, kill me off the show because I'm going to be the star of this other show. And, and so, you know, you see the character killed off and you have emotional attachment to it, but usually you're like, okay, well, that actor's fine. That actor's going to go and do another thing. Whereas you get voted off of Survivor, it's like, that's it. You're done. That's it. Yeah, there's a finality here. Absolutely. What about you, Paul? I know you were busy having your Survivor shows taped over by Dora the Explorer, but what are your thoughts on this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like uh, this era of Borneo, it's like I was a little bit too young to really fully grasp like like what the email talks about and stuff, but I think it's important to note, which is alluded to in the email, um, is the type of like the um, – like how big of a deal it was and how on the early show they would, this is pre Renee Seiler, but they would, you know, talk, they would bring on psychologists to break down what this means and sociologists to talk about. It really was this, like every episode was this like new, like experiment that had been released and you had all these really intellectual people dissecting what that meant and what that meant um, going forward. Um, one of the things I uh, uh, watched in preparation for this is I couldn't, I didn't really dig that deep, but I, I found a really easy, all of um, Colleen's um, uh interview with uh with brian gump on the early show which is funny in a whole a whole bunch of different ways but you know um my, well one of the fun, funny parts was that um uh brian gumbo couldn't get joel's name right he called him josh <laughs> and he was like well there are some people on this show that they, they were trying to get the alliance together like josh wow who would have thought he get a predecessor to ethan like, zorn joel oh sorry he's like oh sorry josh is on uh big brother uh joel um <laughs> 
like just really sharp with it. But, you know, um, it, it was even interesting to hear him talk to Colleen and they kind of got into the psychology thing about too. She said, as Pagongs, we were in the situation where like our two strongest kind of leaders were Gretchen and Greg. And she says, Gretchen didn't want, or like she didn't want to play the game and Greg didn't want to play the show. Like he wanted nothing to do with the actual show. So you have these two leaders. She said, so what were we supposed to do? Like, you know, as we move into these episodes and we see kind of, you know, we finish off Pagong here. She says, what was, what were Jervis, Jenna and I supposed to do when those were the two people we were, um, that we were grouped with. So yeah, a lot of interesting stuff to talk about here. (laughs) I cannot get enough of Brian Gumble getting names of survivor contestants wrong. He does that in their reunion show too. Yeah. yeah, We have the infamous Ethan Zorn uh, from a few seasons from now. I was very happy though, that at least in this reunion, he did not go into the purview like, well, I was watching your tape in my trailer, young hot woman. And I have to comment on it here. (laughs) Although they had this like really weird thing where it was like, they're like, coming up next, we're going to be talking to Colleen, voter off survivor. And they had her like, just stand in front of a green screen. Like it probably was like what they do for the weather person, but it just was green screen that just had like, I think it just had like the early show behind her and they made her stand there with this like big cup of coffee and she just like, <laughs> kind of had to like stand there and kind of smile and it like lingered for way too long. I felt so awkward for her. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like how Survivor has every player with an iconic uh, a layer of clothing like Boston Rob with yeah. a little bee hat. That was Colleen with a giant mug of coffee. As that we all remember, trademark. Colleen was sipping the tea out on the islands. They were predicting that meme 20 years beforehand. <laughs> And then, then Bright goes, we, we got a question here from a viewer here who asked about, what's it like being uh, stranded on the island with 14 strangers? I was like, where'd he get 14? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, okay, we'll get to Bryant later, but I got to say in the reunion show, there's a scene where she's talking, where he's talking about enemies. There were enemies on the island. What about you, Stacy? Stacy and Rudy sitting next to each other up there in the panel, but she's not next to Rudy. Yeah, I was so confused by that. Who did he think Sue was? <laughs> <laughs> so, BB and Rudy apparently indistinguishable for Brian Gumble. Josh, where's Josh in all this? Josh, <laughs> did you forget Josh? Oh no, he called he called he called Josh slash Joel like a free spirit as well. I love when he yeah. did like those descriptors. Joel, the free spirit. What? <laughs> the hippie, the wandering hippie minstrel. That's Joel. <laughs> okay, yeah. To follow up what you guys said is that. Again, like uh, Paul said, there were all these smart people on the early show. They always have psychologists and behavioral behavioral experts and stuff. And, you know, in the glory days when we put smart people on TV and everyone was interested to hear what they say, just like now in 2020. <laughs> but, uh, but there was one quote that I remember a psychologist saying that he says, this is the problem with Survivor. He's like, what kind of a game is it where the weak, the unathletic, and the wholly unethical can just team up to vote out the strong? Mm. And that's a very... Interesting quote. I've loved that. I've remembered that quote for 20 years. I have it written down, and I always remember it when I think of Borneo. But that's the mindset that I think a, a modern audience doesn't really grasp, that this was seen as a sport at first. And there's like, well, it went wrong. And again, that's the – we've said that before. That's the whole mindset of how Borneo was was you know viewed at the time. It was a really interesting social experiment and, and uh, you know behavioral, or behavioral experiment that went wrong. Right, I'm so pretty, I'm ever, pretty sure. Yeah, didn't yeah. that person also follow up by being like, "What they should do is create a final four challenge where the immunity winner gets to bring someone along, and then they make fire with between the other two. 
<laughs> yes. We should put them on an island. We'll call it uh, Exile something. And they go over there, and they have to participate in all these carnival games, like <laughs> the ring toss and popping a balloon with a dart. And at the end, they pop back in. That We think that would be the best type of sport. <laughs> yes, that's, that's scan psychologically speaking. <laughs> okay, so anyway, that's where we are going into the end of Borneo, that it the Gretchen vote has tainted it. That everything is really... It's like a baseball record with an asterisk after it. Everything after the Gretchen vote would have had a huge asterisk from the audience because, like, well, this isn't really cool anymore. Now it's just shooting fish in a barrel. And it's really we're winding down here. It's the death of the alliance. The Pagongs are going to go one, two, and then Sean goes and then the final four. But, again, there's so much more going in these episodes than just the voting order or who wins. That's the one thing I hope we really want to get across, that this is a really interesting storyline, even though – like, as Mike said, if you look at it from a results point of view, it's not. And I think we are ready. I have no more things to interrupt us before we begin, Jay, so you should be happy. Hey! <laughs> All right. So here we go. We're down to the final seven in Survivor Borneo. And uh, Jay for Jenna just happened, which is basically the last point in the game, remember, where the Pagongs could rally and vote out Richard. That was the 4-4 moment. It didn't happen. So from here on out, the editors will tease you that Richard's going to go or the audience or the alliance will fall apart. It's not going to, but they do they, they do their damnedest to make you think it's going to happen. And we start in this episode, which is Jervis's last stand. Yeah, though we also start basically with, I mean, it's, you know, it starts with Jervis being very surprised that he stayed instead of Jenna. But really, I think the first segment is focused around everyone saying, wow, Sean is dumb. Uh, to the point where, you know, they get Jervis saying, either there's an alliance, there's definitely an alliance, they even cut to the four members of the alliance, then immediately segue to Sean saying, I'm not sure that there's an alliance. So, like, they are laying it on thick here. And look, from the Pagong's perspective especially, there's definitely going to be some resentment because they feel like Sean was the one that really screwed up their plan. But they are definitely burying Sean in this moment about how big of a mistake Jay for Jen is to the point where they actually did like an in-episode flashback to the end of last episode. <laughs> yeah, although to his credit, Sean does announce, you know what, guys? I'm not going to do the alphabet anymore. Is that cool? And they're like, yeah, thanks a lot, Dr. Dumbass. <laughs> I love, uh, as always, love uh, Colleen's biting uh, commentary here and that, you know, talking about how Sean wants to do like the mortal thing and stuff, which is like, good, you know, if you're if you want a pet <laughs> it's just like super condescending about it i like what uh colina uh, ends up saying in her early show interview as well like which i think she's actually really smart she kind of understood how like because i think she, you know, she was in marketing and i think she had kind of a good idea for like what the show was doing and what it needed to do and she kind of put it in terms that i hadn't really thought about too much is how she said her whole storyline was about um, being so close with Greg and she she was kind of second to him and once mm. he was gone it was kind of like now she can break free she you know she she's free of him and she's vengeful and all these things like that so we really continue to see up until her demise we get these little funny quips and she likes to kind of you know take digs at Sean yeah and the thing with Sean is that you know we we talked about this a bit last episode about how I don't know my personal philosophy is that the alphabet strategy was never really intended for in the game. It was more so for Sean's reputation outside of the game, so he was not looked as evil part of the alliance. Though apparently, uh, according to, once again, we're going back to the tome of Burnett's book, apparently the day after Jenna's vote out, Sean approached Richard somewhat sheepishly and was basically like, hey, can you let me in the alliance? 
And Rich said, yeah, you can do that as long as you ditch the alphabet strategy. And Sean was like, oh, you don't understand. Like, I was actually very intelligent. You know, all the Pagongs were at the beginning of the alphabet. But he said, sure. So, you know, as much as even Sean was decrying, he's going to talk in a couple episodes about how this is the most despicable, conniving group of people that he's ever been with. According to Burnett, Sean wanted in at this moment. (laughs) Okay, we got a lot to say about Sean when we get to his episode. (laughs) Get ready for a whole is he or is he not smart debate on Sean Kenneth because it'll be fun. But okay, Uh, yeah, like Paul said, Colleen really starts to uh, stand out here, and I'd argue she's actually the funniest person in the cast at this point. Mm -hmm. Like Rudy kind of takes a backseat, yeah. Everything is Colleen just digging on everybody. There is surprisingly little Rudy in this last batch of episodes. Maybe outside of Ida No and his you know jury question that wasn't really a question, and maybe it's because you know. Rich, when as as the lion starts to turn on one another, it's all about like Rich, Kelly, and Sue. But I was a little surprised at how, despite being a fan favorite, Rudy did not contribute that much to the overall narrative in this last group of episodes. Well, to be fair, he was off busy in his journal working on his poetry. (laughs) (laughs) I am Rudy. I am a tree. The tree is me. The tree I see. Yeah. But yeah, Rudy disappears here and Colleen takes over. And Colleen's got a great quote about Sean where she says, open your eyes, idiot. Sean's so scared to hurt somebody's feelings. He ruins it for everyone. She's like, he got Jenna out. Like that's like Colleen is incredulous that Sean could be this stupid. And she will call him a putz repeatedly. She calls him a moron when she votes for him. She implies it as well. Yeah. Colleen is super cutting. She like really is harsh when she criticizes people here. Well, I think it also comes from the situation, you know? I think there is a certain amount of frustration, exhaustion as well. It's very clear. I know that we're going to have an extreme situation with Elizabeth next season, but it seemed like she was pretty malnourished as well. You know, we we get the segment, I think, next episode about all the bug bites and scars and scabs that she's gotten. So she really is, like, at the end of her rope and then some. And so it leads to, like, fantastically cathartic television, especially if you're a Pagong fan at what Sean has unintentionally done to her in Jervis's games. Okay, so as we go into this episode, and again, there's not a lot of plot and device in this episode. Nothing really happens. It's just going to play out the rest of the season. So all you can really do is follow the character moments. But there's one here I really thought was interesting, and I remember sociologists talking about this at the time. I'd like to hear Jay's thoughts on this one in particular, is that the sociologists would say, you know, Survivor is a strategy game, but it's really interesting how... Toggy in particular broke down into like a family unit. How, you know, uh, Rudy's the cranky old grandfather at home and Kelly's the rebellious child and Richard and Sue are the parents. And there's even a scene here that I've always loved in this episode where Sue and Richard are literally like a couple of parents getting ready for the work day where they meet on the beach and they talk about the day and Sue's going to go back to camp and keep it clean and make the dinner and make the lunch and Richard's going out fishing and it's almost like they kiss on the cheek goodbye and say bye honey bye honey like it's so interesting that they really have become like a little family unit well yeah I mean this this is the part of the game that I think people don't talk about you know, uh, more than anything else, like especially in today's modern survivor, a lot of it is about like uh, production twists and, and strategy and numbers and voting and and and, you know, all of this sort of stuff. And that's that's all fine. That's well and good. But like uh, with the more basic version of this uh, uh, early season of Survivor, people talked about the game part, which is voting people out. And then they talked about the survival aspect, which was, you know, living 
you know, in in this uh, environment and trying to, you know, get your own food and living in shelter and not having a bunch of clothing and all of that sort of stuff. And then they also talked about the physical aspect, like the challenges and challenge beasts. Col- Colby, especially in, in Australia, is going to bring that up a lot because he goes on quite a tear. But people don't talk about the sociological aspect a ton, which I think goes into the whole strategy part. But it's not just strategy. It's just the fact that, you know, they are out there 24-7. I think th- I think one of the things that that we as as people that that watch the show that can't ever really fathom, like we can think about it, but we can't fathom it, is the time that passes in Survivor. You know, we, we get we get 43 minutes an episode per week and, you know, a season's usually about 13, 14 episodes long. So we're only getting like, you know, 14, 13, 14 hours of Survivor a season, whereas these people are out there for 39 days, 24 hours a day with each other. They're probably not sleeping a ton. They're probably, you know, sleeping a little bit at night and a couple of naps during the day. So for the most part, they're awake and they only have each other because the camera people are not doing a whole bunch of talking. So you literally just have these people around you. And it's, it's amazing how quickly you can bond with people if you literally have no one else to bond with. I mean, there's there's a lot of talk as well, even in more modern seasons, about like the beach family and where people fall in line. And even from like a sociological perspective, even speaking outside the familial aspects of it, you see something like in this episode when Rich, as revenge for the Pagongs voting against him, decides to purposely hold off of fishing. And, you know, I think we're going to talk a lot about the way that Richard came across in uh, these last few episodes and how... People might be surprised to know slash remember that the final two of Survivor Borneo was almost like a Survivor Micronesia situation where nobody, maybe save for Rudy, was particularly jazzed to vote for either Kelly or Richard. And watching moments like this makes a lot of sense that, you know, Richard is playing a bit more of a methodical, heady game, but that is not playing well uh, with with the social crowd. Uh, and then, you know, you cut to Sue, who's also doing her own playing up of a role of like, I'm the dumb redneck, you know, I'm just going to wash the dishes and people will think that because I'm a little daft, they're going to talk about me and with me openly and vul- they're going to be vulnerable with me. So then I can get them where I see them. And I think it's so interesting to highlight these two, like you said, Mario, they're the parents, but they almost exercise their own power in completely different ways to the point where it makes absolutely sense why they're going to target each other. Yeah, and this is definitely where that whole storyline pops up. If I recall, Kelly's not quite hated here. They think she's a little flaky. She's been voting on her own. They have to give her her space. And I know Burnett in his book talks about this quite a bit, right? Yeah, so basically the sequence of events is that Kelly, you know, voted for Sean. She voted against the Alliance. And, and, you know, the Alliance members were a little like, okay, what the hell? But with the Sue and Kelly stuff... It doesn't get until this moment where we just we see the scene where Sue basically tells Kelly, "Okay, no matter what happens, let's take Rich out." And Sue, you know, gets surprisingly emotional in this confessional, and she talks about it in Burnett's book as well. Like she had a really close friend, almost like a sister that she had lost twenty years ago, so she doesn't really connect with people that well. And she found a real kindred spirit in Kelly to the point where she says, "I'll go to the end with Kelly, and I will gladly lose." It's just about beating Richard. Apparently, what will happen that we don't see is that Kelly will go tell Richard what Sue just did, 
And that to Sue is like the moment when her trust and friendship is broken. That's when things really start to fall apart. So yeah, like you said, though Kelly went rogue last vote, seeds aren't really planted until this conversation happens and Kelly subsequently goes to rat out Sue to Richard. Yeah, and I think Burnett points out in the book that that's calculated on Richard and Susan's part, that they... You know, Kelly's going to stray, but, you know, as parents, we have to let her have her independence to pretend that she's not part of the alliance for a while. So they know she's doing it, but they're cool with it for a while because it's actually part of their strategy. That's how they keep her in the family, by giving her her quote unquote independence every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here, yeah, here's the confessional where Sue really lets loose. And I know this surprised a lot of people at the time because Sue is so, you know, hard ass and cold and just harsh to people where she talks about her friend who I believe died in a car accident. If I recall, Mm -hmm. it was like 20 years ago. It was her only friend she'd ever really had her only close female friend. And Sue starts talking about it. And you see real tears. Like it's very raw. The stuff that's coming out of Sue's mouth here. She's like, you know, I'm not going to fuck Kelly. I'm not going to burn her. We're going to take down Richard because again, we remember Sue has this thing where she loves dogging cocky guys on TV. She tried to do it to Joel. She loves making fun of Sean and Dirk. And this is her ultimate goal that all she wants to do is embarrass rich on national TV and prove that this country girl can outsmart the city slicker to the point that you even said, Mike, she wasn't even that interested in winning. She didn't even care that much. Yeah, I mean, at a certain point, she's like, I'm thinking about the money, but that's really because everybody was. But she felt such a kindred spirit with Kelly that's like, it's almost, uh, she's one of those contestants that's like, hey, if I make it to the end and I beat Richard, that's a moral victory for me. And I mean, there's always the thought experiment of if it was a Sue and Rich final two, what would happen? And that could be another way that she would take advantage. But I think, you know, she felt a legitimate emotional connection. As much as we talk about Sue sort of being one of the kingpins of this alliance that's not to say she didn't get emotions involved where yes she did have a bit of like a gruff sarcastic exterior to a lot of people but like you said let's look at who she was vulnerable to and it was kelly them in that moment and so when we trace our path forward to the infamous rats and snakes speech which jervis will call like one of the biggest sore loser representations ever it makes so much sense as to why she had that reaction because she pushed her chips in on an emotional relationship for the first time in decades only for her to not, you know, for her not to get only cut, but to feel basically embarrassed in front of national television for months to come. Oh yeah. And the vote came from Kelly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, a very interesting quote. I want to get your guys thoughts on this, but in the reunion show where uh, Sue says, Oh, I didn't even want the money. I didn't even care. Brian's like, really? And Sue gives a really interesting answer, which I think is very practical. I actually like this answer quite a bit. She's like, no, because if you win a million dollars, all the all the creatures come crawling out with their hands looking for handouts, like all the relatives and stuff. And she just didn't want to deal with that. I got the sense she and her husband had a good life out in the woods. They ran like a hunting lodge. She was a truck driver. And she's like, you know, it's a great adventure, but I knew if I won, my life would change. And I didn't want that. And what's funny is I don't think a lot of people would buy that answer, but coming from Sue, I do buy it. Do you guys buy that from yeah, her? I, that, it's stuff like that. Like I, I think about these early seasons and how authentic these people are. And that like, that's just an example of like just how authentic Sue is. Cause like who would come up with that? I mean, like if you're going to say, I didn't want to win the money anyway, that's not your like natural inclination is to talk about all your leeching relatives that will come <laughs> out. Like what? Like I think that's a real, like a real thought she went through. 
Well, and it also might be also like an after the fact thing, right? I can imagine from a psychological perspective, if you want to comfort yourself that you lost that in a million dollars, you could very easily put those ideas in your head of like, you didn't want it anyway. You know, you'd have to pay taxes on it. Imagine you'd have to do all that. Uh, surprise, <laughs> surprise. Some, some people will not do that. But I could also imagine that's like something I wouldn't say it's completely, you know, fabricated. But I could also think it's something that she would come up with to, like, comfort herself that she did end up losing out on the money. She she definitely does not take, I think, the loss as hard as Rudy when we get to the finale, who seems just completely belligerent and besides himself that he lost out on a million dollars. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. Jay, you live up in Michigan. Now, I know you're not quite where Sue is, but have you ever been to her area of the country? Are you familiar with where she's from? Uh, you can count on one hand how many times I've been to Wisconsin. Um, not not that I'm trying to dog Wisconsin or anything like that. Gulpiakers, I guess. Um, I don't root for them. But uh, uh, no, I've not been to Wisconsin a ton um, because I don't want to say that there's nothing in Wisconsin because I'm sure there's lots of lovely things in Wisconsin. But, uh, you know, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, right? So even though I, I live in West Michigan, which is a lot smaller in population than, you know, the, the greater LA area is, you know, I still gravitate toward larger cities. Um, and I'd love to visit Milwaukee one day. I really would. It's a, I hear it's a really neat, neat city, but, uh, no, I've not been to where Sue is, but there so you're are not a lot a big of hunt. You're not a big hunting and fishing guy. Uh, no. Uh, but I mean, a lot of people around here are, you know, uh, mm-hmm. when opening day of hunting season goes, there's not a lot of kids in the classroom. Uh, people are out hunting and, it is a way of life. And so in a way I can actually see that, you know, where I, I do know I'm in, I have relatives and I have people that have, you know, lived a life where they, you know, worked in major corporations or companies and they were, you know, they did very well for themselves and they, and they accrued a bunch of money and they took all that money. They sold their house. They retired from their job. They like bought a horse and then went out and bought a house somewhere in like Nuevo County where like nobody lives and they just ride their horse all day, you know, and, and, and that's what they do. And they just, you know, you know, buy like a four wheeler and just four wheel on their property and ride horses. And that like, that's what they do. And, and it's, you know, for, for, for people, for people that do that, you know, money is nice because it it allows you, you know, some fun comforts, but really it's, they like, you know, Every day they just wake up and they just hang out on their land for the most part. And that's all they need. And and I can totally understand that, you know, not not that I'm saying that Sue is self-actualized or anything like that. But if this is the life she's leading, I can totally see where she's like, you know, the million dollars would be nice. But, you know, I, I got I got I'm good. Good. Thank you for not losing all our Wisconsin sponsors. So good job, Jay. Uh, they're called Wisconsers. No. Thank you very much. I, I, I'm a very weird Midwesterner in the sense that I, I, my parents were from the Midwest. I grew up, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. So I still consider myself an Angelino more than anything else, even though I've lived more than half my life in Michigan. So I am a Midwesterner as well. But a lot of these like, you know, like Chicagoans don't like people from Wisconsin. And then there's kind of like this upper peninsula, Wisconsin thing. Like there's, there's stuff that goes around here and, you know, like Detroit has beef with like Chicago and, you know, there's all this like, you know, stuff. And since I wasn't born and raised into it, I don't have any of those feelings. So when I'm like, I have nothing against Wisconsin, I don't because I was not raised to have such feelings. All right. 
Very good answer. Thank you. Okay, so speaking of real life issues and real people and all sorts of reality intruding into the game, we have a very interesting subplot coming up here where we're going to learn Jervis is about to become a father. How old is he? Like 24? His fourth kid or something like that? Yeah, kid number four. He's got, he's got 11, 7, 2, and now Gunnar Peterson, newly born. Wait, he's got an 11-year-old? Yeah, so he had two kids from a previous relationship, Donnell oh, and Janelle. I think he's older, though. Isn't Jervis like 27 or something? 28? I'm not sure. Not entirely sure. We'll, we'll have to do the math. Bring in the math experts on that one. But, uh... <laughs> Paul, you should know. How do you not know that, Paul? God damn it. I know. Uh, really... It says uh, Jervis was 30 during Survivor Borneo. Okay. 30? Okay. Wow. Okay, never mind. But it becomes an interesting topic of conversation. And that's interesting because, like, there's a whole reward challenge here. And Jervis wins, blah, 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 wins a slice of pizza. But, like, that's not the interesting part of the rest of this episode. The rest of the episode is everybody commenting on Jervis's life choices. Yeah, it's and, and like that is, I think, one of the biggest indicators of like the generational gap that existed. And maybe why, again, Kelly felt like she got on with the Pagongs more and maybe a reason why she ends up getting the votes of people like Colleen and Jenna and Jervis. Uh, is that, you know, you everyone responds to this talking point of not necessarily Jervis having a kid, but Jervis specifically having kids out of wedlock. Uh, Rudy I was going to say, this is where Rudy continues his poem where he says, that's a tree and that's a rock. Don't have kids out of wedlock. Yeah, exactly. Or like, <laughs> like uh, take the branches and a portion. It'd be fine if she got an abortion. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to try to find a word that rhymes with abortion. So I'm glad you went there, Mike. It's, it's, it's an interesting to... though POV that you'd have. Because again, like we assume that Rudy is like this super conservative guy, even though I think those walls have come down a bit in his relationship with Richard. So to have him sort of have the, I would call it a, a strangely nuanced viewpoint of like, if she had an abortion, that's fine. But having kids out of wedlock is where I draw the line is, I don't know, at least from my perspective, something I would not expect from Rudy in particular. <laughs> I wish this game was going faster. Jervis's child is a bastard. <laughs> well, and then... That's, as Rudy would say, of course. Yeah, well, that, the, that's another point, though, again, if we're talking about, like, how Rich is coming across. This will play off very much so during Fallen Comrades a couple episodes from now. Richard admits that he didn't even know that Jervis was going to have another kid. And that just shows that, like, Richard Hatch has his mind in the game, but maybe not necessarily on the people that he's playing with. <laughs> Okay, yeah, to sum this up for people who have not seen this before, they get a special tree mail that Jervis, his girlfriend, gave birth to his child, Gunnar Peterson. And if, it want to make, if you want to make Survivor fans feel old, let's point out that Gunnar Peterson is now old enough to be on Survivor. Oh, my God, 20 <laughs> years old. But they all get a cigar, and everybody smokes the cigar, and Jervis looks stunned, and Richard has no idea Jervis was going to be a father. And again, Jervis wins this reward. He gets a... Single slice of pizza, which has got to be one of the lamest rewards Deli ever. Delivered by helicopter. <laughs> yes. And he gets to phone home on the Ericsson smartphone, which was, or a world phone, sorry. That was a big deal at the time. But then, like, there's so much interesting things I remember about the scene is that they all sit around Cap and talk about Jervis's life choices, which, again, you would not see in a modern episode of Survivor. Like, it's really interesting in the early days, let's just get these real people and see what they think about issues. And so, like, obviously Rudy is going to be a little more extreme in his belief that no one should ever have a child out of wedlock ever or they should be put to death. 
And then everyone else who's basically very supportive of Jervis saying, you know, he's trying his best. You know, he had one relationship. Now he has another one. Why get married if it's not there? And it's really interesting to watch them all discuss this. <laughs> but the more interesting part here is I remember is where Jervis gets a chance on his reward to call anybody in the world. And he thinks about it. He's not sure who he wants to call. And Kelly literally pulls her fist back yeah. to punch him if he does not call the mother of his newborn. Yeah, well, and I think they actually, they filmed the other side of the conversation, right? Which I can imagine, like, Burnett talks a lot about the hurry-up stuff that they had to organize at the last minute, which when we get to the survivor bar of it all, we'll certainly get into. But I wonder how, on short notice, he had to, like, call some rando camera person to go to the middle of New Jersey and film the other side of this conversation with Kayla and, you know, uh, his daughters. Yeah, but... Yeah, it's it's interesting that they give Rudy so much airtime here because, again, I would think, not to get into politics too much, this is really where it falls down to Mark Burnett producing the show versus Jeff Probst producing the show. In these early days, Rudy would get a full, you know, confessional, a whole series of airtime to explain his thoughts on things, even though they would not be what most of the audience would agree with, where he's like, you know, modern society, broken families, that's the reason we have so many problems. Kids need someone to punch him in the head. Like, this is terrible. Jervis is an embarrassment. To the, to the point, I don't know if people notice this, if you pay attention, and I know Burnett talks about it in the book, Bert, uh, Jervis shares his slice of pizza with everybody after he wins it. Mm -hmm. Rudy will not take a bite because Rudy will not share a meal with a father of an un, with an unmarried child or a, a, a child out of wedlock. Rudy refuses to share pizza with this person. So anyway, that's Rudy. What do you guys think when you watch this scene now where they all discuss Jervis? Like, do you find this fascinating that this actually yeah. is on an episode of Survivor now? Well, and even like you jump from like that's one of the biggest jumps that happens from season one to two. And, and remember, Bryant asked the Australia cast at the uh, reunion that said, um, you know, the first season we saw them talk about a lot of things. They talked about homosexuality, having kids out of wedlock, all these things. And you guys didn't do that. And they're like, yes, we did. They just didn't show it. And I think that's something that we never really see again unless it really becomes you know, an integral part of the show. Like maybe I can think about the, the package in, um, in Africa with Frank going on about um, gun rights and that type of thing. But really, we don't really get into these topics unless it really plays a big part in the show, which, I mean, I think for the evolution of the show, like it, it probably is a natural thing that happens. But I think this is one of the things that makes season one so raw and so like, like in what other in what other Survivor season would you get this backstory on, like Jervis's home life and his family in that kind of organic way that wasn't like, um, you know, the beat over the head with, I'm Jervis and I have four kids and blah, blah. Like, otherwise it would be really fed to us, like very clearly from the beginning that that was his storyline. Whereas in this way, we really get to know Jervis. And then, you know, towards the end of his this is the last episode, we kind of get this backstory to it. So I just think there's a lot of things that happen in this first season that are very organic that we learn about these contestants. And it's not something that's beat over the head with us from the beginning of the show. So I can appreciate it in that, that aspect. Yeah. To Paul's point, there are there. I feel like when it's used otherwise, it's more for a story purpose. Like you bring up Frank. I also think of Roger Sexton talking about gay marriage in survivor, of the Amazon. And I think that was less so about like a, 
slice of life conversation and maybe more so to put out this idea of like how Roger is re- really grading on his try mate so that when he gets voted out, it's done so handily, even flashing forward to something like in season 39, where you have the Jack and Jamal situation that obviously was like a very candid, honest issue that I'm glad was presented. But I agree with Paul. It felt like it had a little less buff to it, you know, and that speaks towards the season in general, that even something like a confessional is not as heightened. It feels more down to earth, more natural. There are more natural pauses and stammering in it that they decide to keep in there to make to make the wart show. And that just shows how this really was meant to be like a, a high stakes documentary, more so than a quote unquote reality show that we're used to seeing today, production values and all. Yeah, and of course, it does have to be said. I guess someone's got to point it out. There, If you follow social media, you follow Survivor, there's a big push now to tell the black stories on Survivor a little differently that Survivor has historically not done well with race representation. And I have to say, what? at the time, I know, I, I don't want to be a controversial here or bring something up that hasn't been mentioned before, but at the time, it was a small controversy that people would point out So you cast one black guy on the show, and he's the guy who has four children out of wedlock by age 30. Really? You do Mm -hmm. that, Survivor? So this was a thing ever since the beginning people pointed out, really, that's the one guy that you represent all the black people on the show. So that was a thing at the time among the media. All right. So, I mean, I don't know. It's tough because I think that a lot of, you know, Survivor does have this, we've talked about it, has this for lack of a better word, this real world sort of um, vibe to it where it's, you know, hey, we're going to talk about some things. So like, you know, we talked about, you know, just Richard having a candid conversation about his homosexuality in um, uh, uh, the first couple of episodes and stuff like that. You know, we we praised it in the sense that, you know, you know, they clearly they they showed it because, you know, it was a thing that they wanted to, to show and talk about. And, you know, it sort of indirectly leads into some Rudy stuff. But like here, you know, I think you know, they're, they're showing some things and I think they're trying to talk about, but they're not trying to talk about it. And I think that, you know, it, it just shows you in society, the things that, you know, society is sort of willing to talk about. And I think that, that today, what I like about today in a lot of things is that, you know, you know, especially with, um, with, with things that are happening in America at the moment is that, you know, we shouldn't shy away from conversations, like that as much as we should anymore. And I think that, you know, a lot of shows, you know, sort of gloss over some racial issues and, and, and things like that because, you know, Hey, if we talk about it, then it's going to make people uncomfortable and they're not going to watch and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, there's some truth to that in, in, in some senses, but I think that people need to move past that and have these uncomfortable conversations. And so, you know, I think that, you know, I don't know. I, I don't really have a point here. It's just that, you know, this is the year 2000 and, you know, they're still glossing over some, you know, hard conversations that America needs to have about race. Paul, were you having these kinds of conversations about race in Montana when you were in sixth grade? Um, I don't remember it too clearly, but probably they taped not. over that episode. That's why. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was out yeah, with his sorry, horse on his over. land. Yeah. He, he and Amanda were out there with a horse on their land. Like in right. Michigan, or sorry, right. Wisconsin. Sorry, sorry, Jay. Uh, Michigan too. 
<laughs> okay, so from here on out, the rest of this episode is really Jervis's last stand, making a last stand against the Toggy Alliance. And Kelly gives some confessionals where, you know, she's really regretting she was ever part of the Toggy Alliance and she doesn't care about these people. And she makes the uh, Luke Skywalker confessional. I actually forgot she had some interesting confessionals here. This is a good one where she's like, I've crossed over to the dark side for a moment, but now I'm back. And she's like, you know, fuck all these people. So Kelly is really getting more bitter and more angry towards the fact that she's in the alliance. And it will not end well for anybody, really. But uh, yeah, from here on out, Kelly is going to really regret everything she's been doing. She's going to pull more and more away leading up to the big fight with Sue, leading up to rats and snakes. It all kind of starts here. But first... Let's go to the only reward or immunity challenge that Richard ever wins. The uh, I'll, I'll mention the name of the dance later. This is the the Dusk Fire Building Challenge. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting touch that they had to use their own torches or staffs for the challenge. I feel like that's usually that maybe shows the budget of season one that usually they would like build challenge props. <laughs> I was gonna say it's probably more of a budget choice rather than a creative choice, but let's give them the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> Well, okay, speaking of creative choices, it's held right at dusk, right in what they call the golden hour for photography. And it's so cool. And this is the type of stuff that a Mark Burnett season would do that a Jeff Probst season doesn't. In fact, oh, I just read a good quote about this. Someone sent in a quote from Mark Burnett they found in an in a, in a old interview. And this is something we've been saying a lot, that these early seasons are really different than later Survivor because they're almost cinematic. It feels more like a movie than a TV show. Swear to God, I found a quote from Mark Burnett where he actually backs that up. Listen to this quote. Someone in the early 2000s said, Mark Burnett, your shows are different. You look at The Apprentice or you look at Survivor. It's not The Bachelor or The Littlest Person or Joe Millionaire. You know, what separates your shows? Why are your shows classier than those other trashy types of reality shows? And swear to God, this is a word-for-word quote from Mark Burnett. Because I treat my primetime television hour like a gift from God. It's a motion picture. I'm making a major motion picture. It's all about the story, story, story with character, and it's not stunt TV. Just tell stories. It certainly works on ER and CSI, so why not on Survivor? And so my friend who sent that in pointed out, it just shows how seriously Mark Burnett took this show, even to the point of melodrama. Why don't you do trashy reality TV? Because my show is a gift from God. And he means it 100% sincerely. And so my friend pointed out, that says so much about these early seasons and about the difference between them and newer ones. It, I also, says doubt... some things about, it also says some things about Mark Burnett. But we won't a lot of things about Mark Burnett, yeah. I know you guys don't like Burnett, but I just got to point that out. And he says, I doubt any of the currently active producers of Survivor would describe their show as a gift from God. So you're saying so, that the I... current producers of Survivor are, like, sane? No, I'm saying that Mark <sighs> Burnett made movies... Jeff Probst makes a dumb game show. It's a big difference. Mark Burnett thought his competitor was Avatar. He thought he was competing with Titanic. And it really shows when you watch these movies because he treats it like a movie. And that's one thing I always point out about these early seasons. You can't compare them to the later ones. And you can always tell when Burnett kind of gives up and moves on to some other project because it stops being cinematic. And I'm aware you guys don't like Mark, Mark Burnett. I, I could give a flying fuck what Mark Burnett does outside Survivor, so I don't care. I just look at this as a piece of art and cinema, and I love that he treated it like it was a movie. I think that's so cool. That's why I like these early seasons. 
Which goes a little bit antithetical to the fact that the contestants were almost treating it like a game show. I mean, Colleen's going to say as much next episode, right? So that's yes. interesting as well that I think... And Burnett doesn't talk, I think, too much about, like, that idea and how the contestants were actually feeling about it being a game. He talks a bit about uh, people sort of, like, fucking with production, uh, deciding yeah. that they, was, they were sort of going to be their next victims. But maybe that's almost like an overcompensation as well of, like, well, if these people are going to treat it like a game show, I'm going to treat this like a, a piece of cinema. <laughs> Well, that's what makes it so fascinating to me, the juxtaposition of what Mark Burnett thought this show was and what the players thought this show was. Mm -hmm, <laughs> it's mm -hmm. not always the same thing, and it makes it interesting to me. That's You just don't have that struggle in later seasons where, you know, get up to the 30s, 20s, 30s, 40s. Everyone's on the same page of what Survivor is. That was definitely not the case in the early days. No. I mean, and that's what makes the first season so special. In, 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 I mean, the first season's so special in many, many ways, right? But... I think that we've talked about it. And, you know, someone was like the first season's almost like a beta beta run of Survivor. And I wouldn't mm -hmm. necessarily say that, but, you know, Survivor's figuring itself out. And I think that there's something wonderful about that. The fact that, like, they just don't know and they're trying things. And I don't know. I, I really enjoy that. Yeah. And it comes back to what I had mentioned, that they specifically shot this seat, this challenge right at the golden hour just because it would make really it would look really cool on TV. So I always like that. It's just it's you don't see that in many challenges. This was specifically set at a certain point in the day just for photography reasons. OK, to sum it up for people, this is this the challenge where they have to build their own fire. The winner wins immunity. And of course, there's a run up to this. Oh, we're going to we're going to get Richard out tonight. And Kelly's mm -hmm. like, yeah, I think it's time to turn on Richard. So one last shot to get Richard out after Jay for Jenna. But it will all be for not when not only does Richard win the challenge, he wins immunity. He does the goofiest little dance that everybody on the message boards was obsessed with back at the time to the point that it was eventually named the perhaps not politically correct, the Rudy Tooty fresh and fruity dance because it was the gayest dance possible. And then Jervis even took that term and he, he quoted it on the, on the uh, reunion show. He's like, that was the Rudy Tooty fresh and fruity. So that's what everybody knew this dance was at the time. It was like the number one moment people used if they wanted to mock Richard for being goofy. And the thing is, again, talked about uh, you know the home of the inherent homophobia in that term, but there's a lot of it as we'll talk about in these these few episodes. But what I like about it is it's this one rare moment where like Richard isn't really putting something on. Uh, you know, he definitely he's as I mentioned before, he's someone who's very adamant about like this is me playing a game. This is not who I am as a person. I want to be true to who I am, but like this is not who I am outwardly. But I feel like it's spontaneous moments like this when like you really do catch someone at their truest. And here it is with Richard, which is like him very like freaking out about in celebration about, I don't know how much he thought he was actually in trouble, but like the pure ecstasy he had is so different to me from the <laughs> calm, cocky Richard hash that we've known for 10 episodes now. I, I think it's very generous of you saying that he was putting things on in other cases. Cause that's, I don't remember <laughs> that in Borny. <laughs> yeah. Or taking it off. Do you guys remember this dance being that big a deal? I wrote, I literally wrote my notes. I just wrote, um, uh, Richard's famous dance. So I knew exactly what it was. <laughs> I just called it his little spin dance. Yeah. He does this weird move. And he even says in the reunion show, I don't remember doing that dance, <laughs> but no, I mean, this was, the, the, it was everywhere. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, what survivor does in a lot of ways, uh, is, is it sort of strips you to the core. And, and what I mean by that is just, you know, you're out there and you're dealing with people, you know, and you see it on even Big Brother where like they're in a house with air conditioning and like an unlimited fridge. Like 
when you're cooped up with people, you're going to get annoyed by them. And, and, you know, after a while, you know, your feelings about them are going to show whether you want to or not. Right. And Survivor, I think, exacerbates it just in the sense that instead of being in a comfortable house with air conditioning and an unlimited fridge, they put them on an island where they have to, you know, kind of go down to the bare minimums. And so, you know, I feel like people get annoyed easier and and, and things like that. But like Richard, like you said, like the thing about Richard is, is that Richard, I think, maintains a bit of I don't want to say professionalism, but he maintains sort of more of a uh, a veneer of, of, you know, I'm here to you know, play and, 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 you know, make people do what I want them to do. And, and it's a business you know, ship. It's, it's a business trip. Right. But, but here, like, I think he, you know, he's a competitive guy as, as a lot of people on survivor are. And I think he really wanted to win this one. You know what I mean? And, and he won it. And I think that, you know, more than anything can talk about the dance. Like really what it is, is it's just pure emotion coming out of him. Like, mm-hmm. like yeah. this, you know, like, like Mike said, he's, he drops any sort of uh, a facade of Rainier at that moment. And like, he's actually just feeling feelings in that moment and that's i don't know as an actor and and someone who teaches acting it's a very powerful moment yeah and and but and compare that to the way he reacts to the moment that he wins is super interesting right because you would feel like those are both ecstatic moments but i wonder if just richard was so caught by surprise with this challenge that he acted that way as opposed to obviously there things could only go one of two ways in the final tribal council so he'd almost like been able to steal himself and react in the richard like way for that winning moment yeah, no, absolutely. It's really interesting to watch the real Richard come out here. He shows some joy. And again, it is a phrase that will get you canceled on Twitter. But if you want any street cred as a old school Survivor fan, that dance was called the Rudy Tootie Fresh and Fruity made, I believe, famous by a Survivor Sucks poster named Asia Steel, if I recall his name. And he still, I believe in his bio on Twitter, still says the creator of the Rudy Tootie Fresh and Fruity GIF. So it was really that big a deal that everyone knew this dance. This was the Richard moment. And I have to point out, for this episode being Jervis's last stand, his big battle against the Toggies, where he's going to win immunity from here on out, I don't think he even gets a fire lit because his torch gets wet. So he's not even close to this challenge. Yeah, I think he's the only one that like has to go back into the water to actually light his torch again. So yeah, he's pretty screwed in this one. <laughs> Yes, it's it's not quite Andrew Savage rallying for the for the uh, Morgans against the Drakes. It, it doesn't quite happen like that. <laughs> so anyway, Richard wins immunity. This is the last time Richard will be in danger at any point in this game, and you could just kind of feel at the time the audience just the energy being sucked out of them when they knew Richard wouldn't be voted out. Like, oh man, because this is the one chance in the episode they thought maybe they could get him the last time. It doesn't happen, and from here on out, it's just. Colleen and Jervis knowing their fate and marching to their doom. Although this Out is the one where the they medical put the, tape. The medical I would tape. Okay. Sort of I would sort of disagree with danger, but a different kind of danger, but keep going. Yeah, no, it's yeah. I don't think he was ever in actual danger, but the audience thought he was because of the edit. Of being voted out. That's what I mean. Just be, of being voted out. Okay. 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 That so, I'll agree with. Yeah. So here comes the tape, Colleen and Jervis. And this was another famous moment. Again, I I cannot believe how many great, big, iconic Borneo moments we still have to go. And like, there's nothing really going to happen in the plot. But this is the one where they pull out the tape and they make it on, they make little logos on their shirts. And I've always loved this, that Jervis's name tonight is Bullseye because he knows he's going to be the vote tonight. But by the time they get to tribal council, he has changed it to Target because Target is one of the sponsors of the season. So I know there were some discussions behind the scene there. 
Yeah, I mean, listen, when you go out, you go out with a possible brand deal. And who knows, maybe Jervis did get a brand deal out of all this. And Colleen, knowing that she's very much next, is sitting duck. I mean, a very cute duck on her shirt as well. <laughs> the sitting duck is great. I always love the little sitting duck. I also love, like, I do not think it would fly whatsoever nowadays on Survivor to, like, stop Jeff Probst and tell him to call you by a different name. <laughs> How dare they? No one would dare do such a thing. He would say, enough with the nicknames. Yes. So, yeah, Colleen and Jervis are making little logos for their shirts, knowing they're toast. And Kelly, of course, is saying, is this fun? This isn't fun. This is crap. We're just picking them off. Why is this fun? And so this is, I believe, the first time she starts planning with plotting with the Pagongs to maybe t team up with them. And Sue sees it. And she's like, there will be consequences, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And Rich says, like, uh, oh, yeah, we... She could have consequences we hadn't decided yet, you know, and he refers to we, I guess I'm assuming, as uh, him and Sue. But, yeah, Kelly says she wants to do something, quote, shocking and unexpected, which, spoiler alert, does not turn out to be shocking and unexpected. Okay, let's get to this tribal council. I cannot believe we spent an hour on the Jervis episode. <laughs> but, so, I there's Mario. one, I know, I know, I know. There's one interesting thing about this tribal council. This is Sue's speech about alliance, how America runs on alliance. And it's a great speech. But to me, what I always remember is there was an even more interesting speech that was not included in the episode. Yes. And Mark Burnett talks about it in his book. Please tell us about that. Yeah, I have the page open. So basically, if you're talking about, like, who is Jervis Peterson? Who is Jervis Never Nervous Peterson in a speech? Jeff asked Jervis at one point, Give me three good reasons why you should stay on the island. And Jervis looks them in the eyes, Jeff specifically, and says, they'd better vote me off. Uh, and so she says, Jervis learned, I guess he talks in the third person a bit, Jervis learned long ago that the only person responsible for Jervis is Jervis. If they don't vote me off tonight, I will win this game. I will win every immunity challenge and get rid of them one by one. If they don't vote me off, I will win the million. I will make them pay for this mistake. And then he looks back up Jeff and says, that's all I got to say. Don't make the mistake of keeping me around because I will beat your ass. So again, this is sort of like, again, this is Jervis the showman, the charmer a bit, right? That he knows he's gone and he's going to almost go out on his own terms, BB style, by saying, yeah, you're getting rid of me because you know if you keep me, I'm going to kick your ass all the way to the end. <laughs> Burnett writes like an entire page on that speech in his book saying one day Jervis will rewind this episode for his son and show yeah. him that speech. It'll be the greatest speech ever in TV. And like then they didn't even include it in the episode. <laughs> yeah, you have to turn into the like the shit they should have shown video or whatever it was. I don't think it was even on that. He's just going to have to like recall it to him. Yeah, but I always remember that Burnett builds up that speech in the book as the biggest part of this tribal council, and we don't even see it. Jervis just goes down like a little bitch. He's gone, and that's it. I do love that Sue quote, though, because Jeff's even going to bring it up, I think, in the next tribal council. The I wouldn't even call it hypocritical, but the fact that Sue is using corporate America as an example, considering that, as we just talked about, she's more of a salt-of-the-earth person is so interesting. And I think it does go back to, again— her trying to justify and rationalize something that might be perceived as unethical by saying, like, that is the, the lifeblood of our country. You know, some people might say, oh, Sue's gone corporate in that regard, but I think it's a another way that she can sort of 
psychologically substantiate what she's doing, especially compared to someone like Kelly, who is looking at what Sue's doing and saying, that's not right. I also love, this is very much like the leeches coming out of nowhere that she gets very specific and talks about an insurance agent that goes to a church. Um, <laughs> not not because he's religious, but because he wants to make connections. I'm just like, she's just so real and like gives such real world examples to what she's experienced, uh, which I think is great. <laughs> yeah, for people who haven't seen it in a while, Sue goes on a whole shilingua here about uh, how America's run on alliances. Alliances are not bad. If a politician, if people give him money to be elected, then he owes them something. That's alliances. That's America. There's nothing wrong with alliances. And it's a very big speech. And again, this is not the most memorable of the episode, but that's a great speech, a good moment. Although I have to point out why the Pagongs don't like Kelly. And this is something we'll get to at the very end with the final vote. Kelly, this whole episode, talks about she's not voting with the Alliance. She wants nothing to do with them. They're all scumbags. She's going to do something crazy. She's going to plot with the Pagongs. And at the end of the episode, Kelly votes with the Alliance for Jervis. Yeah. <laughs> so perhaps that's why they thought she was giving them false hope, and they did not like Kelly that much. And apparently, like Burnett says, she was going so far as to actually make deals with the Pagongs, with the younger tribe members. So it very much is like... I wouldn't say the, the, the prototype to like a Russell Hansian figure, but definitely sort of wading into those waters of making too many deals and promising things to too many people and then sort of reneging on them. I mean, Colleen's going to call her wishy-washy uh, in her vote for Rich at the end, specifically uh, or to, for Kelly at the end, specifically because she does this type of stuff of saying up and down, I hate the alliance, I don't want to vote with them, and then votes with them at least this one time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's Boston Robbie in, in All-Stars. That's what he was doing. And that's the one thing. We'll get to the end and talk about it. But why Kelly loses is because Kelly is the villain. She's the one giving everyone false hope, and they're pissed at it. So it's like, keep that in mind. Villains do not win Survivor. Richard was not the villain. He was, you know, creepy and cocky, but he never really actually lied to anybody. Right. <laughs> that's the thing with Rich. Okay. So Jervis is gone. Do we have any memorials for Jervis never ner nervous Peterson here? I was just so surprised that it took 26 seasons to bring Jervis back. And I think we talked about this a bit in the beginning of our All-Stars podcast. Because I feel like when you think of the Pagongs in terms of popularity, the last two were probably the top two in terms of popularity. Like Jervis was a big figure you know he had the big reactions of eating the butad and eating the rats Jervis was a large character in this season if he, even if he didn't have an overall impact on like what happened strategically he was just a big presence on the show and because of his affiliation with Pagong a big favorite as well so you know in an age where they were bringing back so many people's fr people from Borneo I am a bit surprised it took so long to get Jervis back and really only I, you know, I, I don't think Marissa Peterson was the reason why he got brought back, but, you know, in such a weird scenario as Blood versus Water. Yeah, why was he not with Gunner? Or maybe Gunner wasn't quite old enough yet. <laughs> Could have been another Katie Collins situation where, like, the Gunner was also seen on screen on Survivor, Borneo. Uh, Jay or Paul, were you guys Jervis fans? Yes. Yes. I was. I was a big Jervis fan, and, I mean, that was the whole thing where I was like, Jervis was the most popular in, in you know, well, Jervis and, and Colleen, I think, were, you know, the big popular personalities on Pagong. I mean, you could talk about Gretchen and I think Jenna Lewis, you know, gets some just because she got a lot of screen time and and whatnot. But but Jervis was, you know, the whole thing with Jervis was, you know, one of the big quotes I love is when he's just in that like 
you know, just just laying back and he's just like, I haven't done a damn thing out here on the island. And he's talking about how he's just schmoozing everyone. And like, I think that, you know, people don't necessarily take a lot of the Pagong seriously in the annals of Survivor. You know, when they look at Survivor Borneo, everyone's like, we well, got to look at Toggy and what Toggy did with the Alliance and, you know, Richard and Sue and, and bringing Rudy in and all this sort of stuff. But it's like people on Pagong are doing fun things. I mean, it's unfortunate that Greg is, you know, working against them and Gretchen is kind of doing her own thing. But like Jervis is this prototype of someone who's, who's, you know, it's, it's a prototype of, of, of an archetype of survivor where it's like, you are just, you just ingratiate yourself with everybody there. And so you're everyone's best friend and they're just never going to think to vote you out. And I think that that is such an underrated quality that I've always appreciated about Jervis in, in the sense that, you know, Jervis, Jervis was working out there and what he was working on was just being friends with everyone and everybody loving him and not necessarily wanting to work him out and uh, vote him out. And so I, I just, I, I appreciate, you know, everything that Jervis brought to the table. And I have to echo what Mike said. The fact that they brought him back like a billion seasons later is an absolute travesty. He should have come back way earlier if we're going to bring people back. How about you, Paul? Was Jervis the player you could most relate to? I mean, I wouldn't say that, but I just think that when you think of Survivor Borneo, he's one of the the people you think of. He's such a staple. Like Mike said, it's it's kind of crazy how long uh, the show took to bring him back. So I, I think Jervis is one of those faces you think of when you think of Survivor Borneo. So I hope we've done some justice in, in talking about him through these podcasts. To the point that I believe in blood versus water, he even has Pagong tattooed down his yep. arm. He is the face of Pagong. Yeah. Um, to me, when they went to All-Stars and they started casting, and I know we talked about this now, we'll talk about it endless amount of times until the day I die, is that Jervis, I could not believe, was not on All-Stars. I thought he would have been a slam dunk. He was probably the most relatable, the biggest face of the Pagongs, which, again, Pagong was not a dirty word back then. Pagongs were popular. And they, I, I was shocked they did not want Jervis. And I would, I'd always consider him the number two biggest snub. The number one snub is Mike Scoopin, who, okay, yada, yada. There was other things in Scoopin's story mm-hmm. later. But in 2004, everybody knew Scoopin as the guy who fell in the fire, the fallen hero, the tragic storyline that was never completed. And so, you know, I've heard people have talked to me about this, that Mike Scoopin was cast in All-Stars, but then he blabbed about it. He started talking too much. And Scoopin had a bad reputation for that back in the day. I know other survivors have told me that, that he was a talker. He would he always wanted to be the guy in the know who would, who would spoil things to people. So he spoiled everyone that he was going to be an All-Stars. And the production team said, no, you're not doing that anymore. And so they cut him from the cast. So I always thought Mike Scoopin was the biggest snub in All-Stars. But beyond, behind him, that spot should have been Jervis's. I, to this day, cannot believe they picked Boston Rob over Jervis, just because Jervis was a much, much bigger name at the time. And with that being said, I think it's time to talk about Colleen, the one person who's perhaps bigger than Jervis. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is just a fun little relic, right? Because unlike Jervis, I'm sure we'll talk about it, Colleen ha- is mythical in the survivor world in that she disappeared after all this and seeing how this episode ended i could honestly see why oh yeah it's not a surprise it's okay we'll get into that when this episode aired i remember the at the night this episode aired on tv and i remember feeling the whole episode there was something different about that episode and i remember going on the message boards on survivor sucks or whatever whatever uh august 2000 i remember when this aired but 
I'm like, there was something weird about that episode. What was off about it? And nobody could really answer it because people didn't rewatch episodes back then. You just saw it once. Watching it now, oh my God, there's so much little stuff they do in this episode that's different than any other episode this season. It's, it's the uh, producers are totally just beating you over the head with the fact that Pagong being voted out is a tragedy. Colleen and her goodness being voted out is a tragedy. And they just do as many little tricks as they can just to make this episode feel a little off. Did you notice all the little things they do? Well, ironically, this is the first episode I ever rewatched ever. So before the tapes got recorded over, I had this one recorded. And I remember the next day watching it. Um and thinking like, oh, this is like really fun to rewatch this because I'm catching things I didn't notice before. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, but and th- there is like a different feeling to it for sure. Um, and I, I, yeah. I wonder, you know, obviously, because I, I can't remember if the entire season was edited before it aired. But I do wonder, obviously, as we talked about with the Gretchen vote, like the production production was very much behind the Pagongs. But I wonder if this episode was even qualified more based on how the people were reacting to it. You know, I could see a scenario where they say, oh, wow, people are really building around the Pagongs. Put in more heroic stuff for Colleen, that she is like a falling, you know, phoenix that will never rise again. Because, yeah, this really is... You know, I feel like, uh, Mara, you like to to really reference all the time the Aaron boot from Survivor Thailand, and this is almost like its beta version, mm-hmm. where it really is just sending off one character from beginning to end about how they are slowly dying and will soon expire from the game. Yes, and I'm glad you brought up the Aaron boot. That's exactly what I compare this to. Now, Aaron was one one-hundredth as beloved as Colleen. In fact, half the audience of Thailand could not have even named Aaron, so it was nothing like this. But, like, it's the same concept. And the first thing I want to point out is the intro, that wonderful intro that I love. At the, I love these Borneo episodes. Sixteen strangers forced to live together. Now they've merged into one. Ratana is the name, and it is anybody's game. That intro is not in this episode. Mm-hmm. It's the only episode they remove it from. This one just starts very somberly with, previously on survivor (laughs) they do not build up this as a fun episode at all and there's one of two reasons why they did that either one they want you to know that colleen is going and this is going to be a very sad episode and this one's different they do not want you hyped up for this episode at all although i could think of the alternate explanation is that after jervis went home remember there was a big spoiler that jervis won survivor and Jervis being voted out is like, oh, well, I guess that spoiler's not true. I guess the Pagong's not going to come back. This might have been the editors basically playing with the audience. Yeah, we know Jervis isn't going to come back. So back to our regularly scheduled programming. And they just take out that intro. But that intro is not here in this episode. And it will pop up again in the next one. Just something subtle that I had never noticed until I watched it today. Mm. All right. So this episode is just everyone just being weak and tired. There's five Toggies left. There's Colleen. Everyone's just, you know, sick of being here. There's nothing to do. Like Jay said, time passes. You don't have anything to do during the day. Sean says, I miss my parents. I wish I could see my dad, which in in future seasons, we know that's a spoiler. He's going to see his dad. If only my dad could know how to drive a boat. (laughs) Oh, this is where we get Colleen's bug bites, which are a very infamous image they showed a lot of back in the day. And they to are the point, to the point where her intro shot was her covered with bugs. It makes so much sense considering they, they are so closely associated with her. <laughs> yeah. Poor Colleen. Colleen really goes for the ringer here. And now we get one of my favorite parts of the season. Colleen laments the fact that the Pagongs are gone. 
she is the last of her kind. Her people are gone. I'm the only one left. And we get this montage. This is like a, you know, rites of passage montage where they show all the fallen people. But they do it here, and the season isn't even over yet. We just get a, a Pagong rites of passage. <laughs> Except I did notice it because I think it's like shots of everyone hanging out in the water, and they don't have BB. They just, I think Colleen just, then if we're giving, going by her logic, she just doesn't want to remember that BB was on her tribe at all. <laughs> so BB was not in the montage at all? I don't believe so. I think it ended with, with Ramona. Hmm. Okay, and then, uh, and then we get Colleen giving out a little this speech about how, you know, the Toggies are a mess now. They're all scrambling because they know they're going to be the final five and they're all fighting. And she goes that they're the most conniving group of people ever. And she's like, and Rudy just sits there and watches. Rudy does nothing. And so it's like a spoiler, almost a hint. Rudy's going to win this game if you pay attention. So I think that's a lot of people were attaching their hopes to Rudy at this point. It also is interesting. This is a moment where, and like, uh, Colleen is saying, I think with the money getting closer and like now that their first goal is being completed of making it to the final five, that you know now they're really starting to figure out what happens next. You get this really interesting shot in this montage of like Rich frantically grabbing Sue as she walks up into the jungle, but Rich uses his time to finally make a final two deal with Rudy. You know, I think it's talked about that I think he did it this late because, like, I think he had one with Sue that ended up not happening because he found out about Sue's double dealing with Kelly. But, yeah, people would think that, oh, yeah, Rich and Rudy were together since the very beginning. But, no, it was much more of just, like, a friendship and bond. And Rich made a final formal deal with Rudy, like, days before the end here. Okay, I got to bring up Colleen here, her popularity. Now, I was not the biggest Colleen fan at the time. I would have liked Jervis more. I liked Rudy more. But I was very much in the minority because everyone was so sad that Colleen was going here. Jay, Paul, what about you two? Were you, like, did this this episode affect you emotionally at the time? Were you big Colleen fans? 100% Team Colleen was crushed by the outcome. Yes, I was 100% on board with Team Colleen. Yes and no. Like, yes. Uh, but it was mainly just sad because, like a lot of people, I was rooting for Pagong, right? And it's like, mm-hmm. even though the writing's on the wall, like, there it is. It's done, you know? Yeah, it was, it was I mean, this episode was really, I mean, in the past few, were sort of like watching a slow motion car wreck where it's like, yeah. the people that you love are just going to be destroyed and there's really nothing you can do. And so it's, to your point, Mario, this episode has a pretty depressing yet frantic tone I mean, again, this is sort of something that gets Mandela'd, and we'll talk about it later, that for all intents and purposes, if that immunity challenge goes a different way, it is not a straight pagonging. It is not Colleen going home in sixth. But because that's the result, this episode certainly takes on a tone of Colleen just being tired of not only the situation and the survival element, but also like now having to put up with the neuroses of a bunch of people that are already discounting her and waiting for the next step to happen. Yeah, and this episode never really led to the fireworks like the Gretchen episode. Everyone remembers the Gretchen episode. It's like a huge masterpiece. I think this episode is actually structured just as well. It just it's like the Gretchen episode but stretched over 60 minutes. So it's not quite as emotionally an impact. Like it's a, it's not a sucker punch right at the end. This one is more of a inevitability. A, yeah, it's not a sucker punch. It's more like getting stabbed and bleeding out over an hour. <laughs> yes. So, but Colleen will get like almost every confessional in this episode. I forgot how prominent she is in this. And she's got a great one here where she says, you know, this is the Toggy Alliance. You know, they're terrible people. They're just scrambling. They're conniving. It's not a fun game to be a part of. And she says, 
I love this because <laughs> I'll tell you why. She says, it's exactly what happens when you put a chunk of cheese in a maze and let mice go at it. They walk all over each other and step on each other. Who wants it the most? And I love that because, you know, we're here in the middle of quarantine. One of the things that I did to during this pandemic to, you know, entertain our house, I bought some pet mice. I have pet mice now. This is exactly how mice behave. There is no fucking loyalty in a mouse cage. You put one piece of food in there, they will kill each other for that food. They're like the best of friends until one sunflower seed goes in there. And then they're stepping on each other's head and pulling it away from each other and squeaking. Otherwise, they're sleeping together like they're little yin-yang in a little circle. But the minute a piece of food goes in there, they fucking hate each other. And it's such a perfect analogy. I love that Colleen mentioned it that way. <laughs> What's your experience with mice? I've had mice before. I had mice back in college. I've owned like 10 mice over the years. I just wanted some new mice here during the, uh, during the pandemic because they're fun to watch. So why? Why are you going with that question? No, I was just curious because I've never had a situation where I've seen like mice fight one another. But the way I've experienced mice, especially coming from more of an urban setting, have been more from a singular perspective instead of a group-based environment. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps New York mice are different than fancy pet store mice in California. But yeah, the mice are very sweet and very gentle and my favorite pets I've ever had. But boy, are they self-centered the minute it becomes an individual game. There is no loyalty. And it's like that with fish, too. I always joke that all these fish that will swim together and they're friends and then one dies and they'll race to eat him as fast as possible. <laughs> you know, I, I have a feeling that like someone out there is like listening to all of our podcasts and like slowly building a psychological profile on each <laughs> of us. <laughs> and this my is why God, Jay doesn't talk much. My God, Mario's profile has got to be like, I don't know. Yeah, is there like a step above like not torturing animals, but like watching animals torturing themselves that is sort of like on some level of, of that scale? I never said I was torturing them. I'm saying that's the feeding time. You put one seed in there, then the other. You feed them both. You can't feed them simultaneously. The minute the first one goes in there, they fucking hate each other until the second one goes in there. I'm not well, torturing have, them. This is how I they behave. Have, I also have this feeling that like, you know, people are like, you know, they, they listen to our voices and if they've, and if they've listen to a lot of the podcasts, you know, it's, it's like me when I listen to, to podcasts, right? Like, you know, you sort of get very familiar with the voice that you're listening to, right? And you, you feel like in a way, you know them when, you know, in reality, you probably don't know them because, you know, they're a stranger and whatnot. And I just have this feeling that like, with a lot of things, you know, that you meet, you know, the, the podcaster in real life, and you're like, Oh, there's a lot of things that, you know, I didn't, wouldn't have thought about you, blah, blah, And I bet you, like, people meet Mario, and you're like, he's exactly who I thought he was. <laughs> so, like, I love it's, this. It's, this implies that I go out and I meet people outside the house. Well, there's that. But, like, you know, the fact that, you know, Mario's like, I've kept mice for a long time. And the answer is, of course you have. Mice are awesome pets. How is that weird? No, they're, they're actually quite good pets. Yeah, the two best pets in the world are mice and rats. And the only reason we have mice is because my wife thinks rats are ugly. Even though rats are smarter and like the smartest animals ever mice are the most adorable sweetest pets but the only downside that they only live about a year and a half so I'm, there i will I'm, temper that i'm staring my dog right in the face what what are you talking about best pets <laughs> all right so anyway, you, so i take it you guys have never kept mice paul not even in montana no i had a roommate one time who had a big pet rat that i would hold but no mice he was a cool pet right yeah, he was pretty sweet. I was really, I had guinea pigs growing up though, so I'm more team guinea pig, but. I was going to imagine that. I'm pretty sure a mouse is elected to a city council somewhere in Montana. <laughs> <laughs> 
That was good. <laughs> uh, okay. Why is that funny? Someone, it was pretty funny. We'll explain, <laughs> someone, someone will draw out explanation for Paul, and we'll, we'll fax it to him. No, not fax him. Carrier pigeon it to him. Oh, Mario, you didn't get that joke. I didn't even hear it. I was talking, I which bet. probably is not, yeah, not surprising. <laughs> All right, so, so Kelly or uh, Colleen is just, you know done she's done with this whole game nobody deserves to win it devolved into the worst people and even sue is starting to get furious now this is where she really gets you know fed up with kelly's wishy-washy and playing with the pagongs and kelly and i I actually agree with sue's logic i understand why sue's upset here because sue's like you know we're all in alliance we've been in this all along that's the deal kelly's walking around saying I'm not part of the alliance. They're bad people. And she's like, Kelly's out there lobbying for jury votes as if she's somehow ethically superior to us. No, no, baby doll. That's not how it works. You're not going to look good. So I can see why Sue's mad at that. No, she's double dealing. She knows that she and Rich specifically are not coming off well to the Pagongs. And Kelly is, in this case, able to have her cake and eat it, too, that she is safe and also simultaneously becoming friends with the jury members. Now, she doesn't know that Kelly is also coming across as wishy-washy to the jurors, but considering how careful she is about being villainized for being in an alliance, I can completely understand her frustration here. Yeah, and here, here's Colleen. Yeah, right before the, the challenge here, Colleen has a great quote. She's hanging out with Rich. And one of my favorite relationships in Borneo is watching Colleen and Rich hang out because she really seems to amuse him. He really seems to like Colleen. She's always making him laugh. And she's like, hey, we're going to do a trivia game today. It'll be like we're on a game show. And then she's like, but then I remembered, wait a minute, we're on a game show. And Richard just laughs. That's a great quote. That's a bit. I remember people used to use that all the time in Colleen's Greatest Moments, that little quote. Yeah, and that's also, I think, when there's been a lot of modern discourse about, like, the fairness of Survivor and the rules that they bring in. And, I mean, Jay talked about this in our very first Borneo podcast about the difference between a game show and a reality show. People like to call back to this quote of, like, from the beginning, there were sort of these airs of it being a game show. But, God, yeah, I think if you just had to watch one episode to remind you of how damn lovable Colleen Haskell is as, as a Survivor character, like, this is a great episode for it. All right, so let's get to this reward challenge. This is a first in Survivor history for a couple of reasons. A Mark Burnett, very proud of this one in his book. He loved this one because they somehow snuck Sean's father out onto the boat. It was like a last-minute decision. But uh, So they have to answer trivia about uh, survival stuff or whatever, and the winner gets a night on the yacht. There's a yacht out behind him in the, in the bay. And what I always love about this is Sue Hawk, makes a sound here that is not describable in nature. Do you know the sound I'm talking about? I don't remember. Someone's... Paul, not even you, Paul? The sound she makes. <laughs> I... So... Okay. I need to hear it. I'll do my best. Again, I, I do some impressions. I do not purport to do a sue. But Jeff Probe says, the reward for today is you're going to be on that cruise ship. And Richard's like, yes! And Sue says, "Ah." See, I, I thought that just was the the horn, the the horn that the, that the yacht does. I didn't realize that was Sue. Listen for it. it uh... All I'm all I was fixated on was Jeff Probst saying, "My friends, today decadence speaks," which is such a weird <laughs> Jeff Probst phrase. 
Yeah, the winner gets a night on a luxury yacht. They get Jeff Probst's personal visa card, which we'll we'll do this more in later seasons. This is the first appearance of his visit visa card. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't and, show the numbers this time, unlike in Marquesas. <laughs> and so it's trivia, and Sean wins. Surprisingly, Sean beats Richard on a medical question, which is the kerosene. I always love the kerosene question that Sean knows you can you can safely drink kerosene. To kill parasites. Now, little PSA from the Survivor Historians kids: Please do not drink kerosene. <laughs> no, drink gasoline instead. <laughs> yes, much more thank environmentally you, conscious. Bloom. And Mike Bloom for saying that. Not anybody else. Mike Bloom, thank you. Well, no, Paul DM'd it to me, so I'm just reading it verbatim. <laughs> so Sean wins a luxury night on the yacht, a night of uh, decadence or whatever. And he says, Jeff says, tomorrow, one person may get to join you, Sean. And Sean's like, oh, boy, this will lead to controversies. But, uh, yeah, here we go. The, the whole Sean reward the yacht scene. Yeah, so, you know, we're going to talk about that. This is really, obviously, and one of the reasons why I think individual rewards are a must in Survivor is because there's always drama that comes from the decision of, who are you going to bring on this reward? You know, the, that's where the human element really comes out, where sometimes people make strategic decisions and it it bristles with those that feel personally slighted by it. It's a tale as old as time. Uh, so we'll get this. That Apparently, you know, Sean promised Kelly, hey, I'd pick you for uh, the next dinner. Like, I owe you a dinner. According to Burnett, this isn't really seen. And again, this goes back to the unseen, unshown scene of Sean asking Rich to be in the alliance is that Sean knows that Kelly is persona non grata in the Alliance right now. And so if he asks her on this reward, he is essentially showing Rich and Sue that he is consorting with the enemy. And that's going to put him in a very precarious position. And so we're going to talk about, you know, the way that Sean comes across in snubbing Kelly and deciding to take Rich. But according to Burnett, at least, the decision was 100% strategic, even though the execution made it seem like more of a personal decision <laughs> how dare you say that plans in sean's head do not work out as designed every time how dare you suggest that <laughs> but i agree with that i i 100 think that that was sean's thing you don't want to be seen with kelly because she's on the out so i buy that i think they they kind of gave him the shaft here in the edit a little bit yeah and i think they also wanted to see like you know Kelly, I mean, the, the more interesting path to follow, right, is Kelly's resentment towards Sean. But again, so yeah, the yada yada, there's a lot of rain. But the next day, you know, Jeff hops on board this boat with Sean. They're awkwardly standing there. Jeff uh, glowers at a double rainbow. And then Sean's like, really, again, if we're talking about wishy-washiness, Sean gloms a bit from Kelly here and that he knows that he made a promise to Kelly that he has to renege. But he tries to foist it upon Kelly being like, hey, uh, you sure you want to go? And that just ticks Kelly off to no end. So again, much like the alphabet strategy, I feel like with Sean, there is thinking behind it, but it's not done with the thought of, I want people to vote for me in the end, because this is something that comes across just like very snake-like to somebody. You know, we, we've seen people get voted out over doing stuff like this. <laughs> How dare you, Paul? Sean Kenneth is not dumb. Uh, yes and no. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. I know. Like, I, I, yeah. Again, I I have to stress. We've we've stressed this before, but I, I'm going to stress it again. These are people. These are these are just 
regular people and they have, you know, and they're playing a game, right? And so we see them for 14 hours of 39 days and obviously they're being carefully edited in some way. So, you know, the producers are sort of creating characters, right? And sometimes they come with a character that they've created, uh, see fair play comma Johnny. And, you know, sometimes <laughs> there's, uh, you know, they're not intending to do things or they do a lot of things that aren't shown. There's all of these things, but at the same time, you have to remember that, you know, they are showing a lot of Sean's stuff in a very dopey kind of light. And, uh, you know, we have to remember that Sean is a very, very smart person, but Sean did some things maybe thinking about, you know, his time outside of the game or how he's going to come across. And he made some decisions that in hindsight weren't the best. And I think that in a lot of ways, you know, you know, Sean made some, you know, and in this episode, I think that he absolutely screws the pooch here, like with Kelly and the reward. It makes a lot of sense what Mike is saying for the fact that, you know, he had to ingratiate himself to Richard and Sue by by not consorting with her. But also by that token, you sort of have to sit here and go, well, Sean put himself into this sort of no win situation and he didn't really back out of it with any sort of grace. And so I, I think that, you know, we try to pin these survivors into kind of one dimension or two dimensions. So people are like, Sean is dumb or Sean's mm-hmm. this. But then some people are like, how dare you? Sean is really smart. He's a doctor and all this sort of stuff. And it's like, it can be both. You know, Sean is inc- is highly intelligent and, and probably a, a very, very nice person. But Sean also is uh, sometimes bad at survivor. And, and that's okay too. Yeah, one thing that doesn't get mentioned enough is that Sean is in a very important position here is that that once Colleen goes, there's five people left and the five people are not getting along that well at the moment. Richard and Sue seem to still be okay, but Sue is teaming up with Kelly and trying to do stuff with her. Richard is, you know, attached at the hip to Rudy. Sean could very well be a very important swing vote at the final five where it becomes a three versus two thing. It doesn't have to be four versus one. So Sean is doing his best to be in, in good with everybody. Sean could very easily be the Kathy Vavrick O'Brien at the final five. And maybe it's just because this was the first season and the the Alliance of Four was at least committed to moving on with each other. Though we also, you know, this much like this episode, it could be another thing where Kelly could have gone at the final five had she not won immunity there. So, yeah, Sean is in a really interesting position, which is why it's interesting that he makes the decision that he does. And speaking of this, so we get like a whole montage of, you know, uh, Kelly stewing on the beach while Sean gets treated on the yacht. Apparently, the masseuse that Sean brings on, this was like a running thing throughout Survivor, that anytime you see someone who is supposed to be like a quote-unquote local, it's almost always a member of the production staff. And Sean's masseuse was actually a tape coordinator for the post-production team that they just decided to like put in a masseuse gown and say, okay, I need you to massage him and then smack his ass a little bit at the end. Well, and I feel yeah, like I've, it was I... like, like they needed to stall. They're like, okay, stall a little bit here. You're, you're, you're the masseuse here going. If you watch that, like I can't not see it now. Like she's clearly not a masseuse. So she's like rubbing yeah. his back. Like she's just kind of like pressing her hands like lightly on his back. He's like, Oh, that feels so good. Like clearly not a masseuse. Yeah, and again, this is something Mark Burnett wrote about in his book. This is one of his big grand ideas that he wanted to fly a parent, a loved one, out to the island to meet somebody on a reward. And I'm not necessarily sure it was an originally part of the plan. I think they kind of threw it together. Is that right from the book, Mark? 
Or, um, you, sorry, Mike. <laughs> oh, no, don't uh, conflate us. Yeah, so basically... Josh, the Josh, Josh, you got an idea? <laughs> I mean, so much like it happens on Survivor nowadays, there were, you know, the final six loved ones were literally, like, at the L.A. airport waiting for a call from Mark Burnett as to who was going to send over. So unlike in modern season, they don't, like fly all the loved ones to a location and then say, okay, you're all going to hang out. Maybe one or two of you will be chosen. But it did seem like the initial planning was just for the yacht. And, you know, based on the way that people were sort of behaving, they decided to bring in a little taste of home. And I can imagine that the care packages probably also went part and parcel with that because it's a very weirdly put together reward. And to Paul's point, uh, you know, they wanted to make sure that that surprise happened, so they actually delayed it a whole day. Ordinarily, Sean would have just been, because the challenge happened early in the morning, they would just take him to the yacht immediately, but they came up with something of like, oh no, you know, it's too stormy, so we'll have to save your trip for the next day, and that's when you can pick somebody for breakfast. Uh, that, and that's how they sort of, you know, delayed being able to bring on the loved one so that Sean uh, didn't got the surprise of a lifetime, apparently. Yeah, and apparently his dad got there, like, right before that scene. Like, they mm-hmm. had to fly him out, and you have to go to Kodapin and Kinabalu or whatever and ferry him out to this 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 yacht. And they just made up the captain thing on the, on the, on the fly. They're like, oh, let's have a reveal where Sean well, thinks his dad is the captain. Like, that wasn't planned. See, but you see that from Jeff Probst. Like, literally, Jeff Probst, I think maybe he's just tired at the end of it, and he just, like, he walks and he's like, yeah, uh, Sean, you can go meet the captain or whatever. Like, it's so interesting <laughs> to see the, the lack of effort that Jeff Probst puts into this surprise considering how long of a day it's been. <laughs> In a better... If if Survivor had been a little less uh, clunky the first season, they probably would have done this a little different. Like, we've thought... we They would have put a little disclaimer. We've arranged for Sean's father to be here. So, like, the big reveal is a big moment. I'm always amazed at how small this moment is. Hey, Sean. Oh, hey! <laughs> like, yeah. that, oh, hey, Dad! But his dad had literally just got there. He threw a captain's hat on him, said, hey, Sean, go upstairs and talk to him. And it's very clunky. But again, it ends up being a very sweet scene because we find out Sean and his dad are very close. And uh, we get the breakfast with Richard comes out the next day. And it's very nice that Sean's dad is out here. One of the big first heartwarming big moments in Survivor. Although it's undercut the next day when Sean's dad goes back to camp and he knows nothing about what's happening in the world. <laughs> and Sue dogs him. I... Love him. that's the, the whole, best. The that whole is the best. Of him coming back, like oh. it is so funny. Like it starts with getting off the boat and he falls. Like he's in the water, yep. so it's like. And, and, it's, and it's great camera work where it follows Sean, and then Sean looks back, and the camera like quickly pans back over, like office right. style, to Jim just completely submerged <laughs> in the water. And then he gets up there, and Sean is doing this thing where he's inter- like he's introducing his dad to each person as Sue is like 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 berating him for not picking Kelly. Sue's going back. He's like, hey, this is so-and-so. And you know what? He can't just move aside. This is Colleen. And I, I thought, like, it's going back and forth as he's, like, trying to introduce um, his dad to all these contestants. He's also trying to defend himself because Sue's, like, going in hard on him. Yeah, and then he also, he shows off Super Bowl 2000, which I'm sure got a nice big eye roll from Sue as well. I love that Sue, of all people, the first thing she starts doing is, how's the stock market? How's the NASDAQ? How's it? Like, that's not what I think Sue would be asking. How's, how's that war in Russia going? Did that settle down yet? Yeah, you know, uh, Chechnya. But Jim starts off by saying, guys, I know what you're thinking. Don't worry. Nothing in the news has happened whatsoever. <laughs> I'm not sure what magnitude Jim thought the news was, but like these people are starving for content. That's Maybe that's why Sue's asking about the stock numbers. <laughs> 
<laughs> who won Royal Rumble? Who won King of the Ring? He's like, I, I don't really follow wrestling, guys. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. If I could go back and redo parts of the funny 115, this is a scene that should have been in there. I, did, I, I picked things differently, but this one was dying to be written about. It's like Paul said, I love this scene so much. Oh, this is my dad. Oh, hey, Colleen. Oh, hey, Kelly. And meanwhile, Sue, you should have put Kelly, you dumbass. <laughs> Meanwhile, like shaking his his dad's hand, like so nice to meet you. God, you're an idiot. <laughs> yes, and then Sue says, uh, uh, "What a waste this guy is. He's like Sean, lovable but doof." <laughs> <laughs> I love that she calls Sean's dad visit a waste. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so they all get their letters from home in a care package. It's a nice scene. And from here on out, now it's the end of Colleen Haskell. And we go to the immunity challenge. Another one set at dusk. Very cinematic, set out in the water. I always love just the visuals in this one. It's so well done. It's not especially exciting. And it's not shot especially. As it gets toward the end, it's not shot very... uh, uh, suspensefully, there's no music, mm-hmm. it just ends when Colleen falls off, but like, boy, this is a fun one, a lot of stuff going on in this scene. Well, this is a big moment for Survivor, this is the first ever, like, real endurance challenge, which has become, like, a Ooh. huge tenet of Survivor nowadays, this is the first challenge where it's just no gimmicks, stand there as long as you can, now this is more of a test of balance than I think willpower, but I feel like this is, like, a big moment for Kierhofer and his team as to what is going to be incorporated in individual challenges to come. Yep. You know what this challenge really needed was a big puzzle at the end. That's what they really needed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you people haven't seen this one in a while, they're on these stacked boards out in the middle of the water, probably about a foot and a half, two feet above the water. And they're all standing there. And every 30 minutes, Jeff Probst will come out and with a machete, cut off one of the boards to make it more narrow. And it's basically who can stand here the longest. And again, it doesn't sound exciting on paper, but it's most notable for a couple reasons. One, Richard trying to annoy everybody by singing 99 bottles of beer on the wall. He got, which, what, 34 in at 65 is when he like falls in trying to do his best like Les Mis impression. Yes, that's when they needed a little graphic at the bottom of the screen. 35 bottles elapsed. Yeah, I mean, now, and listen, if they had the editors from Redemption Island, it could have been a thing. But for younger people, I'm not sure that's still a thing. Back like when I was a kid, I don't know if they still do that, but 99 bottles of beer on the wall is a song that you sing if you're on a long school bus ride and you just want to annoy the fuck every out of everybody because it goes on forever and it's repetitive. So Richard is just doing his classic, I just want to be a dick and annoy everybody because they can't go anywhere. But I love that Colleen joins in and she like scream sings it. She's not even singing, she's just yelling it. Well, specifically, I think she's doing it when Jeff comes over to cut the plank off because she's just like, again, screw probes in her uh, very, you know, uh, young Pagong style. So she just like bellows it in his face as he walks over to cut the plank away. Okay, yeah, a couple funny moments here is Rudy starts singing or uh, Richard starts singing 99 bottles of beer on the wall and he's just bellowing it and it's so annoying. And Rudy just nose dives into the water there's like no warning he just face plants and it looks for the all the world like he does it just to get away from richard and, and then we get the lay miz part where richard is you know dramatically throwing his arms up and singing and he loses his balance and falls backwards and i remember at the time that was another huge moment like the rudy tootie fresh and fruity the richard losing his balance while he's singing that was a huge richard moment everyone loved to make fun of but it's it's good that Richard comes out here because, you know, we talk so much about, like, 
sometimes in in the sidelines of challenges you know deals will be made especially during these long endurance challenges but this being the first one we really get a new style of storytelling which is rich giving us some brand new information during this challenge which is hey uh colleen loves irony and the irony of that is that she's actually safe tonight and doesn't need to be up there because kelly's going home yeah this is the big twist here. Everyone knows Kelly's going home, not Colleen. Colleen is not actually slated to be the boot in her tragic boot episode, but a yet another chapter of tragedy. Uh, as Rudy and Richard are sitting there doing a play-by-play, which I love. They're just <laughs> commenting. Well, one of them is. It's more so Richard holding the mic and Rudy just like being a captive audience having to sit there. It's kind of like historians. <laughs> Paul, a sixth grader, did a sixth grader love the slapstick in this challenge? I have to believe this was a favorite of yours. For the longest time, like my favorite survivor challenge for a very, very long time. I loved it so much. <laughs> was like, it honestly, Richard? Like, not, not sarcastically. This was one of my favorite survivor challenges of all time. Was it Richard falling backwards or Rudy nosediving? Probably a combination. I mean, there weren't any, um, you know, women, old, older women falling. So that was definitely um, a negative, but... I did love the falling and the singing and the the whole thing. So was this the first instance in Survivor of a senior citizen plunging to his doom? Possibly. I mean, do, you count, do you count Sonia? Oh, Sonia. Well, that's I not forgot. really a plunge. That was like... All right. <laughs> so, so Rudy falls, Richard falls. Yeah, and so again... Colleen is not supposed to go home this episode. And I know Burnett writes about that in a book and you can see it in the episodes. Richard is charmed by Colleen. He likes having her around. She's not a threat. She's just fun. And so he doesn't want to get rid of her, but alas, Kelly wins here. And, uh, yeah. And so, and just like that, uh, Kelly wins immunity. So now it's going to be down to who's going to be the vote tonight, Sean or Colleen. And again, Sean is in a very important position that he's very close to Richard and he's great Richard insurance against Kelly and Sue in case they get back together. So Sean cannot go. So it really has to be Colleen here by default. And that's why she ends up getting voted out. And also weird bit of product placement in the middle of this was Jeff giving Kelly like her own little reward for winning being like, yeah, I know you're complaining about your feet up here. So here's some Dr. Scholl's inserts for you for winning this challenge. No, 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 the best part is, which I wrote this down, the first thing he says to her, he, all he says is, like, he's a KU1. He's like, what are you wearing to tribal tonight? And she was kind of <laughs> so like... So weird. She was like, uh... And he's like, shoes? Slowly, <laughs> like, tell me slowly. Tell me. I'm just picturing be like, so what are you going to wear to tribal council tonight? Tell me in detail what, what you wearing. What is he, Brian Gumble? <laughs> right. Now, uh, Kellen, please tell me what you're wearing to tribal council tonight. <laughs> yeah, but again, the end of this challenge, it's Colleen and Kelly, and Colleen's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go tonight, right? And Kelly's like, not for me. And then Colleen just kind of falls. It's like, not, you'd think there'd be a little more music, a little more majestic, but it just ends. And then it's interesting because Kelly gets her Dr. Shoals, and then we go right to tribal council. There's like no discussion period right well because i think i could imagine that in having this challenge be at dusk i don't know actually i don't remember if the challenge took place the day before or the same day but it could be very similar to the merge where they just went right to tribal after that and so they really had no time and so like the merge we instead get these like montaged uh confessionals over people walking to tribal council with shoes on thank god where kelly basically 
decides to sort of settle on like this happy medium of I want to camouflage myself as voting with the alliance, even though I disagree with it. So I'm not targeted. How bold and wonderful is that? Yeah, Kelly is checked out. She doesn't give a shit anymore. She's done. And we go to tribal council here. And again, Kelly can't be voted out. So it's like Colleen's the only choice left, really. And again, this is what I was talking about at the time back in 2000. When I remember writing on the message board. What was different about that episode? I couldn't place what it was. It's when you pay attention, you notice there's almost no music, this entire tribal council. It's just the ambient sounds. All you hear is like the jungle noises around and people talking and you people, the rustling of feet as they walk by microphones and stuff. It's very eerie because they're trying not to make it like a TV show. They really make this tribal council seem different. You hear every little sound. It's a weird editing choice. Did you guys notice that or was that just me? I was I'm glad going, I'm here. Jesus. I was going with the silent ambient sounds to go with the. With no, my... that's true. We just yeah. wanted to like compliment your point here that there's no sound going on. All right, but for people, well, it who is, watch and I think these it's episodes it, at it, home. Watch it, it again. Yeah. Yeah, it's very raw, and then like I think it, like you said, there's a somber tone to the entire episode. We don't start off the episode with the big previously or like how the game works. It just starts with previously on Survivor. There's a lot of different, you know, music, different style of, of not having music. And then by the time we actually do lose Colleen, it's a very kind of dramatic end. And it's very kind of eerie when we lose her. So there definitely is a different tone here. But she does go on in a high note. She does get called Colleen on the way out. So thank God Sean made that name change happen. <laughs> okay, quick side story. Now, this is like very much like me telling a story like, like Mario talking about his fan fiction. But back in the day, I used to make my own Survivor shows and have them on YouTube. Before I even put them on YouTube, I did them in my backyard uh, with like little kids. And I probably told the story before. Yeah, I think we told the story about uh, me pushing my little brother down, right? Yes. And he's like a second grader or something, a first grader. I can't remember. Um, but on one of those seasons... Um, that uh, there was a girl playing in the show named Callie and my third grade brother at the time when he voted out Callie second he held up his vote and said I'm changing her name to Cooley instead of Callie uh, because I think she's really cool so uh, there's impacts for this vote across the country <laughs> thank you Paul yeah, the Colleen vote, a lot of people said, what a dork, Sean, just trying to <laughs> make points with her as they vote around. It's, I, don't yeah, know. It's, I, love, I love him specifically saying, like, I'm going to change, I'm changing your name because you're that cool. <laughs> Colleen's like, could you put, like, a Z in front of it or something so you don't vote for me? <laughs> so, yeah, with that, Colleen Haskell is voted out of the game. She basically pieces out on the franchise of Survivor forever. She will make a cameo in the in the finale, but that's about it. But yeah, it's a sad moment in TV. She's voted out. And again, there's no music. It's yeah. all just weird. It's like the producers are saying the Toggies will have to live with this forever. Listen to it. Do not forget this moment. It's it's so much different than any other tribal council. And then Colleen's voted out, and she almost starts crying. It's very sad. And she kind of whispers. She can't really talk because she's kind of broken up. She says, be nice to each other. I'll be watching. Play fair. Be nice. I mean, it's, it's a reason why people loved her so much because remember at this point people were sort of mixed on the idea of like playing this game and being so cutthroat with voting people out for being threats that like colleen was almost bringing that pagong spirit back of like we're having fun we're being nice to each other even though pagongs were not terribly nice to each other overall that it was like a nice way to send her off as quote-unquote america's sweetheart even though as you pointed out she's much more cutting i think that a lot of people remember her to be 
Yeah, she's not so much the sweetheart as she is the last person who will call BS on how twisted and evil this game has turned. She's like the last bastion of a conscience. And so when she goes out and she says, play fair, be nice, like so many things worked out in the producer's favor in this season, just rolled the right way for Survivor to be a hit. It's so astounding that they got those final words from this player as the last person of Pagong. And she goes out and it's a sad moment. And again, there's no music. They don't do the smuffing music when she gets snuffed. It's quiet. You just hear it. She gets the silent clock, the same thing that Gretchen got. And as she goes, instead of everybody leaving tribal council, here's another thing I noticed. They just focus on her torch and they just yeah. hold the shot there with no music. And it's like dreams when he leaves his immunity idol on his bench and they just focus on it. It's so haunting. I love it. Even the final words, I think. I think they use a different music for her final yes. words. Like, the, like Russ Landau almost composed an entirely different song for Colleen specifically. Yeah, I've never heard that music in any other episode of Survivor. Colleen's final words. And that's why, again, at the time I knew something was off for this episode. I couldn't place it. All the music cues are either gone or different. It's just an entirely different Tribal Council experience. And with that, we lose the beloved Colleen Haskell... The last member of Pagong, she has been Oren Ishid. So, any thoughts about the lovely Miss Colleen Haskell? I'm sure everyone's got something to say about her. Okay, I'll start here. I mean, she really just is this like almost this like survivor myth. This like yeah. um, it, it, she's different. It's it's funny that in the, the first two seasons, you know, we have the first two seasons of Survivor. We have this, even though we've discussed how they actually are different in the roles they have and stuff like that. And that Colleen's much more cutting and stuff like that. But you have both Colleen and and Elizabeth uh, from the first two seasons, the biggest fan favorites, America's sweetheart, and never to play the game again. Obviously, Elizabeth has much more, a much longer time in the spotlight afterwards, where Colleen's is much shorter. But it is just funny that this like this number one character from season one never plays again, never expresses interest, and then really, in the case of Colleen, just completely disappears. The fact that I've I don't know of what sightings or, or anything we know about Colleen in her life now. Yeah. Cause I think that, I think for the longest time, the two biggest like elusive people from the survivor alumni community from the early days were Greg and Colleen. And I think Greg has come out of the woodwork a couple of times in recent years, but Colleen is still MIA. I think actually a couple of months ago, someone tried to come up with like a fake account for Colleen and everyone started freaking out because yeah, I mean, I mean, it's one thing to be like, yeah, I don't really want to participate in the show anymore, but I think she disappeared at such a time where it, like, was so easy to not put yourself on social media or put yourself out there that she's literally off the grid. I don't think anybody can find her. I think the people that have talked with her said, like, she's doing fine now. But, I mean, it cannot be stated enough how specifically popular she was from the show. No other Survivor castaways were able to parlay this into a movie role. And say what you want to about the animal and about Colleen's acting skills, but, like, that is insane that someone who is on a reality show as themselves gets a role in a movie purely just by who they are as a person. That, in those days, was absolutely unfounded. And for lack of a better term, like, Colleen is cool. 
she just seemed like that super funny, super down-to-earth person that you could have a conversation with. And so it does make sense why, from an interpersonal perspective, you want to keep would want to keep her around over someone like Kelly. I could believe her when she says that, you know, if she was on Toggy, she would probably win because she stood a good chance of being in the Alliance or getting brought into the Alliance and winning out in the end. It's one of these things where you feel saddened that it, it, she hasn't come back. Somewhere like in the style of Jervis, I would like to see what a 2020 Colleen Haskell playing Survivor would look like. But then almost at the same time, you, you like the fact that she's sort of crystallized in Amber, right? That she is this unfulfilled mystery, the question mark that is always going to remain unanswered because some things are better left to the imagination. And Colleen in Borneo is just such a phenomenon on its own that you don't need that epilogue to her story. I was just going to mention that, Mike. I'm so glad you said that in the sense that, you know, you talked about how Colleen is kind of like this this myth in a lot of ways because, you know, she was on before Twitter, before, before you know, a big social media presence, right? So it's not like she's got this big social media footprint that people can kind of glom onto at the beginning. And she's a person that really hasn't, like, created one. And, you know, you said that, you know, she's this person that everyone really wants to hear from. But the, the reality is, is that there's plenty of survivors that probably would love to be interviewed, but people don't care. But but Colleen is, is a character where people did want to hear from her. And I think that it's, it almost is is a, a wonderful thing that we haven't in a lot of ways. Not, not, that, mm-hmm. not that, you know, um, not for anyone's sake. I mean, hey, I, I think Colleen should do whatever – she wants to do with her life. If she wants to be interviewed by people, then sure, she should be interviewed. I'm not trying to dictate what should happen to her, but clearly she doesn't want to have any contact with anyone in the survivor community or, you know, other things at large. And to me, it's like, it's really cool that she's just maintained that distance. And, you know, uh, I think that survivor fans, a lot of times get sort of caught up in like, this is what I want. And I want to see this and I want this to happen. And it's like, these are people you don't get to dictate their lives completely right like you were on a television show we can analyze what you did and what we saw you do on the television show is it is it the reality of what actually happened on the island probably not but the editors edited this show we're going to commentate on the show and we're going to commentate on the characters in the show that's fair game but like then people want to like you know parasocialize what's happening with these characters and, and these and these people outside of the game and it's like now you're now you're interfering with people and, you know, if people want to be interfered with, that's fine. But, like, Colleen becomes this myth, and I think it's kind of fun that she remains this myth that, you know, people are just like, oh, I, I wonder what happened to her. Why did she go away? She was on The Animal with Rob Schneider. What happened? And it's like, dude, it's her life, you know? Mm-hmm. Just let it go, you know? Here's one thing I want to say, as I love Mike said, crystallized in uh, the fossil or whatever, Amber. <laughs> I don't want to screw it up like John Paliak did. But... So we have this image of... Colleen just uh, being a what 22 year old college student but she's not that anymore and this is one of the trivia things I always point out if they did Exile Island and they did Young versus Old Colleen would be on the older women's tribe the internet would refer to her as their favorite survivor hag that's (laughs) just pointing that out she is now older than Tina was in Australian Outback yeah she's in her like mid 40s now I think yeah I do want to say one thing and I hesitated saying this but I I, I, I want to do it because I think it serves a greater good. Colleen is on social media. People have, have pointed her out before. She doesn't really hide. 
But what's interesting to me is every so often someone will go on Reddit or some other message board and say, hey, I found this picture of Colleen, want to look at it, and they'll post it. And the internet is surprisingly very protective of Colleen. If someone does that, they get yelled at. And I'm actually very proud when I see that, that she's the only survivor I've ever seen. People say, hey, I found this picture of Colleen with her daughter. And like they get yelled at for posting it. They're like, leave Colleen alone. Like it's the one survivor player I've seen fans actually rally around in a positive way. They actually will protect her privacy and her anonymity. So I am telling people, do not bother her. The survivor fans actually still rally around her. And I find it very heartening. And I don't say that about reality TV fan behavior very much, but I am very heartened by the way people will protect Colleen and not bother her. Yeah, I will say, thank God Colleen was never on Big Brother then, because that's a very different situation. Yeah, and again, it's most Survivor players don't get that kind of treatment. Colleen is just a myth on a different level that people, again, they rally around her. It's really cool. And again, I, I, I assume I've never had any contact with her. I don't really plan to. I'm not going to. I'm sure she couldn't give two shits about Survivor. It's like, I was on a TV show 20 years ago. Who cares? Like, I'm sure that's her opinion and more power to her. And like Jay said, I think that's really cool. We have this one person that there was never a follow-up to and we're never going to get one. And you know what? It's cool. It's, I'm fine with it. It's great. I, I love that. All right. Have we said all we need to say about Colleen? Hopefully we've pointed out what a big deal she was. And again, she was not my favorite, but I had acknowledged she was the biggest cast member. Yeah, let's segue into the guy who wanted the career that Colleen got, Sean Kniff. Yeah. Okay. I don't have much to say about this episode, and I want to keep this podcast fairly reasonable in its length. So I'm basically going to skim through this and not going to talk too much about the details because I think this is a pretty boring episode other than... The two challenges. We'll talk about the two challenges and the reward, and then Sean's legacy at the end. You guys cool with that? I have nothing else to say about this one. The only yeah. other thing is we we get the like actual probably the only fight we've had in Survivor up to this point, which is Kelly and Sue like yelling at each other, uh, where Sue accuses Kelly of denying that she's in the alliance. I think Burnett's book makes it feel like this actually happened in the previous episode and mm-hmm. was put into this, which. Wouldn't make sense, but also we're going to get into the mud challenge, and I think if if this was sort of meant to be like a way to resolve tension, then it could also make sense as to that happening this morning. We also get the wonderful visual of Sue shaving her inner thighs. It was a direct close-up as she gives a confessional. I always love that shot. I'm sure, Paul, that was one of your favorites. Oh, easily. Top, top five moment of Borneo for sure. Okay, let's go to the reward challenge. Reward Again, this whole episode is just the Toggy's bickering over what's going to happen in the infighting. It's not really fun to watch. Sean's kind of in the middle. Everyone else is fighting. Rudy stays off to the side. It's just a mess. And they have a reward here to ease some tension, to chill everybody out. This is where they go into the mud volcano, and they get as much mud on them as they can. And whoever collects the most wins a... <laughs> It started off as a bottle of beer. Mm-hmm. This is going to be our reward. One bottle of beer. One of, one of the 99. Yeah, one of the 99. And I know, Mike, you want to explain this in the book. The castaways were not happy about one bottle of beer being a reward this late in the game. Well, that makes sense. Look at what just they, they just experienced, right? Here's a night aboard a luxury yacht with a shower and a massage from a staff member. And also your loved one is coming with care packages from home. To have that go into the last reward challenge of the season is a bottle of beer. They would revolt, and I think they did at the idea of it. So very, very last minute, they had made a rough cut of the first, I think, half 
of the first episode that they were sort of screening around to production members to get their opinion on. And they said, okay, we're going to take the staff lounge, we're going to make it into the quote-unquote survivor bar, we're going to fill it with staff members, and the reward winner is going to get to go to the quote-unquote survivor bar, the authentic bar, and get to watch the first five minutes of the Survivor Borneo premiere. Well, and I'll just jump in here too. I think maybe this is Jeff. I, I I don't know if I don't think it was from the book. I think this is from Jeff telling something too. Is that he was saying? You no, know, Richard was the one that was really like adamant about that. This is not enough. He does. Richard doesn't even drink. Like this is ridiculous. That this is the prize. And so he was really organizing this um, coup or whatever their protest. They weren't going to to participate. And as Jeff says it, he's like normally Mark would say, okay, well, whatever. If they don't want to do it, then that's on them. But that this this period of time was the time where all the sponsors were going to be coming out. So I think right. I don't know Budweiser was going to come out to come look and see how they're integrating into the show, and they couldn't have it that they make Bud, a Bud Light the reward of the the contestants refuse to do it. So that's what really kind of you know gets them into gear. I love the irony that the Pagong's first visit to Tribal Council is a headache for Jeff Probst, and then. They finally get rid of the Pagongs, Persians from the game, and now the Toggies are being the pains in the asses for complaining about the Budweiser as well. It's just like you can't escape it when you're providing shitty stuff on Survivor. It just goes to speak as to how the power dynamic and and you know the the, the we don't know what this game is is doing because you know nowadays if if they were like the reward is a bottle of beer and the contestants were like well I'm not doing the challenge for a bottle of beer they'd say tough. And they would just go with it. I mean, they wouldn't have a challenge that the rewards a bottle of beer. But, um, you know, back in the, you know, the fact that the the contestants were like, we are not doing this. And then it just so happened that the sponsors were there and they sort of caved and all that sort of stuff. It just shows you like the beginning of the show and how they were like willing to kind of bend and meet and kind of figure out everything because they're like, we need to desperately make this show last. Yeah, it's and again, it's one of the perils of running a reality show you're not working with actors and everything's scripted and it's going to play out exactly like everyone knows like the producers were at the whims of the players here and the players were quite ornery this is something i know burnett writes about in the book a lot it's kind of been lost to history there were a lot of potential revolutions during the season where the players were like i don't want to do this anymore i want to quit this sucks you know i'm getting sick i can't handle the conditions this everyone's nasty and they were threatening to walk all the time and so the producers have to bend their bend backwards all the time to appease the players and this of course ties into one of the other controversies that we got into the first episode of historians everywhere there were allegations that the producers were giving kelly extra food a lot of the Toggies to this day still say, oh, yeah, Kelly was getting food on the sly that they were. She was their favorite. They wanted to make sure she could win immunity against us because they wanted us to fall apart. So, like, the players were ornery. They were not yeah. in a good mood at the end of the game. And so the producers have to do whatever they can to make sure this season finishes because there was not a 100% guarantee it would have. Yeah, and they're right near the end, too, right? And this is where people are at their most vulnerable. And so it makes sense that, like, they're more liable to crack here than at any moment. And so if that means refurbishing your staff lounge into a bar, neon sign and all, you're going to do that. And it was a big turnaround on behalf of the art department that they blindfold Kelly. They put her in what is the what is able to be the cleanest garment that she has, which isn't very clean at all. And she sits down at a table with a bunch of peanut shells on it to be welcomed into the Survivor bar and like the, you know, small TV that plays the episode. 
<laughs> One thing I love, just in the challenge itself, it's a boring challenge, but Kelly gets the most mud, she wins the reward, and then Sue laments afterwards, oh, I guess I didn't get the heavy mud. So... <laughs> Okay, so Kelly wins the reward. She goes to the Survivor Bar, which, again, was not a real bar. It just existed. It was just some local thing they threw together. They drove her around in a boat for a couple hours to disorient her and took her to this bar. And she gets to watch the uh, first five episodes of Survivor. which, or Sorry, yeah, sorry for five minutes of Survivor. But I remember in his book, Burnett said, we could not control the players. The players were out of control. They were running the show. And then I was like, what is the one thing that a player who would volunteer to go on a TV show would want? He's like, you know what? They probably have a huge ego about themselves. Let's just show them themselves on TV. And he's like, it worked like a charm. It calmed everyone down. It was like the Pied Piper. It was satisfied their egos to see themselves as TV stars. It also helps that, like, they have, again, these locals, which are not, they're mainly staff members, like, applaud when Kelly's name comes out, like, really feeding her probably even more than that giant-ass bowl of pasta that she was digging into. Or my favorite part is when she walks in and, and Probe says, cigarettes, if you're so inclined. <laughs> like I'm just, like, picturing this thing, like, Kelly, like, smoking up at the, the Survivor bar. Like, listen, I mean, listen, Shane, Shane Powers would do it years yes, later. True, I also think it's true, interesting true. when Kelly, like, opens up to Jeff because it's a weird situation right like we'll see with Boston Rob that some people will go on rewards with Jeff Probst but like this is the first time that he's not in a tribal council or challenge setting and she just like has a casual conversation with him right he's like yeah how are you doing and she's like yeah things are weird and intense you know my one mistake was trusting Sue it's just weird to see a contestant in Jeff Probst like sit down at a bar in the middle of a season and have a conversation and he's actually interested in what she's saying like it's you see him in later seasons he's on a different level than the players on this one he's very much a player he's just talking to kelly like she's a regular person and he's like her buddy it's it's so much of a different dynamic from what we're used to but and then Ke- but he'll, that was apparently his last meal because he'll soon go missing <laughs> yes so but kelly has a good quote here she's like you know we all feel we're just scummy people on you know toggy just doing this alliance thing and breaking all the rules but she's like wait a minute, we're not evil. We just play bad people on TV. Which again, just breaking the wall again that they know they're on a TV show. They know they're making entertainment. All right, I got one. Since uh, Paul was allowed to share a lame story, I will share a lame story too. That <laughs> uh, 2004, I ran a one of these ORG games, these online role-playing games, which it's the only time I've ever been involved in ORGs because they're a mess. They're annoying. Don't ever do them. But I ran one, and I, I had the same experience that Jeff Probst and Burnett had where the players were going to revolt because the game went on too long, and people get testy, and they cheat, and they're all emailing each other behind the scenes. And as a producer, you have to find a way to control your players. And I swear to God what Mark Burnett said was right, that you know, dealing with their egos, giving into their egos is the best way to calm reality people down. As I just said, the winner of this reward gets to see the first five pages of the story I'm going to write out of this, and it calmed people down so quickly. So, again, anybody else ever running an ORG, the best way to appeal to people is say, look, look what you're going to look like when you're famous. I'll show it to you if you win, and everyone calms down. So it, it does back up the research that they did on this show. All right, speaking of that, let's go to the Blair Witch Challenge. <laughs> the, only, the only other thing I'll bring up is, again, yeah. going back to the Sue and Kelly of it all. Because when Kelly comes back, it seems like Sue and her 
maybe the mud helped smooth things over quite literally, but it seems like there, you know, it's water under the bridge, but what does not help the situation, and I think what will be a huge factor in the very next vote, is that Sue tells Kelly in this moment that she is not going to let her get to the final three because mm-hmm. she's too big of a threat. And that is going to loom extremely large two days from now when Kelly decides to vote Sue out and has the one vote that sends her home. Yeah, it's really interesting. Okay, I have a quote, another email somebody sent in about the Kelly and Sue fight and why it's so interesting. And it's a, uh, it's a reader named Spencer Wilson. He was just talking about why Borneo is so amazing, even though, like you said, contextually, the game is not that interesting at this point. It's just going to play out as it's going to play out. But there's things on this season we see that you will never see in any other season. And Spencer wrote, you know, the thing is, I mostly don't care about the survival part of Survivor. Stuff like the camp flooding in Australia or the fire in Amazon, those are stellar for me. But what I think makes Borneo so much more special than Australia or Africa is because Africa focuses just on the elements, period. As in, just the idea that there's people are starving to death while camping, it's not that interesting to me because I can't ignore the fact that they're doing so voluntarily. But he says, the reason Borneo is more interesting is because Borneo isn't just about the elements. Not really. It's not particularly rainy or hot. The elements are just compounding the irritable and emotionally destroyed destroyed finalists. The entire feud between Kelly and Sue is textually based on the game and the elements, but it's obvious that's not what's really going on. They're both personally hurt, and they don't want to admit it. They don't, do it, don't want to admit they're just tired of emotionally terrorizing each other. I just thought that was an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that point is very, very salient. It, it it echoes some things that I've that I've talked about in the sense that, you know, we thought in the first seasons or so that that the show was about surviving the elements, but it's not. But what is it? You know, and and I think that it is an adventure of a lifetime. But I think that's the whole point. You put people out there and you they're starving and hungry and you know up against the elements, and that just you know it it forces everyone to bond quicker and also to be irritated quicker. And I think that that is a good device for what they're doing with the show. All right. And again, the infamous Survivor Witch Project, which is a challenge that modern fans love to make fun of to this day. This is one when people watch Borneo for the first time. They're like, what the fuck was that? (laughs) Yeah, but we talked about this in the first part, that Burnett was so inspired by the Blair Witch Project and this ability to create a fabricated reality out of a piece of fiction so it makes sense but man yeah this is like jeff probes at his cheesiest doing his like sweat covered impression of it and this is also well it's more remembered for his blair witch take off this is also yet another important moment in survivor history because this is the first of the folklore challenges <laughs> where jeff gives like four little myths about the uh the the south pacific gods and they had to run through the woods and answer those questions. Okay, yeah. Okay, let's sum this up for people. Yeah, Blair Witch Project, huge movie in 1999, groundbreaking. To this day, it's one of, if not the, the most profitable movie ever in the budget, the tiny budget, and made millions and millions of dollars. It was a big deal. Mark Burnett, to this day, still calls it the precursor to reality TV. That movie was the first. And so Survivor was his homage to the Blair Witch Project, to him playing tribute to the master that only happened a year before this. That's the timeline you have to remember. And again, Mark Burnett, 
in his mind thinking movies are his competition, not TV shows. He's competing with the Blair Witch Project. So he's paying tribute to the master here, but it is rather dated. And this is where they get the, the tree mail. Last night, Jeff Probst went missing. And they see this little video on a little handheld of him acting like he's stranded in the jungle. And uh, they have to go find him. And again, it's a goofy challenge. They have to hear a little lecture about survivor folklore, answer questions about it afterwards. And it's famous for just being goofy and stupid. And of course, Rudy not knowing jack shit because he can't remember anything. Uh, to the point where, so I didn't know is like an incredible catchphrase. And when Rudy passed away uh, earlier this year, there was, you know, a whole, whole oh, or last year, there was whole, a whole ode to it. But what I also love about it is not even the line itself, but the visual because forget about Rudy not remembering the folklore. Rudy cannot use the camera any like worth a damn. It's he's always in like the corner of the frame or barely in frame when he's saying things. So not only is he sort of inept at answering these questions, he's also inept at being given this handheld camera to use. <laughs> Do you think there was a moment at the start off camera where Jeff had to explain to Rudy what a camera was? <laughs> yeah, he's like, uh, yeah, where are the uh, the reels? Do I have to hold up the big powder thing that explodes when you take the picture? Yeah, do you think Rudy is Ansel Adams? What is with you? <laughs> I, I don't want to dwell into this challenge too much because I don't know if we're going to do it all justice. But I think that this challenge is the perfect example of something that has aged well and also uh-huh. aged poorly. Yeah. it's It's just – it's so much – fun for various reasons and i had the opportunity to talk with kierhofer and he brought up a really interesting point where you know he's like you know we debated doing this challenge for future seasons but when you look at this challenge you look at what was successful about it it was rudy saying i don't know and so when you plan future challenges you have to think okay was that challenge successful because of what it implemented or was it successful because of the people that were involved in it and for this case it was very much the latter so Basically, understandably so, the reason why we don't see this challenge back again is not only the weirdness of giving these people stranded on an island handheld cameras for a challenge, but also because, like, there was no way to really one-up from a pure challenge design perspective the brilliance that was I didn't know. Right, and they do this challenge in some form, right? Because it, it then becomes, for a few years, the challenge where, like, Jeff tells them a story. Mm-hmm. And then they run around and they have to like, you know, do mazes or do some shit and then they get into a place and then they have to answer a question and bring a thing back. So like the challenge evolves. So Kierhofer takes the parts of the the challenge that goes, but but the, the handheld cameras, A, it's dated and B, like you said, we all remember Rudy's I don't know. And we don't really remember like the people doing the challenge correctly because that's boring. I love that you said this aged well and it aged terribly because I totally agree with that. Like it's so dated. That's why I always have to explain, oh, Blair Witch Project was only a year before. That's the reason. But, like, I think Survivor takes itself far too seriously. And I love this challenge because it doesn't. It's so goofy. Mm. I love when Survivor's over the top and cheesy, and I wish they do it more. So I agree with Jay. That part of it has aged wonderfully to me. I love how stupid this is. Yes. It, it, it's aged well in a lot of ways. Like, you look at it, and you can be so entertained by it. But also it's aged poorly because Blair Witch is no longer timely and, you know, lots of other things about it, just the handheld camera yeah. and whatnot. No, like, Well, I think also it doesn't help that, like, Blair Witch, especially in the subsequent years, became, like, one of the most parodied movies as well. That, like, now this could arguably be lumped in with it, even though, like you said, it's it, I think it's Burnett doing, like, a Cicero homage to it rather than, like, the scary movie. I'm going to make fun of them dripping with snot down their noses during the close-ups. 
Oh yeah, yeah, totally. It's out of love. Now, Paul, I have to imagine this was a popular challenge to a sixth grader. Did you like this one? I think I was probably too young to see the the Blair Witch Project, so I I feel like I didn't fully get it. Like I got that that was the thing people were doing, but didn't know the actual source of it. But um, yeah, um, I uh, as someone who then soon after that, rushed probably during that time, had like a a camcorder like that at home to make my own Survivor things and make little kids cry about playing Survivor. I could appreciate the uh, you know the technology used in this challenge. I have I mean, to say, was, just as a weird aside, Blair Witch still holds up. It's a good movie. It's amazing. It's still a good movie. It's still just as frustrating that he lost the map and everything like that. It's just yeah. fantastic. <laughs> Glad I just found a co-host for staff picks for Blair Witch. I was looking for one. Thank you. <laughs> oh, boy. Here we <laughs> oh. Unintentionally applied for it, Jay. Yeah, good job. Oh, but I was going to say, so, Paul, you I know you didn't like the movie or you didn't know the movie, but you still enjoyed old people failing at things, right? That's true. That is, you know, um, part of my uh, my obsession and my love is is old people failing at things. So even if it wasn't as physical, I definitely I definitely got a kick out of it. <laughs> it was definitely a feel good. Although I'm going to bring us down real hard here and saying it's a little harder to watch this challenge knowing that Rudy eventually died of Alzheimer's. No. OK, just pointing that out. It's I, I think about that when I watch that now. It's way funnier to watch him say I don't know to everything in 2000 than it is when you realize he di- what he died of 15 years later. I don't know, because to me, that's a, it's a stereotype of like Alzheimer's in the sense that like I've had I've had relatives uh, die of Alzheimer's, uh, you know, so it's something that I've personally seen. Right. But Rudy not, you know, saying he doesn't know things to me is not that's not a sign of of. You know, oh well, you know, he's he's definitely losing his mind or something like that. It's just Rudy; he doesn't care. You know, yeah. <laughs> and then that, I think yeah, that's that's the, that's the thing because like we'll see this in the very next challenge that like everyone's like, oh, Rudy's gonna suck at fallen comrades, but he beats Rich pretty handily at least, and like <laughs> he almost nearly, wins. He almost wins. So like I think to Jay's point, it's less so that. Rudy, oh God, Rudy doesn't remember things. It's just that Rudy did not give a lick about chasing snakes away from camp or sacrificing a goat at the largest banyan tree. And so he just, it was more so about his like lack of care for it than really his lack of memory. Yeah, I agree with that. It doesn't make a difference to me watching it, but I know some people might think of that watching this episode and point it out. But to me, it's just Rudy does not care. He has no interest in this challenge. Immunity means nothing to him. He knows he's not going home, so why bother? But yeah, one of the signature Rudy Bosch scenes, the I don't know scene where he doesn't remember a single thing Jeff Probst just told him 10 minutes ago. Okay, so Kelly wins again. Kelly with her amazing immunity run where she's winning goofy challenges against old people. But uh, yeah, she's like a cockroach. They can't kill her. Kelly's not going home again. She will make the final four. And really, it's not spelled out in the episode, but this is really the Sophie's Choice moment for Richard Hatch. Is he going to stick with the Toggy Four, or is he going to go with the Sub-Alliance? Because he and Sean were very tight, and we see this in the episodes, we hear about it. You just kind of have to do the math in your head, figure this out. This was probably the toughest vote of the game for Richard, if he trusted that Kelly and Sue would not stay together. Because he could vote out Sue here and stick with the three. But at the end, I think he probably chooses. He does not trust Sean not to just immunity run the end to the end. So he wants to get rid of Sean. That's a good question. I guess I wonder, because if we have the final four of Sean, Rich, Rudy, and Kelly, and assuming Kelly still wins immunity at the final four, 
does Sean go? Does Kelly try to vote with Sean, or do Rudy and Rich have like a two-one-one plurality there? I've always argued that Sean came very close to making it to the final two. I think he could have done it. He had a path. He had to get past this vote. And he was close with Richard, and he probably thought he had a chance. But at the end of the day, I, again, I don't know this. I've never seen this discussed. I have to imagine Richard was just worried that Sean was going to immunity run everything to the end and be impossible to get out. And Sue wasn't. But again, the Toggy Four was not an intact four all the way to the end. That's one of the big Mm -hmm. myths we have to dispel. And Rich even says at the end, we did not get here cleanly. We're here as a foursome, but we were not did not get here as a foursome. It just so happened. And this is the moment Sue could have gone home very easily, I think. But at the end of the day, we lose Sean. We get the tribal council where probes ask Richard, you know, what what will the perception of you be in America when they watch this show? Which is a very insightful question. I love questions like that. You don't see those anymore. And Richard's like, oh, that's really good. I think people will see that I did it as ethically as possible, that I was a good guy, which is not quite how they saw it. Right. Well, I think uh, he'll talk about this. I think his definition of ethics is sort of like conflated with honesty, which as you talked about and as he'll talk about as well, like he never actually lied to anybody in the game. It's just that the things he did, some people might consider unethical in this first season. But he also he's almost like making his final two speech right now where he's saying, I hope they look at me as someone who wanted, got done what he wanted to do from the very beginning. And I do feel like that drive is one of the many reasons why Sue ends up voting for him and giving him that million dollars. Yep. And with that, we lose Dr. Sean Kniff, one of the most eagerly discussed players of season one for a variety of reasons. And I know we all have various opinions on Sean because there's so much to say. And I will, I will direct this that I will start with uh, let's, let's start with Jay this time. What are your final thoughts on, on Sean? I mean, I think Sean is, you know, okay. How do I put this? People in the survivor community seem to like glom or like Stan, people who are like early boots or maybe like people who are like who make the merge but aren't super impactful or something like that and they kind of hold on to this fact of like oh they could have been something if if the game had broken this way or they were actually very they had a lot of personality the 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 game they just chose not to show it and i mean all of these reasons may or may not be legit but i always find that what ifing to be sort of um not irrelevant because hey you do whatever you want to do with your time but uh, you know, you could talk about how the potential of this person all you want. The season's done. This is what happened, and this is what is shown. You can't really go back and do anything like that. But like with Sean, Sean is one where like I think that they wanted to show exactly all those bits of Sean, and maybe there's all these other things that made the cutting room floor that make him look a lot better. But to me, like Sean is as like complete a side character as survivor has seen in a lot of, in a long time. Like he serves this function of like being this unwitting Toggy Alliance helper with the alphabet Alliance. And you can see him like trying to make this, you know, personality of himself. And he succeeds on some level because he made survivor and he made the final five and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, Sean is Sean and he sort of is kind of, portrayed for lack of better terms like like you said a lot of people look back at pagong and say pagong are the dumb ones because they got pagonged but it's like the show didn't necessarily portray the pagongs as dumb but they sure portrayed sean as not being very good at survivor and i think that that's kind of the legacy is that sean is kind of our first you know our first survivor you know 
dunderhead for lack of lack of better words, you know, just that's what he is in this in this season. But he does it so well. And I think he had a, you know, even though it, maybe it was a pill to swallow or something like that, like he's he moved on. He did all right. So, you know, happy ending, I guess. Yeah, he ended up, uh, I know they mentioned the reunion that he, like, had an appearance on Guiding Light, and I think he was, like, called into a bunch of radio shows. I'm pretty sure he had, like, an online show at some point. So I don't think he got, like, the Seinfeld level of fandom that he necessarily desired going into this, but I think he did okay to the point where he was eventually like, yeah, I'll go back into medicine. You know, I don't necessarily uh, need to spend a life in the limelight. I love the role that Sean plays this season. I could absolutely understand why he wouldn't like it because again as we sort of talked about I think there were there were musings behind what he did I think it is a bad I think it's a big misconception that Sean just wanted to vote the alphabet for no particular reason and as a result he was super dumb like there were reasons why he did it as we mentioned they were not maybe conducive to the game of Survivor maybe more so to what life would be like outside of Survivor how he would be portrayed on TV or even the thoughts he had about in the game were maybe a bit misconstrued. But if you're editing this show and you have this brilliant neurosurgeon say and do some pretty dumb things, you know, from the very beginning when he's like, I've got Super Pole 2000, we're going to catch a whole aquarium of fish with this only to not catch anything, you know that is a goldmine for character content. And as a result, I think of all the castaways, Sean's edit is probably one of the most two-dimensional and I do feel kind of bad because, again, like, he had logic, his own convoluted logic, but logic behind his decisions. But if you look at him specifically as the role he played in this season, he was so essential for many reasons. And I think in a show that maybe lacked some levity near the end, I think whether he meant to or not, Sean did serve as a comic relief in some perspective, uh, you know, over the course of the season. And I'm, like everyone in this season, I'm very grateful for what he did and his place in Survivor history. Exactly. How about you, Paul? Um, I will say this. I was holding on to this with my, uh, the, the video I watched from Colleen because I thought this was like summed up Sean in such a perfect way was they were asking her about her legs and her scars and how they were doing and, um, she still had them and stuff. And they were like, you know, did you get any like, you know, help from any doctors while you're out there? And she was like, you know, they, they checked on me and, you know, probably the next, um, had I not voted off, they probably would have had to, uh, uh, do more for me. And they kind of asked, well, didn't you have like, you know, Sean out there? She goes, yeah, Sean was like, kind of, um, he kind of just would use big words to describe what was happening with my legs and didn't really help me at all. So yeah. So like, I love like summing that up as like the doctor was like, Oh, Sean definitely has the, I mean, he has the degree, he has the book knowledge. He could use all these fancy terms to talk about, uh, uh, Colleen's issues, but, uh, you know, wasn't actually super helpful with that. So I think one, that's how I like to think of Sean now after watching that. And two, I think what's like unique about this season that you don't see every season, but this one's definitely the case. You get to the merge and every single person at the merge plays a big role in like in the show there's no one really because even by next sorry mario next season nick doesn't really do anything for me at the you know for the 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 ending of the game and what it actually means like every single one of these final 10 really has a significant role you can make that case for all 16 for the show but i just think like he's an integral part of borneo and um and I think that whether you, you think he had the potential or not doesn't really matter because he played his role perfectly and, and he was a huge part of the show being a success. 
I always remember when Kelly gets to watch the first five minutes of the episode. The one thing I remember is her seeing Sean's intro and she's like, Sean's a doctor. <laughs> Which I just remember her incredulous reaction to that's how he's going to be portrayed on TV. But okay. I, if you go to the reunion show and I always remember this, they say who had the most unfair edit on TV and everybody, almost every single person says Sean. They're like, Sean was really smart. He was really funny. He was fun to have around. We love this guy. Even Sue, when she votes him out, is very complimentary. She's like, miss you, buddy, or something like that. They all say he he got a very unfair edit. And it, like Jay said, it's because he basically steps in dog shit every single time he tries to influence the game. He ruins it for other people. But again, they point out he was a very well-liked guy. And it is this is why it has influenced my theory over the years that I do think he could have won Survivor pretty easily. I think he had a path. He just needed to get past his final five vote, and he didn't at the whim of Richard. But I think, honestly, he had a chance. But I do have to, we'll talk about that in a second, but I want to say that I think Sean was in a very bad position going into Survivor, that he's already a respected neurosurgeon, which is, or a neurologist, which is known as the hardest of all the medical schools to go through. That's the hardest degree to get. So he is clearly an advanced scholar, very smart dude. Most people cannot do that. But if you're a doctor, if you're that prominent in your life where people have to have trust in you and faith in you and you're influencing people's lives, it's very risky to go on a game show where you might look like a liar or someone who's evil or untrustworthy. And so I think Sean had a disadvantage against him right from the start. Now, whether he should have applied for a show like Survivor, that's a whole different argument but i think he had different considerations than other players did that might affect him in real life and i think he knew that and you can see it in the the show goes along he's like i really don't want to be the bad guy that could really Mm -hmm. impact my career he wanted to be a a tv journalist he wanted like a tv personality he wanted to be a stand-up comedian all of those things depend on trust charisma likability so sean is not playing the same game as everybody else and you know, the common wisdom is that oh, he's the stupidest player ever. He was a moron. He didn't get how voting worked. But it's funny because Mike, Mike had sent we were we were sending out emails to each other before this episode. And Mike said, it's interesting. That's been retconned now to, oh, Sean was brilliant. He had this plan that nobody else could see. He was amazing. And neither one of those tr- things are true. It's yep. more in the middle. He's not a moron. He's not a genius who was way ahead of everybody else. He was just playing his own game and he had other considerations And so I think that's the one thing. There has to be a a little more nuance with Sean. He clearly knew the Pagongs were all the alphabetically first ones in the alphabet. He can help vote them out. They won't take it personally. He doesn't look like a bad guy. He doesn't really see in his head it's going to affect the alliance or affect the game because he doesn't think in terms of other people. He's thinking of his own perception. But it's I just think his his uh, the way people discuss him has to be more nuanced. He is not the worst ever and he's not the greatest ever. He's right in the middle doing his own thing. Right. The answer, as always, lies somewhere in between. And that does lead into the question, do you think Sean could have one survivor? Well, I guess if we look at the jury, like, I feel like Jenna is not going to vote for him, right? Because he was the one that led directly to her ouster. Uh, like, I'm not sure... I'm not sure if, if the Pagongs would vote for him, to be completely honest. I think yeah. they were pretty fed up with him and specifically the fact that he like unintentionally stymied their plans that I'm not sure if even the fact of no matter how charming and and goofy he was, they could not get over the fact that to quote Sue, he was a doof 
and the fact that, you know, whether intentional or not, he ended up kind of screwing them over in the process was something that they might take personally to a certain extent. I guess the exception, much like we see from the Pagong jurors themselves, could be Greg. And if that's the case, if, you know, if all the other Toggies and Greg vote for Sean, then Sean wins. But I would not think if he does win anyway, it would be a slam dunk. I think no. yeah. I think that maybe he could get the votes of the Toggies, depending on how he actually got there. About Jay or Paul, do you think he had any shot in hell of winning this game? Like, in general, or how the game played out? Was there a point? As it went along, do you think he could have won as we got towards the end game? I think it just depends on, you know, if he's sitting there at the end with, like, a Rich or Sue... Or Kelly. Or or Kelly, and and something has happened to which, you know, because already, you know, they probably like Sean. They probably don't respect Sean as much as... uh, the other ones, uh, the Toggy Alliances, but you know, if if the Toggy Alliances burned a bunch of bridges and each other, I could see Sean getting votes, like as as a vote against the other person. So maybe, but I also think that Mike is probably correct in the sense that I think Sean is not getting a Pagong vote, which is a problem at the end there, like a massive problem. So. It's a tough road for him. It's just really tough because as you keep bringing up Mario, you know, people don't necessarily vote for, you know, they vote in the end for for whatever reason they want to vote for. But a lot of times it sort of boils down to people want to vote for someone that they can be okay with winning their season, winning their game, you know, and that may not have been the case in the first season as much, you know, because, again, we're all still trying to figure this out. But. I don't know. I, I think that people would have a hard time voting Sean a million dollars. I think, yeah, I think it goes back to that. Even if people liked him, thought I was a good guy, there, a good guy, there was, especially from the Pagan group, just feeling like really frustrated with the decisions he was making. And like, just that, like, you know, that, that quote from Colleen about open your eyes here, Sean. And I feel like that was a sentiment from a lot of them. So I never, I never considered him being a contender to win. Yeah. And again, no one's going to know the answer to this. I just want to float that out there. What you hear always is, oh, he was stupid. He doesn't win. But I think that's more of a debatable question. That's why I just wanted to bring it up. See, I think his strategy was he gets to the merge. He wants to get to the merge. And now he realizes that he's got this toggy alliance and he's not a part of it. He's not been invited. Like He knows it's there. He's not that stupid. But he's trying to play. It's not there because he wants to look good for the cameras. But he's figured out this thing. I can kind of vote for the Pagongs, and I can take no social hit for it because it's not personal. And I'll never vote for a Toggy because we'll never get there alphabetically. So he doesn't really care who's going. And I think his plan is he gets to the end. He makes buddies with Richard because Richard has a huge crush on him, as we learned from the book, that Richard loves Sean. He fantasizes about Sean that Sean knows he has an in with Richard and he thinks if I can get down to the final five, I'm clearly the best athlete there. I can immunity run this thing to the end. People don't remember what a good athlete he was that he, you know, he and Greg fighting out that first immunity after the merge underwater. Sean was really good in the challenges. He thinks I'm against a bunch of old people and Kelly. I can dominate them. And I think that's his plan. And he's like, at the end, everyone else is objectionable. And at least I'm a nice guy who was never mean. I might possibly slip in there and get some votes. So, I mean, who knows what would have happened. And, and he had a nipple ring. He had a nipple ring. Unless we forget. <laughs> Although, there is one variable here. 
He is a neurologist. Neurologists make a lot of money. I can definitely see people saying, I am not giving a million dollars to someone who will make a million dollars anyway. I thought, I, you were totally say he could, I thought you were going to say you could afford both nipple rings. <laughs> exactly. I'm, no, I'm pretty sure at one point somebody did say something along the lines of like, you know, we all need this money except for maybe Sean. And mm -hmm. Sean says something like, oh, I have $250,000, uh, you know, in student loan debts. But yeah, I do feel like, and we talked about this, I think, back with Joel as well, that I, I do wonder from the meritocracy of it all, if there was maybe even from the Toggies a certain perspective of like, you know, what would Sue and Kelly and Rich do with the money versus, oh, what would Sean, the already successful doctor, do with the money? Yeah, I agree. That's a variable you cannot overlook. But in any case, I'm glad we were able to talk about Sean and maybe give him a little depth here and humanize him a little for people, because I know he has turned into a, into a caricature over the years. Uh, and he's more than that. I just again, just go back to the reunion show and watch how complimentary everybody is of Sean. They're like, that guy's really cool. We like him. He got an unfair. He got an unfair edit. And I also think time away from the game helped as well. You know, when Sean was not in their day to day, like giving off corny jokes and uh, foiling all their plans, they might grow some more love for him. When it's clear, as you mentioned, Mario, just by this final group of days, like, everyone's angry at each other. Even, like, Rich and Rudy, who are the tightest pair in the game at this point, are still, like, not particularly steamed with one another, but certainly getting on each other's nerves. The, the, the fraying is definitely showing right now. Yeah, there's no more back rubs. <laughs> Rudy's not rubbing lotion on Richard's back anymore, like in the early days. All right, so we're at the end of the season here, final four, going into the most famous Survivor episode of all time. I mean, there's no disputing that. This is the big one, even though I don't personally think it's the best. It's, it's not, not really that great until the end, I don't think. But I have to point out, I don't know, it's, it's not on the DVD. They left it out. I don't know if you guys have seen this or remember it. The promo for the finale, how over the top it was. Paul, you got to remember this. Well, I... Uh... I don't actually know if I do know that because remember I only had the tape recorded uh, starting at the finale. All right, I have stumped the survivor stump here. The I'll send you a T-shirt. <laughs> the promo for the finale they play it right at the end of uh the, this episode the sean episode they're like next week on survivor an episode so amazing so top secret so memorable we can't show you oh, a yes, single yes. second oh yes, yeah we can't show you a second of it which is yeah. like funny because going into the finale one of the things i always think about the finale is that within the first few minutes of the finale like it loses so much steam because it's starting off and it's like the hardest thing about being out here this many days is the boredom and then we get like a very brief like <laughs> segment on how bored they are i was yeah. like oh they couldn't show us that yes but the the hype train for the survivor finale was off the charts it's so top secret we cannot show you any footage and again Somehow this was not spoiled. I don't know. It's got to be one of the greatest mysteries. And I know there's some jackass spoiler out there saying, oh, well, a couple of us knew Richard won. The vast majority of people had no idea who was going to win this finale. It is one of the greatest kept secrets in television history, how they managed to do that. To the point where, you know, that final uh, post credit sequence in the episode is Richard getting off the plane and going into his car. And I'm pretty sure they said that almost like, you know, you would do with an ending of a, of a movie or a big high-budget high, high budget TV show. They filmed that sequence with all four of the final four mm -hmm. so that if that tape leaked, they wouldn't know who ended up winning because they filmed that alternate ending for everybody. It's almost like Clue 
were like, uh, if you didn't like the Richard take, then maybe you'll like the Rudy take. <laughs> I, this I, is I, how I, it really happened. This is so 2000. I remember the local news station, like leading up to the finale that night, they like went around the mall and interviewed random people in the mall about who they thought was going to win. And they would have like a big group of people. Like they were like, um, you know, like 20 people thought Rudy were going to win. And they went down and it was like, there was like, I was like, everyone thought Rudy, a couple for Sue, a couple for Rich. And there was like, and one like lonely person who thinks Kelly will win and interviewed this girl like by herself sitting on a bench defending Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) This loser thinks Kelly Wigglesworth will win the million dollars. I I love that they feel I didn't know they filmed it four ways. I would love to see those alternate takes for the other people. I want to see Rudy's winner montage where he talks about what he's gonna do with the money. That would be fantastic. Kelly is such yeah. a weird person to kind of go in there because you know when you when you thought about who was gonna win, I think everyone wanted Rudy to win, right? Mm-hmm. But Kelly had been winning immunities as of late, right? So you could see Kelly winning, but also, you know, not that we're thinking too deep on strategy in season one of Survivor, but you have literally heard Rich and them basically say Kelly's going to go home, but they can't vote her out because she's won immunity. So you're basically like, uh, can she win? <laughs> yeah. Okay, that, that does lead me into something. One of the great urban legends of Survivor that drives me insane to no end when I hear it these days. You'll hear this repeated over and over by people who should know better, that I think are generally know how Survivor works and know their history. They'll repeat this, and it's not correct. And they're like, thank God Richard won, because it would have been different. Survivor history would have played out differently if Richard doesn't win this finale. And that is such horseshit. Anybody... Any one of these four people wins the game. It basically has the same effect. It's like, you know, screw the Toggies. They cheated and won this game. Like, it makes no difference. Survivor 2 plays out the exact same way. Everyone's out there making alliances saying, well, we're going to do it nicely this time. We're not going to be jerks like the Toggies. So the game is already tainted. It makes no difference in the greater scheme of Survivor history who wins here other than Rudy would have been, ha ha, look what happened. It didn't work for them. Screw them. Screw Richard and Kelly. Or screw Richard and... uh, uh, screw Richard and Sue. But yeah, that's that's the thing that drives me crazy, that that's mm-hmm. the common wisdom now. Oh, if Richard doesn't win, Survivor ends a season later and because strategy doesn't become a thing. Just fuck you. That's not correct at all. Well, to the point that I believe what you've sort of espoused with Australia, right, was that Tina was just basically saying like, oh, you know, we can't let the bad people win. So therefore, you know, we got to let a good guy win this time. So like, it, I, I don't know, maybe it's not as much of a go-get-em attitude if someone, like, if someone like Kelly went instead of Richard, but like you said, the alliance at that point was, and the Toggies in particular, especially compared to the Pagongs, were so universally disliked across the board with maybe the exception of Rudy that it really didn't matter. The concept of an alliance had already won, and so that was going to affect subsequent seasons no matter what. Whoever won was just an avatar of that alliance, and the person who won just happened to be somebody who vocalized himself as the architect of said alliance. Yeah, it's, again, it makes, the game is tainted. That's all you have to know. It's, 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 people are just tuning in now to see the car crash at the end. They're, how does this debacle of a game show end? Does Richard win or Sue wins or does Kelly steal it from them or does Rudy win and we all laugh? That's the only thing that's this important, that's finale really says about the bigger picture. Sure. It makes no impact on Survivor history. They're literally talking about it at the mall. Literally, there's footage of them <laughs> talking about it at the mall. 
Are those the people on the street? Oh my god, we <laughs> found them in, in a Montana mall. <laughs> in fact, that one Kelly girl came up with the idea for Edge of Extinction. <laughs> so, the finale of Survivor Borneo starts, and again, this is the most famous Survivor episode of all time, the highest rated everything. This is the big one. And uh, what's funny is we almost go right into the action. I kind of forgot that about these old school finales. It's really just them talking around. They're sitting around camp talking about how much they hate each other. And then we go right into Fallen Comrades. Yeah, there's like a small segment, which I can imagine, again, especially uh, as was talked about earlier in the podcast, these earlier seasons focus on survival. There is like a small segment in the beginning where everyone just talks about like what they've been through physically you know you have that uh that image of rich like jiggling his stomach from all the weight that he's lost i think he's lost like 30 something pounds at that point uh and then yeah rudy basically sums up like yeah we had to make an alliance to win and then like you said it goes straight into fallen comrades from there do you like the mop of hair that richard describes him as having <laughs> i know it's like, like barely like a chia pet let alone a mop he's like oh this feels like a mop on my head yeah and i want to clarify because because mario is talking and mario is 100 percent correct here like this is this is still the most watched survivor episode or did australia beat it in some no i think i think australia got like 30 yeah. and i think this one got 50 yeah australia yeah. beat it overall but this overall, is the one biggest episode this, and, th- and that's the thing is that when we say that this is the biggest survivor episode of all time what we mean is is that it was the most watched it had the most most eyeballs on it at the single time that it aired and all that sort of stuff. But and, and you can't discount that. And we're going to talk about how important that is. But also, it isn't to say that this is the best episode of Survivor ever. I mean, that's a subjective question. But I would say that objectively, this isn't the best episode of Survivor ever done. But none, none, needless to say, this episode has to be important. And a lot of things line up really, really nicely. And I think you have to give credit for the people that put this show together because – um, the big moments that come out of that are the result of things that happened on the island, and that's sort of what we're going to get into, is that they had to stick the landing, and they sort of did, even though Rich is not like the most palatable winner, I think, that the that the audience wanted. I will say, to that point, this episode leading into the final vote is actually not a great look for Richard Hatch. You know, I think nowadays we're used to this concept of, like, the survivor winner edit when, you know, it's really built up, okay, this person really played the game so strong and that's why they got the jury votes and won but throughout the finale you'll see there's actually kind of a, a couple of faux pas from rich and one of them is here where sue basically reaffirms to us like well as much as i'm friends with kelly i want to take rich to the end because i know i can beat him and apparently she told rich that and rich was surprised because he had no idea up to this point that he had been left out of any plans for the end and so that's one of those like rare moments where Rich Hatch, who was a, a pretty key center of the spoke spoke of the wheel in terms of information, was rarely left out of the loop. And I guess, I mean, good thing it, it happened to work out in a way that it did, as we'll get into with the vote. Otherwise, we would not have seen Richard Hatch as our winner here. Yeah, that's one thing we mentioned earlier in the podcast. The foursome did not get here as a singular unit. And that's one thing that's really been lost to time that everyone says, oh, you just made an alliance of four and there was no strategy. It just went to the end. But that's really not the reality of Borneo. So that's I'm glad you brought that up, that it was not clean at all. And they all just basically hate each other at this point. Right. Which which is the fun irony in the sense that if they weren't piggybacking off of a lot of Sean's votes, you know, that that 
you know, and, and Pagong had their shit together, like this may have been different, right? Like if you're, if you're going to go purely strategy. So I think that is an important thing to talk about is that we talk about the Toggy Four. They were the Toggy Four, but they weren't like the tightest of alliances that's ever been seen. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they Kelly, are, Kelly they're is, not the Toggy Four now. Yeah, I mean, Kelly has been like the assuming boot for the past two rounds and now going into this round as well. So like, as we talked about back during the Colleen episode, the Toggy Four was not going to stick together. Uh, in fact, it was pretty much the Toggy Three at that point, and Kelly was sort of a, a hanger-on. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm excited to get into this because there's a lot to do with, with this tie vote, but we also have to talk about the pure cheesy nostalgia of the first Fallen Comrades Tremel just being Polaroids that production took of these players before <laughs> setting them off into the game. <laughs> okay, we'll get to that. But I, the one thing I did, uh, Jay had mentioned what a big deal this this episode was and how many viewers it has. And again, this really has to be reaffirmed that we had 30 million viewers watching this show until the finale there's where you got 50 million viewers that means 20 million people turned tuned in for this episode that weren't even survivor fans that's how big this episode was there were more non-survivor fans watching this than most series finale shows period all right that being said here we go into the finale which again is not was, would not have been seen as the best of the best at the time. It's really, how is this train wreck going to end? And we get the, yeah, the shot with them just having lost all the weight, Richard, Richard jiggling his flab, which he says, I've lost 30 pounds on the island, but I actually lost 100 pounds before Survivor. So there's a lot more going on with Richard's weight loss. But yeah, Fallen Comrades, the traditional Final Four challenge, or I guess Final Three in Australia, but the traditional final challenge uh, in Survivor before the big endurance one. And uh, yeah, this is the first one. And this says a lot about the players. Very interesting in how this plays out. Yeah. And, and I think I have, I'm just jumping real fast here and say that I think my, I think if I have the story right, those Polaroids that they give them in the, in the tree mail was, it was taken post game while they were at Ponderosa because <laughs> this was the only, this was the only season where they kept everyone was stayed till the end there. So I don't know where I heard this, or it must be in some of the DVD special features that I've watched several times but didn't watch recently, is that they were like, oh, we got this Polaroid camera, let's go around here, and they took all those pictures of them at, at Ponderosa. So that's kind of a fun behind-the-scenes yeah. tidbit. Yeah, because the one thing I noticed was that I think Dirk had a beard in his, so either <laughs> it was taken after the game or, like, Dirk had a beard. They took the picture, then, like, months later he shaved it before going out onto the island so it would grow in. Or maybe, much like Rudy, they used Sue's razor to shave his face quickly before starting the game. Yeah, and the lead-up to this challenge, if I recall, or I, I, I know this, people may not remember this, but it's they're all laughing at Rudy, because Rudy has no idea who the fuck these people are, because he never cared. And so Rudy's like, Sean was a doctor? And like he has no idea, and they're laughing. They're like, yeah, Rudy's not going to do real well in this challenge. And it's hilarious, because Rudy almost wins this challenge. <laughs> But to, to Jay's point, it's a different kind of not caring, right? That's what you said earlier. Yeah, it's it's not like a, a – well, what I was saying is you were talking about like the I don't know, right? And you're like, is mm -hmm. it because, you know, Rudy, you know, gets Alzheimer's and, and whatnot uh, later on down the road? But it's like he just – Rudy's not sweating the small stuff, you know, and that's that's the whole thing is, you know, he, he generally knows who you are. He knows how to deal with you, but – He's not sitting down going, tell me about your life. Tell me about, you know, what is, what is what is the journey you're going on right now? Because I'm all about it. 
Like, dude was a Navy SEAL. Dude was a military guy. Like, you know, just the facts, ma'am. Let me know what I need to know, and let's move on. Well, that being said, I think, and I may, we'll get into the questions, because, like, I think some of them are, you know, uh, pretty detailed with these players but a lot of them are you know circumstantial like who competed in this challenge or like you know what state is Jervis from and I do feel like Rudy whether he meant to or not from the gray matter is able to pull out this knowledge when someone like Richard by far gets more egg on his face here where in front of the jury he's like yeah I don't really know you guys yeah oh yeah totally but I mean again I I think I think that's lowered expectations in a way too because I think everyone sort of doesn't expect Rudy to do well so like when Rudy does well everyone's like oh my god what a surprise whereas like you know Richard is like Mr. Details right and then Richard's like I'll be honest I wasn't paying attention because it wasn't important to me and it's like oh 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 my god I especially love the one the child the question that Richard misses where he doesn't remember that he voted for Stacy at the first tribal council (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's the very first question is who received only one vote at the first tribal council and Richard didn't realize that he was that one person who, you know, the s- subtle reasons, I don't know exactly what they are. You'd think that he would remember that emblazoned uh, in the history of time that Richard Hatch, the key mastermind of Survivor Borneo, cast the one vote for Stacey Stillman, but he totally forgot it. Yeah, to sum up this challenge for people, Kelly and Sue just dominate they just answer back and back to the point that they have a tiebreaker at the end rudy is right behind them he only loses by one question he actually does really well even though he even says going into it i don't know these people and i don't care and richard only gets like four out of ten and although yeah he really looks bad here to the point that he oh okay here one of the great boss moments in survivor history one of these great forgotten moments where nobody knows jenna's kids names In fact, Richard doesn't even know she had kids. <laughs> and Kelly pulls off, not only do I know their first names, there's their middle names for extra credit. I had written that down, like such a such a show-off moment there. Like, oh, oh, these ones in the parentheses, those are their uh, middle names. And I wrote their social security numbers next to it, too, just in case, you know, I, I, I sketched them. You know, we didn't get to see your video, so we don't know what they look like. But this is how she described them to me right here. I also, I love one of the elements of this challenge is, like, the lost and found part. Where they ask, you know, uh, who received one vote and like who ran the Treasure Island way, and then Jeff just pulls out a shirt and goes, "Whose shirt is this?" And it's one of those things that complete, take it completely out of context. Just seems like Jeff found it lying around and was wondering <laughs> whose it is. Yeah, legitimately, we need to return this. Uh, can you help us out? And did you catch Rudy's great moment there? That's how he tries to determine who owns the shirt. He smells it. Yeah. Maybe he's like a dog in that manner. Like he track. That's how he tracks them. Yes, Rudy's a bloodhound. That's what. That's what he did in the navy. He he, he followed criminals. Yeah. What did you do, Rudy? I was a bomb sniffing dog. <laughs> that's about if right. If only he'd written a poem about that. <laughs> All right. Anyway. So uh, so so yeah. So they get to the very end of the challenge, and Kelly has her one boss moment where she knows Jenna's daughter's names and middle names, and you can see Kelly got Jenna's vote right there. That's the Jenna vote. But at the end of the challenge, it's Kelly against Sue, and they have one tiebreaker question, which is, what is Sonia's last name? Mm-hmm. And already, Sue's at a disadvantage, because Sue doesn't know Sonia's first name. She still thinks it's Suna. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I do love the irony that Sonia ends up screwing over Sue at the end of the day here, right? She gets her revenge for butchering her name. The chicks think I know her last name, but I don't. <laughs> I'm like, could you not just guess like Smith or Johnson? I mean, just really, just to write, don't know. Like, come on. <laughs> no, that's, that's what thought. That's what she thought her last name was. Sonia, don't know. Sonia, don't know. 
I do wonder how often a person's last name came up in the first three days, though. Like, that seems like that's a legitimately difficult question. That might not have come up for everybody. I mean, maybe that's why. I mean, I, we don't know, actually. I believe behind the scenes, Jeff was calling Sonia Christopher using <laughs> the whole last name adage right until she was voted out. <laughs> so they get to the end, and it's a tiebreaker. And this is a legitimately s- suspenseful challenge. I love the ending of this. And then Sonia's name comes up, and screws Sue, and Kelly wins. And Kelly's won immunity for like the fourth straight time or something. And she has her little happiness drum beat on her pad because she knows, you know fuck these people. I hate the Toggies. I'm going to screw them all over. And now for the first time all game, this is a big moment. People, this has kind of been forgotten over time. What a big moment this is in the finale. The Toggies have to finally eat each other. And you see Richard, Rudy, and Sue. And like, this was a big moment if you were watching at the time. Well, also we should remember, you know, as much as we talk about nowadays about Survivor sort of uh, forcing the hurry up, this is one of the first big ones. I know we talked a couple of times about like them seemingly going to tribal council straight from a challenge. But here, it seems like they are not given any time to talk. It seems like as soon as Kelly wins immunity, Jeff says, okay, get up, it's time to vote. And I think that's, you know, it's not coincidental that, you know, aside from the Gretchen vote, the most complicated, interesting vote of the season comes from here, where it ends up being our first 2-2 tie. You know what this scene really needed is as a moment where they all get up and whisper for about 10 minutes and we don't hear what they're saying. That's what this episode really needed. Anyway, so it's a 2-2 vote. Again, uh, yeah, Kelly wins. That great Survivor music starts. Watch this scene, and I love that music cue when it pops up and Kelly wins, and now they all turn on each other. And again, Richard and Rudy are not going to vote for each other, so they both vote for Sue. That's all they can do, and Sue votes for Richard because, you know, fuck Richard, and Kelly votes along with Sue. It's a 2-2 vote, two for Richard, two for Sue. And here we come to one of the most interesting moments in Survivor history, uh, where they have to revote and Kelly switches. And this is one of those things that not a lot has been written about over the years. A, why did she switch? And B, what happened if she didn't switch? Yeah, so to answer the latter, my assumption has always been that the purple rock would come in. Because considering that was used at the final four you know, three seasons from now, and that's when they decide they realize that they kind of fucked up and then move into the fire making, that that's something they would sort of have brewing in the moment and in that case kelly would be safe no matter what because they'd still have like the pascal rules of rudy sue and rich would draw rocks but to that point i don't know how much kelly knew mm-hmm. what the rules were i think i was trying to remember what she how she described it either in the finale or in the reunion as to like you know maybe she thought that if she had forced a 2-2 tie that like rich and sue would fight it out and then sue would probably still go anyway but i'm not sure exactly what she thought would happen i know and this is again i think it's jeff talking on one of the i think it's on one of the dvd extras he says i think it's him who says it he says something to the effect of oh in the first season we didn't have really the tie rules like you know figured out like we did now and back then they would have had to do some kind of challenge against each other to block like it seemed weird to me. I've heard it from either Jeff or Mark who mentioned it, and it didn't seem like things like how the tie came to be later on. You know, it's not the. It, it didn't seem like it was the trivia that they gave in Africa or the or the random draw in Marquesas. It seemed like there was something about um, some kind of challenge or something, but I, I can't fully remember. Yeah, it's amazing because. 
because for as well documented as Borneo is, again, this is easily the most documented season where everything's out there. This is the one moment I don't entirely know what was supposed to happen because it's, I've seen different stories change over the years. What have you heard as like the major, the major ones? I have heard two stories. Like Paul said, they, we were going to do some sort of a challenge and that's all Jeff will ever say. There's no specifics. Just there was going to be something. And I've also heard we were just going to go until somebody yeah. changed their mind. We could have gone all night. And I've that story has ping-ponged over the years to where I don't believe either one of those. I'm not right. sure they knew what was going to happen. That was the official line for a long time was that they they didn't like – they couldn't conceive that there would be a tie, which I'm just sitting there going like <laughs> – like the vote is even like basically half the time. Like how yeah, have you not like <laughs> figured this out, right? And And – you know, apparently they were like scram. You know, according to Probst and all those people, when when they were doing this story at the time, it was like you know the vote comes back tied, and they were basically you know kind of going like, oh shit, you know, it's a tie. What do we do with the tie? And they're like, I don't know. They'll just keep voting, and they'll just they'll eventually tire out. And I'm sitting there going like, are, are you serious? Like we're using the Homer Simpson boxing method of like <laughs> voting? Yeah, you tire them down until eventually they fall over. <laughs> Yeah, but that really legitimately does seem to be what the plan was. But yeah, but nothing we can say here. We can't definitively prove anything, and nobody can. Nobody really knows what would have happened. All I can think of is Rudy was never, ever, 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 ever going to switch that boat. Mm-hmm. And I know Kelly probably realized that. She's like, this is stupid. Like, are we just going to wait here until Rudy has a stroke as he goes up and votes on the 900th time? Like, is that what we're doing? So I think she just decided it wasn't worth it and she could probably beat these people in a in a final immunity challenge. I think but they're, they're, I have they're... to say, I have to say, mixed in there, I'm sure Kelly was so happy that she was the one who fucked over Sue and voted her out. Well, there's that. I think that there is a personality trait within people, and I think I have it. You know, and some people don't. Well, I, I feel like if I ever played Survivor, which I've gone on record to say I never really want to ever. So, and I'm weird, I guess, that I have a podcast or I'm on a podcast about Survivor and I'm like, I don't want to play. I've never sent in a video, all that sort of stuff. But there, you know, like you said, Rudy was never going to change his vote. And Richard was probably just going to stick to his guns because he knew Rudy was going to never change his vote. So he's just like, well, we've got these two locked in, right? And there's a, I think there's a personality trait within people where they're like, well, something's got to change. I guess I'll be the one to change it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, that's the whole thing is that, you know, maybe it's because I was raised by, you know, empiricist, you know, scientist people where it's just basically, like, hey, you know, you can change your mind if new evidence comes in and all that sort of stuff. So it's just, you know, I, I'm very, I'm not gullible most of the time, but I, I am one of those people where, like, you know, you can give me a good argument, and I'll just be like, okay, I'll think this way then for a while. And it's like, I think Kelly just, like you said, it was like she sort of wanted to vote for Sue anyway, probably somewhere in the recesses of her mind. And then, you know, she sort of looked at, you know, things weren't changing, and she's like, something's got to give. I guess I'll give. Well, let's also remember, and Kelly's going to bring this up at the reunion, like one of the very first things, is that, remember, Last episode, Sue flat out told her, I don't want to take you to the final three. And so Kelly would say, like, yeah, I'll keep, I can keep Sue with me. But if I move on with her, there's no chance she's going to take me. So either situation, I'm going to have to win out. And it's it's so important can... that you say that, Mike, because I think that this is something that doesn't come up all that often. Right. You know, I think it's a thing that like modern players and modern fans look at uh old school survivors, you know, like, oh, that was so basic and oh, they didn't do these things. And it's like, I think that 
part of learning this game, just as we learned that, you know, you can have a voting alliance and that's probably a good thing because it guarantees votes, right? It's this idea of being upfront and honest with people about votes, right? What's a thing that is said a lot in these early seasons and all of these early seasons when someone's like, if you're going to let me go, could you just let me know beforehand? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's the whole thing is I think Sue's just basically like, I just don't see myself taking you to the final two. I don't think it's a good idea. And it's like, you know, to me, a lot of people felt that was a very honorable, like upfront thing. That's a real bro thing to do is just to tell someone that they're going and, and or that I'm not really planning on taking you to the end because I don't think I can beat you. But it's like we've learned that once people have this knowledge, they're going to then look for other options. Right. So then people are that's why blindsides are a thing. Right. Because, you know, if you're te- if you're telegraphing that you're that the person's going home. They have the uh, the opportunity to you know try to change things up or you know try extra hard at the immunity challenge or something like that, and it's important because I think that it goes unnoticed because people notice it in other seasons, but here in Survivor Borneo, the first season when we're still trying to figure out Survivor, Sue told Kelly, "I'm not going to take you to the final two, and then the final three or the final four vote is literally up into Kelly's hands, and it's like it didn't do well for Sue, and this is a lesson. Yeah, ask Lex sometime how how well that works out for you, warning people they're going to go. Yeah, or Alex <laughs> Bell. Uh, yes. th- those are all sort of follies. I guess, but the big thing I think it comes down to is Kelly switching her vote. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm so intrigued as to why, if that knowledge does exist in her head, as we're talking about, why she still decides to vote with Sue on the first vote. Because like we've talked about, she has to know that Rudy and Rich are in lockstep. And so she knows it's going to be a 2-2 tie, whatever that means. And in, in switching her vote, all she's doing is just proving that point of wishy-washiness to so much of the jury that she is literally voting two different ways over the course of one tribal council, showing how much, you know, her, she changes her mind at the drop of a hat. That is a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. I'd never thought about that before. But yeah, it, it literally backs up what they think of her. Although there is some nice symmetry here that uh, Sue gets yelled at earlier by Stacy, you switched your vote. And now Sue gets to yell at Kelly, you switched your vote. So I like that little symmetry. Yeah, and for much as we're going to say about, you know, Sue obviously giving one of the most quote-unquote bitter jury speeches ever, she's all smiles when she walks out. I don't know if she's like immediately concocting this diatribe against Kelly or if she's just stunned that it actually happened. But as I mentioned before, especially compared to Rudy's mood going out, Sue is pretty chipper. Beware a smiling Sue Hawk. That's all I'm saying. She is. Yeah. All grins. Oh yeah. Just happy to be here. Oh, good job, Kelly. Oh, good job, Richard. Yeah. It's been fun. Bye Jeff. And you like, Kelly, you're going to hear about this later. You know you are. She's just happy she wasn't driving a truck to Chicago every day. <laughs> yeah, so Paul, you lived in Chicago. Can did, you like yeah. vouch for that? Is 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 it survivor-esque conditions or even worse than survivor-esque well, conditions? As someone who uh, is from Montana, lived in Chicago, moved back to Montana, when people ask what's the the biggest thing you uh you that you like miss and don't miss about Chicago, I would say driving around Chicago and I'm not even someone from California here. So I don't think it's any worse than California driving, but um, I do kind of get that, like that knowing that stretch that goes into Wisconsin into Milwaukee every day, that does seem like a completely sucky job to every day be driving a truck from Milwaukee to Chicago every single day of your life. So I, I, again, I, I love Sue, including this very specific real life, you know, real world example. So on, on par with her. I, I think the difference, cause I've driven in Chicago. I've never lived in Chicago like you, Paul, but, 
I've, I've lived very close to Chicago and have driven. I have relatives in Chicago and some of my best friends live there as well. So most of the time, if we're taking a little jaunt, we're going to Chicago. And I grew up in L.A. And, I, you know, L.A. is one where, like, the freeways are a nightmare because they built these freeways and that's really the one way you can kind of get around from place to place. And so the freeways are just congested and Chicago's freeways are pretty bad too, but I would say they're a tad better usually in traffic than LA's freeways. Chicago's surface streets are way worse because I think LA, you know, built their city with cars in mind a little bit. So Mm -hmm. some of those things are better, but Chicago has these on ramps on, especially like I think on the Ryan freeway, like there are on ramps where you, where you, where when you're merging onto the freeway, you're merging into the left lane, or I don't know if they changed that, but they used to have that. That's a nightmare. That's super scary to like merge in the left lane to like on, on the on-ramp. It was good which... prep for Sue for the game. You know, <laughs> yeah. Moves like that. yeah, essentially, yeah. She, she knew her way around merges because she does that every day. There's a fun story from Burnett's book that speaks towards one of the many traditions that Jeff espoused during the the Survivor Witch Project. Uh, where actually, I mean, in general, Burnett is actually surprisingly scant with his words on the finale, despite it being such a big momentous event. He actually kind of like yada yadas through a lot of it. I can tell um, you why when you get to the end. I know why. Uh, it's because he was writing it while he was out there. Well, yeah, just keep going. I'll, I'll add the trivia at the end. Um, but basically, so they talked about it that, you know, it happens to be that the person who gets voted out is ever since the merge had their torch blown out before it was properly snuffed by Jeff. And that ha- continued through Sean. Apparently that night, Richard's torch was blown out. Uh, and so from the gods perspective, that meant that Richard was supposed to go and he nearly did go until Kelly switches her vote. And apparently after Sue went an hour after tribal council, the set was struck by lightning uh, and nobody was there, so nobody got hurt. But the local guide said that apparently the island gods were angry that the person they selected was not voted out. And so I guess the island gods were hashtag blindsided and decided <laughs> to take out their fury. You should have seen their jury speech to Kelly. It was even worse than Sue's. <laughs> no, yeah, what what I've, I remember, because I've, I've read, read the Burnett book when it came out. And it came out like two weeks after the finale of survivor that finale is so rushed in that book he he barely writes anything about it but here's a little insider tip for people who want to know more about survivor history mark burnett wrote a second book have you seen this one survivor the australian outback it's like the the bush guide to season two. Oh yeah i've heard about that the book sucks it's terrible it's just a promo for season two like oh perhaps this person nick might win oh perhaps this girl elizabeth it's like a waste of time but the first 20 pages of that book are basically him redoing the final tribal council from the first season. So there's a really good in-depth coverage of Mark Burnett covering the final tribal council from Borneo at the beginning of the Australia book. It's the only reason to get that Australia book, but it's actually much more interesting than the end of the first book. Oh, that's weird. I'm glad he sort of put it in eventually as like a mea culpa, but you would think maybe if the book was released like nowadays, they would have just added like an addendum to the first book covering the final tribal council because it seems odd to place you know the epilogue to the first book within the prologue of the second book (laughs) yeah but i always remember that that first book is so good that is by far the best survivor book that's ever going to exist but they really rush that final tribal council it's only like four pages for the entire thing it's it's so it's a waste of, of reading all right so with that we lose sue hawk the infamous truck driver who i personally think is the star of the first season is the best character is my favorite was probably the best and strongest player what do you guys think about sue in retrospect 20 years later best is an interesting word 
Because I'm going to amend it and say that I think Sue is maybe not the best, but definitely the most interesting. Oh, let I me change think... best to dominant, most dominant. That's what I'd say. Well, yeah, and I think that's also part of Sue's personality first. It's a combination of her personality, her brusqueness, which I think might have been played up, as she said, but also combined with the fact that she really was one of the ringleaders of this alliance. You know, I, I'm so glad that we did this rewatch just to remember how much the, the alliance, really the pillars were her and Richard. And there was a lot of dynamics as to how they, you know, were working together initially and then split apart a bit and then came back together out of necessity, ended up voting for each other just out of pure circumstances here at the final four. But, you know, I think Sue's reputation, I think, unfortunately gets lumped in with two things. It's snakes and rats. And it's what happens to her in All-Stars, which are both overwhelmingly negative moments. And I think it unfortunately kind of obscures a lot of the great stuff that Sue brought. You know, the, the fact that she is sort of like a hard-spoken yet crafty person. It, I, I was so happy to see her in this season. And of course, her time is not over. We're going to get to like her big moment, as I mentioned, uh, you know, a couple of rounds from now. But she was just such a great presence there is only one Sue Hawk there will only ever be one Sue Hawk as much as people might decry casting for trying to you know have lightning strike twice by casting certain types of people there will never be a Sue Hawk again and I'm so happy for that because she is one of the many reasons just like we talked about with Sean she is a big reason why the first season ends up being so so successful between being an orchestrator of the Alliance from the very beginning, you know, like Paul said, changing her vote at that first tribal council, arguably making one of the first strategic moves of the series in general, but also serving as a key mouthpiece and a nice little also like straight person for comedy's sake to all the craziness that's going on. Um, I think, Sue, I, like I said um, at the beginning of this podcast, I think like what really comes down to Borneo in the end is it really is the story of Richard versus the story of Kelly. But we, we don't get to either one of those storylines without Sue. Sue is such a huge part of supporting Richard in everything he does and really making the Alliance um, work. And for a long time, she had the power in her hand to really turn things on him. And then she also is such a huge part of the Kelly story as Kelly comes to terms with what she's doing in the game and regrets it. It's Sue that really, you know, um, doesn't let her get away with it and really, you know, fuels that uh, that final chunk of, of Kelly's story. So I think that's really important too. that. I do agree with Mario that Mario that I feel like she is like the best, most important figure in Borneo because I feel like she props up Rich and Kelly. And I also think Sue is such a good embodiment of what the show set out to do and why the show was successful is you're pulling someone from, well, in this case, middle America, someone, you know, so you could totally, I mean, she's one of a kind, but she's totally someone you can imagine drives trucks in Wisconsin and is, could be your neighbor. And um, I think she embodies taking that kind of person, putting her in um, an element that you maybe wouldn't think she'd succeed at, but actually had all these really good skills that came into the game and was absolutely hilarious to watch. So I think Sue embodies what Survivor, like what the, what the point of Survivor was. So um, I'm really glad that we got to spend some more time talking about Sue because she's an amazing character and player. I mean, I will go so far as to say this because I, I can't necessarily say it twice. I agree with Paul, and I think I've said it before, that really this show, is it, it, it does boil down to sort of Richard versus Kelly in a lot of ways, whereas Richard is you know, stay the course, right? And Kelly has gone through this journey. Kelly's our journey character uh, through this 
through this show just with with how she feels you know her internal struggle with the game and what her alliance is doing is kind of our struggle with what we're seeing and all that sort of stuff but i feel like even though this is rich in kelly's sort of story and ultimately this is rich's season for everything like that i would go so far as to say is that sue hawk is the most integral part of survivor borneo like Mm -hmm. she is absolutely as paul said she's absolutely necessary for the alliance to go because she you know, Richard is just, hey, I'm doing this thing. I'm staying course. I'm doing all these things. But, you know, it's Sue, a lot of Sue confessionals where we get a lot of, you know, what's kind of going on, what the thought process is. You know, Sue is kind of, you know, telling us the thought process of how you go about and do things like like in that first episode where she says these chicks, I think I'm voting with them, but I'm not like she is sort of showing you how you go out there and you meet people and you say things and maybe you do some different things and you have to go with what's what's best and and you know, Sue's relationship with Kelly, how this sours, and we're going to get into the snakes and rats speech and all that sort of stuff. But like Sue is so important and, you know, you you wouldn't necessarily put her on a Mount Rushmore of like, if you were doing a Mount Rushmore of survivor or something like that, but she is so, so important. This season is so important to get right. If this show is to continue. And I think that Sue is such a major part of this show going right. Now, obviously, the big question is, could Sue have one survivor? I don't necessarily know she ever could have won a jury vote, but I'm going to take what both Jay and Paul said, that this is really the Richard and Kelly story. And I'm going to invert that a little bit and say, you know, I'm glad that Richard won. Richard winning was a cool moment. It did a lot for the show. It really it was nice that his archetype won for a change. But oh my God, would it have been a better story if Sue snakes him at the end and wins? Because that's how the story has kind of been set up to this point. How many times during the season have we heard her say, you know, the city slicker is going to fall because he thinks I'm a dumb redneck. We're going to take him out. I'm going to snake him. I'm going to dog some guy. Like the whole storyline all season has kind of been set up that Richard, that Sue is going to win, or at least Richard is going to lose. Because I think it actually makes a better, more satisfying storyline if Richard has a downfall because he's the cocky one. So like if the island gods were mad that night, I can kind of see why, because, oh my God, if Sue had won... The producers have gold on their hands because of all these confessionals she's been giving since day one, including that one on the first episode where, you know, corporate world ain't going to work out here in the bush. And then she switches along the way to become corporate, and then she outs- outsmarts the city slicker. I-, I can't even imagine how much better of an ending that is even. Well, I'm trying to think of, like, in a Kelly Sue final two, who ends up winning there. You know, do do the Pagong still vote for Kelly? Mm-hmm. Uh, does Sue get Rich and assumingly Rudy's vote as well? I think, and again, it might come down to like someone like Greg, for instance, as to who he liked more. And in that case, maybe Kelly wins because Greg famously did not get along with Sue mm-hmm. whatsoever. So I don't know. It's a good question as to whether Sue would be able to win because I, I maybe may a Sue Rich final two, but that again could be a close one. And it depends I, on what, what talking is happening because I think Rich votes for Sue, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that a lot of the Pagongs that were going to vote for Kelly vote for Kelly. Um, with Rudy, it's like if Rich is telling Rudy, like, you know, and if, if Rudy is listening and basically like, ah, that Kelly's worthless, I'm not going to vote for her. But there's also a fact of like, if Kelly, you know, Kelly have, has won the final immunities, right? And you know, with with Kelly winning all these things, maybe you know Rudy votes for the person who beat him in a thing. But he didn't. He, he didn't do it. He voted for Rich, who was his bud. But I guess that's the out, right? Is that he was going to vote for Rich at the end anyway? So it, it's an interesting question: a, a Sue versus Kelly final two. And 
it's it's a real it's a real interesting one, and I don't know if it's so clear cut either way. Yeah, I I don't personally think Sue could ever win a jury vote because she's so off putting. But again, I personally just have to think the producers wanted her to win. Like if Rudy can't win, Sue is the one that's the richest storyline if she wins. Again, that's not really based in reality, but just from a storytelling perspective, boy, she was a fun character in this season. Absolutely. Although I have to say, I always see these polls come up on message boards. And again, Sue, one of the great forgotten great Survivor players over the years, is I see this come up all the time with modern fans. They're like, besides Richard, who do you think was the best player in Borneo? And I'm like, what, you, you mean besides Sue? Like, how is that not, has she not number two? I don't get how that could not be number two, but she never comes up. No one ever picks her as one of the better players of Borneo. I, I think it unfortunately comes with like the conflation of her with larger, more dramatic moments. Yeah. I mean, in the reunion, uh, Brian Gumbel does like a series of polls of the audience right after the finale. And one of the questions is, who would you have voted for? And Sue finishes by far last out of the top four out of 2%. And my assumption is that she was probably at, at least a far, I don't know, maybe at least double digits, before, at least 10% before the snakes and rats speech happened. And yeah. then she just completely sours her reputation in front of everybody. So yeah, it is a thing where like, if you haven't watched Borneo recently, you don't necessarily remember that the Alliance is Sue and Rich, you know, really leading the charge and sometimes in different directions. It's more so, well, Richard was the face of it and everyone else fell in line. And that is far from the truth. All right. Any other words about Sue Hawk before we move on here? Because I, I really want to make sure we cover her correctly, because I, I think she's the one character going into this, her and Sean, that I really wanted to talk about. Well, I think we can save the rest of our suit talk for snakes and rats as well, because I feel like it's it's impossible to talk about her without talking about that as well. Yeah, I always forget. We haven't actually had her signature moment yet. <laughs> okay, so Sue is gone. We're down to the final three, and now we get uh, the first instance of one of my favorites, of course, Rites of Passage, where the players wake up and they have to do this little ceremony and walk through all the torches and give their thoughts on everybody. And uh, obviously, you know my thoughts on this. You guys, when you watch Borneo, do you still think this holds up, this whole rites of passage part? Sort of. I forgot that this is not what was a quote-unquote traditional rites of passage, where usually it's you walk past each torch and an eliminated player, usually they give like an excerpt from their day after interview or their final words that talks about them with a montage of them. There's actually no uh, no voice clips during right, this rites of right. passage. It's just they they do a montage of people with the torches uh, appearing as they walk by. Maybe that's a happy medium for Survivor nowadays. I think a big complaint from people is like, why don't you bring this back? Some people say, well, it's because of time. If you want to yada yada through the people who left, this is an easy way to just flash through the torches and show their picture for half a second. You don't even have to, to spell their, their names right. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. oh, poor Sonia. Yeah, for people who don't know, that's what they're talking about. Sonia's name is misspelled on her torch. Oh, yeah. I believe Stacy's is too. I think they she's you, supposed to have why? an E. It doesn't have an E. And Sue's is in the shadows. You can't even read it. It's just a big black the black name tag. That's it. Yeah. Well, it seems like the quote unquote staffs, like the row of staffs, is just like a footnote. Because uh, I think the star of it by far is the fire coal walk. I remember that was like a big. Part. And, you know, we're not going to get really any other large, momentous versions of uh, Rites of Passage, at least like, like not like a multi-stage one in the future. It's just going to be like, do this one thing with the torches. This is, you know, get hit by palm fronds from guys saying Sandivar over and over again, and then douse yourself in mud and then walk on some coals for 10 feet. Yeah, I mean, 
man, it's tough <laughs> because, I mean, we, we we do love we do love us some rites of passage, right? And I think that with the lore that Survivor is building, especially in this first season, you know, they're trying things, right? You know, they bang a gong, go into tribal council. You know, there are things that they tried, have a conch shell that that don't stand the test of time, right? But they have this ritual, and what I like about this ritual is. It sort of does two things. Number one, it's this whole thing of like, you have made it to the end, you know, and we need to acknowledge that, you know, that this has been a journey, right? And then the second thing is, is that it acknowledges, you know, all the people that you stepped over to get this million dollars, which I think is something to sort of acknowledge along the way. It's tough because I think that, you know, I always tell the students in school because, you know, when students are mad because they're in trouble for something and they're like, that's a that's a bullshit rule. That's a stupid rule. Why is it a rule? And I'm like, it's probably a rule because somebody before you ruined it for you. <laughs> and, you know, rites of passage is one where I just think that through the years, the survivors contestants either didn't take it too super seriously after a while uh, or and they couldn't edit it as such or all these other things. And they just, you know, and so they were like, well, we don't need it anymore. And the show has kind of, you know, gone past it and it's not this sort of thing. And they're like, oh, time. That's why we can't do it time. And it's like, of course you could do it if you wanted to. But I think that it got ruined along the way some way. But I don't know. I think that for, for lore building, I think this is such a, a, a fun thing to do. And I, and I agree sort of, you know, with, with your suggestions, I think they could do it now, but I think they could do it in the sense that like, you know, you, you can even just show like a brief as they're walking to the last tribal council, maybe they just walk through, you know, a, a little gauntlet of, you know, the fallen snuffed torches of everyone, you know, you can, they can, the camera can just flash on them. We don't even need to have like the, the five or 10 second montage of the person, you know, you can just, it's just mm -hmm. decoration on the way to the next finale or something like that. I think even that is enough, but I think that these are fun. I think it's just, you know, I don't want to say care because obviously a lot of these early seasons, as Mario pointed out uh, earlier in this podcast about how, you know, Burnett is using this like a film and not, you know, like, like anything else. But uh, I think that I'm very long winded right now and I'm, I'm very, very sorry about that. But I, I, I think that, you know, this sort of long attention to torches is, is, is something that's fun and, and especially important for these early ones. But but as the as the show has gone on, I think that you know it's it's less and less sort of a thing with the show because the environment goes away, the theme goes away, a lot of this stuff kind of goes away. Well, it ties into something I've been saying for a long time is that the whole point of the show has changed. So so these rites of passage doesn't really have a reason to exist in modern Survivor because in the old days, every vote out is sad. It's a tragedy when you lose one of these people you've been you've come to know and love. So it's like that's why you would have a rites of passage. You can honor them. In the modern game, it's like, yeah, we got this guy. Yeah, we got her. Yeah, that person got blindsided. Like, it's not sad to vote people out. It's like, yeah, gotcha. So like, there's no point to remembering them. So I can see why it's gone away because the show doesn't do that anymore. It also doesn't help that you know the vast majority of people that are on a season nowadays make up a jury. And so, so you're not really yeah. commemorating people when you're just going to see them at Tribal Council. Okay, let's see. Before we get into this final immunity challenge, one thing I wanted to point out is this whole ceremony is over the top and cheesy. And I love it. I love Survivor being over the top and cheesy. I just love that stuff. But if people don't know, it's a, it's a cliche in leadership communities or management training to do this coal walk. That's mm -hmm. a very traditional thing. I don't know if people haven't worked in an office setting don't know that. But 
when they train managers, they train upward management, this is a traditional thing to do. They'll take them to a, a fire walk thing, to conquer your fears, to become a leader, to show your transition to a manager. So, like, this is a very cliched thing, and I could, I could totally see why Mark Burnett would love this image as uh, his little ritual that they've become survivors. They've become the people at the end. And I know in his book, he really hypes that up as well, how excited he was that they were doing the coal walk. That was, like, the most important part for him. Richard says, if you, you can say, see, see it in the commentary, he also says, you know, because they were like, you know, slather yourself with mud and go over there. And you can see Richard was like, I don't want to cake myself with mud if we're going to be in the sun for a challenge. <laughs> you can see he literally just like puts two streaks on himself and yeah. goes through. So it's it. Richard's even thinking about future things, even with this and probably because he's done this in a management training. So they're like, you're going to walk through coals and blah, blah. And Richard's like, oh, God. Yeah. That was very cliched for that time. That's what people need to know. Walking through the coals, that's what they, it's a team building exercise. Walking through, the, that stuff. walking through the coals and also watching that, uh, did you ever have to watch that video with the Pikes Place uh, fishermen like throwing the fish and, you know, it's like something where, you know, they love their job and they're committed to it. And that's how you should be as a teammate. And it's like, <laughs> I'm not, should they have shown, should they have shown that video as they walk to, the, to, the, um, to the idol? I know, yes. right? <laughs> the idealistic uh, specimen of human being when they can throw fish to each other you've yeah. reached the ultimate ideal you're gonna walk across cold you're gonna go over to this tv set and watch a brief five minute video where the pikes plays fisherman throws and catches fish and then you'll get to your final immunity challenge yes it's survivor the hr challenge <laughs> yeah. that would have been awesome if that had been the final challenge where they just throw fish until somebody drops it Okay, let's go to the final challenge, the hands on the immunity idol, my all-time favorite Survivor challenge. I have long espoused every season should end with this challenge. It's so cool. There's no advantages. It's just who wants it the most. Three people up on little platforms with their hand on the immunity idol, and they just stay there until only one person's left. And it's so primal, and I love it. And again, it, it works out so perfectly in this first season. It didn't have to, but it ends just so perfectly with the, we'll get to Richard's speech, I guess. Yeah, I guess to start, uh, Kelly once again flexing from her fallen comrades win here by mentioning Marge by name. And even Rich didn't know Rudy's wife's name, and he was his closest ally there. Yes. Way to win points with Rudy, Rich. I didn't even know you had a wife. <laughs> I'm just like wondering, did like, does Rudy just not talk about his wife at all? Does he just say, like, my wife? But they had, like, the video challenge, too, right, where she talked to them, like— it's pretty bad, Richard. I, I'll be honest, though. I wonder if Rudy didn't want to talk about his wife in front of Richard. And, and, I, and I think it's funny because, you know, like Richard, you know, forgets that Jenna has kids. And it's like the whole like video is that, you know, Jenna couldn't see the video from home with her kids. And she was like babbling about her kids. And I just have this like image of like Richard going, well, I never saw the video. There's no proof you actually had children. <laughs> <laughs> Jenna, stop lying to everybody. It's clear you don't have children. <laughs> yeah, so the Lindsay situation two seasons beforehand. So, yeah, Rudy does not want to tell Richard about his wife, Marge, despite Richard being the one person Rudy knows who will not steal his wife. So there you go. So in the challenge, Richard, of course, as a callback, right, the start suggests they sing 99 bottles of beer, which I always like that little callback. And Rudy, surprisingly, is not on board with that, so they don't do it. Well, you can't dive headfirst off of this one. I mean, he could, but it would be a tragedy. It would end in an obituary somewhere. All right, so uh, they all stand up there. It's so iconic. Again, I can't say enough about this challenge. The cinematography, the way they shoot it. It's just like a movie. It's right on the beach. It's so cool. 
and uh, it goes two hours. They last out there. And they're just kind of talking, and they're not even rotating yet. They're just standing there with their hands on the idol. And now at two hours, 30 minutes, is this or, – or no, two hours is where the oranges come out. Is this the first instance of Jeff Probst tempting people with food in a challenge? Yes, I believe so. Like yeah. in the middle of a challenge. He's not doing like the this is what you're playing for thing. This is the first time he says step down and you can have this. Okay. Right. And I, I think I think that with everyone who watched the finale, I think there was some like reception to this. I thought it was kind of funny and like liked it. So I think that's why we definitely see it come back. Yeah, you he's know, torturing the them. Season. He he's wafting in front of their noses saying like permeate your soul. Maybe I don't know. Maybe he was huffing too much of that coal fumes to say that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here we go. Two hours and 30 minutes in, one of the signature scenes in Survivor Borneo, or Survivor, as it was known at the time, is Richard says, you know, two hours and 30 minutes have passed. I've been standing here thinking, and I'd just like to do a little speech. And they're like, fine, be my guest. And he's like, well, good luck to both of you. I hope you recognize what I've done to get you here. And with that, I'm done. And he steps off. And I, I swear to God, if you ever wanted a moment where 50 million people all pumped their fists and said yes at the same time, it was right then. You could practically hear everybody in America saying, yes, vote him out now. I love this moment for so many reasons. But I guess, again, I sort of misremembered it because it has come out since that, you know, the reason why Richard does this, and he talks about it a little bit, but good on him for sort of showing his cards when he's in front of the other two, that the reason why he steps off is because he doesn't need to win it. He knows that Rudy is going to take him because they made a deal, and he figures that if Kelly wins it, Rudy is much more well-liked than he is, and so she's going to give herself a better chance of winning by bringing Rich along. So it's a win-win situation, and I just love this move. The, the best strategic moves are often the most simple, and this really did feel like one of the first like three-dimensional moves, sort of like the Gretchen vote, where they really changed the paradigm of you know not necessarily building yourself up as a GOAT, but acknowledging your position and knowing, you know, your chances going in. There there really wasn't a lot of talk about that outside of what we were just talking about with, like, Sue saying maybe she can beat Rich. There, the action of this show was not focused on necessarily who is going to beat who in the end. But Rich, though he may not know Jenna has kids or Rudy's wife's name, he does know what the jury thinks of him and what sense he has of, you know, the place he has in the game. And in that moment he basically knew they both need to take me if they stand a chance of winning. And so what do I need to do? And, and of course, in true Richard Hash fashion, he does it in, of course, a big grandiose, like, dramatic TV fashion of, I could hang in here for uh, until the cows come home, but I don't need it, so I'm going to bow out in, you know, uh, a big blowhard style. Yeah, and this is a moment that's discussed all the time, one of the great strategy moves in Survivor history, but... As Mike alluded to, that was not the way Survivor was talked about back in the day. Nobody talked about strategy. They were just like, oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen next? Like, it was just fascinating to see what's going to happen. So, yeah, Richard is a step ahead of everybody in this game. He, he, he takes himself out of the challenge. Every single person, like, again, I would have killed to be at a viewing party in 2000 to watch them burst into cheers as they know Richard cannot win now. But everyone in the audience is like a couple minutes behind because they haven't figured out Rich isn't going to be voted out. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. Just a it, great moment overall. It, it, it's fantastic. And I think we talked about it, you know, all the many years ago that we talked about Borneo in our brief podcast about, you know, what a brilliant move that this is. And you think about it all the way through. And this is really Richard's only play, because if he wins immunity, he's actually in a worse spot because then he has to, like, choose to take Rudy. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and 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 you know, we we we've we've talked about all these sort of scenarios before, but I think that something that 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 needs to be said is that people look back at it with these kind of like modern glasses and go, oh, well, of course, you have to think of it this way. And it's like, we weren't thinking it that way. And if I can use an analogy from something that I use all so often here in in, in the podcast, you think about it like in terms of professional wrestling in the sense that, you know, when people first start watching wrestling, maybe they're kids or maybe they're new into it. You like watch the wrestlers wrestle and you like are caught up in the in the in the pageantry of it and 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 the you know the match and you sort of are invested like oh i hope this person wins or i hope this person loses and someone sort of nudges you on the shoulder and says you know it's it's fake right like it's predetermined you know like they they they're not like actually competing in the ring they're actually like working with each other and you know the the outcome is predetermined and and you're like what what and you kind of go through this weird dichotomy and so a lot of people that watch pro wrestling now they they see it more like in the strategic terms is like they know that what they're seeing isn't necessarily real, but they're watching how real they can do it. And then they're looking at everyone's storyline going, is this make sense for the storyline for this person to win here? Does this person get a title shot here? Does this person do this? And so they start analyzing the storylines behind the, the, the gimmicks and the matches and everything that's going on. And that's kind of what survivor is that nowadays we talk about, you know, everyone's strategy and what, and what their voting path is and, you know, how, how many, you know, who's their jury vote and how they're going to get the, the, all this to the ending. But in survivor Borneo, we were literally just along for the ride. Like, Oh my God, go Rudy. <laughs> yeah, no, that's literally what most people were saying. It's like Richard can't win. No way that guy's going to win. What's going to happen though. Yeah, but that's kind of a modern take is that, well, you know, Richard could have just got to the end and he beats Rudy in a jury vote because Rich made all the moves. That is not the how people would have looked at this at the time. It is not a guarantee Richard beats Rudy in a jury vote. No. It's I don't think it's even probable he beats Rudy in a jury vote. It's that's like one thing. Like modern audiences have a hard time that. with that. Sorry, what was that, Paul? No, it's laughable to hear that now. Like, well, yeah. they would have valued Richard's strategy over Rudy's. Cause what did Rudy do? No, Rudy would have won because... They liked him more. Yeah. Richard had to get Rudy out of there and he had to do it without screwing him because Richard screws Rudy. If Richard wins this and votes out Rudy, boy, does he lose Rudy's jury vote. And boy, does that look bad to every single person on the jury that he screwed over this old man who followed him around like a puppy dog. Like that really, it's again, that is not a good move in 2000. That might be a good move in 2020. It is not then. So that's the whole thing with this move. Richard was ahead of the audience. He found, as Jay said, he found the one path of victory he had, slight as it still was at this point. He was not a favorite to win. He managed to get Rudy out of there with having no blood on his hands, which is fantastic. Although, again, Jeff Probst points out, you know, he still kind of screwed you, Rudy. And Rudy even admits he kind of did. But it's like a technicality. He didn't do it overtly. Right. Doesn't uh, Jeff say, like, you engineered a quit? Mm-hmm. Which, you know, it's it's uh, when you compare Richard to BB, it is really like apples and oranges. But it also goes back to this idea of, you know, strategy not being considered necessarily the quote unquote good thing in season one when things were a bit more from an audience perspective about meritocracy. This felt a bit more underhanded. But to Jay's point, even like a couple of years later, people will look at it as, wow, that was, you know, a really smart move on his part because he gets done what he wants to. He's sitting in the final two. Uh, no matter what, he gets rid of the biggest threat in the game, and now he's going to have that person voting for him because he wasn't the one to vote them out. 
Yeah. It, at the time, it was would not have been seen as a great move by everybody. It would have mostly been seen as kind of a weaselly move, but on a technicality, he was technically not wrong. And again, it's it's kind of like Kathy and Vesepia in Marquesas. Well, just because we agreed not to vote each other doesn't mean we have to agree to stick together all the way. And and, and like we're, we're going to both make it to the final two. That wasn't my plan. That was your plan. Oh, I'm shocked. <laughs> so that's kind of the thing here. So Rudy accidentally loses his concentration for a moment and he drops his hand as they're rotating. And just like that, Kelly has won her fifth immunity challenge in a row, which Jeff Probst helpfully points out is a record. Yeah. Jeff on the first season is a record. Good job. <laughs> you beat Greg and Jervis and Rudy and Richard who got a record one immunity challenge. Now yes. I'm thinking back to like the original Olympic games with like the Athenians and someone does something. They're like, we've never seen that before. An Olympic record. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Jeff hyping it up as Kelly wins again, not to take it away. She's won five immunities in a row when she would have been voted out almost five times in a row. So good for her. And with that, Kelly now has the fate of the game in her hands that uh, no pressure. You can either vote out Richard and possibly lose or vote out Rudy and possibly lose to this blowhard Richard. But you actually have a decent chance against Richard or you could line up like a <laughs> lambs to the slaughter, vote out Richard, which you want to do, and just get slaughtered by Rudy in the jury vote because he's made no enemies. So uh, that's Kelly's choice now. I mean, Rudy literally says after he's voted out, I don't blame her. So yeah, everyone knew the writing was on the wall here to the point where they don't immediately go to tribal council, but it's a pretty uh, montage, you know, afternoon before they end up going. Where we do see Super Bowl 2000 finally get burned on the last day. <laughs> Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it's pretty straightforward, right? They go to tribal council. Jeff does try to drag it out a bit by talking through, like, Kelly basically talked to me through your rationale. But, yeah, you would imagine as someone who, again, as, as much as she might be talking about, like, I don't want to lose part of myself, as they've said, with the money in sight, you want to focus on winning. What are your best chances? You're guaranteed to sit on day 39 and get at least $100,000. What's going to help you get to the million? And, of course, from that perspective, it's a no-brainer to vote out Rudy. Rudy himself understands it, which is why he's just so gosh darn mad at himself that he's going to spend his jury question the next day just apologizing to everybody for him letting go of the post. Yeah. And with that, we lose Rudy Bosch, maybe the big breakout star. I don't know. It's, I've been saying that about a bunch of people, maybe the big breakout star of Borneo. But yeah, he was absolutely a big deal at the time. Huge deal. Huge jury threat. That's one thing that's not mentioned over the years. Well, Rudy didn't make any moves. Well, guess what? It didn't matter. People liked Rudy. He was a war hero. He had a good story. People liked him and his wife. They felt bad for him because he was a little slower than everyone. He would have crushed Kelly in a jury vote. Not even close. So with that, we lose Rudy, uh, Rudy and let's eulogize him. Paul, I'm most curious how a sixth grader or however old you were enjoyed the crusty old war veteran Rudy Bosch. I don't know that I I mean, I feel like Rudy is just a hard one to talk about because he is just like this legend. He's no longer with us. And it's just like, it's like hard for me to even remember like a time, like how I felt differently before, like before we knew he was a, a legend. But I, I'm guessing if I can remember correctly that it was kind of like almost like um, the path his tribe took that when first watching Rudy, I you know thought he was 
old and grouchy, wasn't going to last long, you know, those types of things. But then much like the Tagi tribe takes him in and, you know, really he becomes a huge force in their alliance. I think that's kind of what happened for the viewers too, that by the end, like we were saying, he was the number one person you were rooting for. So um, I, I think my feelings were probably similar to what, you know, what we saw play out on the actual show. How about you, Jay? I'm curious what your thoughts on Rudy are at this at, at 20 years later. 20 years later. I mean, I, I think it's it's it it's weird because nowadays in 2020 standards, we look at Rudy and we just are like, wow, he was just kind of a weird curmudgeonly old man uh, and all that sort of stuff. But in 2000 eyes, you know, just the fact that you know he he seemed to like you know accept Richard and to you know talk about how he had to adapt to the kids and stuff like that. You know, I think that he really ingratiated himself to everyone. And I cannot stress enough how much America was rooting for him going into this final, uh, going into this this final that 50 million people viewed into. And most of them wanted Rudy to win. Like he was far and away uh, America's favorite at this point. He would have won the fan favorite vote and all of that stuff in an absolute landslide. And I think that that needs to be recognized. Yeah. Again, going back to that poll, who would you have voted for? It ends up being 45% Rudy, 42% Kelly, 11% Rich, and 2% Sue. I do think the bump in Sue and loss, uh, the bump in Kelly and, and, you know, downgrade in Sue comes in the Rats and Snakes speech where people feel bad for Kelly and give her more points. Because to Jay's point, Rudy was, from a popularity perspective, the one runaway guy. And I honestly think from a perception at the time... Rudy, from a lovability perspective, almost had, like, that Archie Bunker nature to him, mm-hmm. where, like, he is curmudgeonly, and he says on PC things, and he's a little stuck in his ways, but what he says is so damn funny that it warms you up to him. You know, he is so deadpan and so good with the one-liners. We've quoted them throughout our, our time here in Borneo that it just makes you want to, like, laugh and smile at him, even if he won't smile back at you. And as we've talked about as well, I think Rudy, in retrospect, is also a very surprisingly savvy person and player. He's the one in the first episode who says, there's more of me than there's more of them than there is of me, so I'm going to have to ingratiate. He's the person who, like, you know, in the post-merge, is like, yeah, I'm just, I just need to sit back. And, you know, we've got this alliance taken care of. I'm just going to need to keep my head low and let the other people dig their own graves to the point where what he was able to do would have won in the game had he kept his hand on that post and, you know, uh, been able to, to win that final immunity challenge. And so I give him major props. Much like Sue, I think he is an, a very underrated player in what he was able to pull off, especially considering he nearly went in Episode 3, how he was able to rebound from there interpersonally and strategically and go on from there is pretty astounding. But Rudy Mania cannot be understated as well, right? He got his own action figure. I think he came out... I forget if he came out with his book before or after that. He hosted a, a couple of reality shows. He was a one of the major celebrities of what was already a pretty big celebrity cast. Yeah, and he auditioned for the second season. That was a big deal. Oh, Rudy wants to play again. Uh, first off, I would have loved to hear Rudy's answers in the final Tribal Council if he'd been one of the final two. That would have been hilarious. 
But the another thing is that we we talk about what a big deal Rudy was at the time, and nobody here is exaggerating. He was massive. Like he was probably bigger than Colleen. People loved Colleen, but Rudy was bigger because he was he appealed to a more broad demographic. And again, people forget the U.S. Army was the the main sponsor of this first season. They had a huge military audience, and having Rudy there at the end was a big deal because they brought in helped keep that audience in there as well. But as Mike pointed out, this is something I hear gets used against my arguments all the time that gets used against Rudy. People say, well, if you look at the finale, they took the poll and Rudy got 45 percent and Kelly got 42. So Kelly was almost as popular as Rudy. And I'm glad Mike already dispelled that because that's such horseshit. There's no way it was even close. The only yeah, was, reason it, the, the, the poll was taken, yeah, was taken literally after Kelly was raked in front of the coals in front of 50 million people. Yes. There was so much sympathy going on in that moment. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that poll was taken literally live during the finale right after Rats and Snakes. Of course, everyone's sympathetic to Kelly. So there's a huge bump. But I can guarantee before that finale, it would have been like 90% Rudy, 10% Other, and 0% Sue. <laughs> There's, I, I think that Kelly gets more audience appreciation in a lot of ways because you have to remember that I think that especially early people because, hey, we're along for the ride. We don't know that wrestling's fake yet. You know, Kelly is on this immunity run. And I think that people winning challenges and winning immunities really resonates with people. And I'm not saying that that makes Kelly more popular, but I think people were along the idea of, oh, Kelly could win this game because she won all these immunities. Yeah, and that's true. Yeah, just the hearts and minds were Rudy. That was Rudy. With, yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it also helped Kelly's case that, again, you know, she was sort of playing the audience the way that Sue was accusing her of playing the Pagongs with her talking to us about, like, I feel bad for being in the Alliance. And remember, the audience's perceptions at that point were Alliance equals bad when you have someone saying, I don't want to be in the Alliance anymore. Like, I know. I was rooting for Kelly going into the final two because I was like, oh, good, we'll conquer evil here. And it's crazy to think in retrospect about Kelly being quote-unquote good, but because of that moment, she was dispelling the idea of an alliance and, you know, winning her way out and being this huge underdog for the past four rounds, it, it made you want to root for her going into that final tribal council. Yeah, and one thing I always say is that the game was tainted the minute the Toggy Four take over at the at the merge and they start doing the alliance thing. If the game is tainted, it doesn't matter who wins at that point, really. And everyone will say, well, what about Rudy? People liked Rudy. Like, I'm like, everyone hated the Toggy Four. People say, what about Rudy? I'm like, nobody considered Rudy to be part of the Toggy Four. He's just some old guy who's along for the ride. He had no say in those decisions for the most part. So there was a there's a fine line there. It's hard to really put this into modern terms. But yeah, Rudy would not have been considered part of the hated Toggy Four. He was just some guy who was there with them. And with that, I think we were now down to the final two, the big one. Wow. <laughs> Five hours later. All right. So we lead up to the final tribal council between Kelly and Richard, which, again, most of America would have been like, eh, like, who cares? And Colleen, gotta love Colleen, sums up exactly what almost everybody in the audience was thinking. She's like, you know what? It's been a long game. Let's just end it. <laughs> like, no one cares. She's like, is anybody like, oh, yeah, go Kelly. She's yeah, like, no, I'm... nobody cares. Is anybody like, oh, Richard, what a winner he is. No. She's like, let's just go home. We're tired. <laughs> I love that. that <laughs> that's one of my favorite Colleen moments of the whole time is when she does this mock, like, these uh, uh, unrealistic, like, uh, <laughs> opinions of people talking about them. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and that's why, again, modern-day Colleen would be so interesting, right? Because I feel like Survivor production is all about, like, building up big moments that 
you know, she would sort of be like the Sophie in that regard, where Jeff Probst would like throw throw a question at her, and she'd be like, "Yeah, it really is not that big of a deal. It's fine. <laughs> Let's go home." Yeah, but again, that's the what we have to get across to people. Colleen is speaking for the audience, as she always does. Everything she says is what like ninety percent of viewers are thinking. So just follow that, and, and you'll be able to put this in the what was that? And the jury as well. And the you jury, know, yeah. Uh, it, especially from the Pagong's perspective, like they sort of voted for Kelly because they were friends with her, but none of them were really particularly jazzed to see these two in the end. Yeah, the only, so we get the thoughts of all the jurors talking about how they're going to vote. And the one that stands out, the Colleen one is my favorite, but the one for historical purposes is Sue saying, you know what, I'm a hunter and I'm going in with both barrels tonight. Yeah, baby, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> so anyway, Sue's speech will be somewhat memorable. Okay, final tribal council. We are here. The very first finale in Survivor history. The first, uh, they did a live reveal later in the series, but this is the first for many, many, many years, the only live reveal where they pick the winner uh, on the island, not in live in front of an audience. Yeah, they never pick it on the island again. They've read the votes at a uh, final tribal council before, but that was obviously due to the tie in mm-hmm. season 36. The season after that is when they go live and then remember in Africa when they try to do like the live big live reveal uh to be like oh Ethan have grow a 40 day beard again and then get horrible jufro hair and then show up to win a million dollars so this is a this is a big moment cuz yeah they do the whole tribal council and then they reveal the votes right there right then but to start off you know it it actually echoes the first tribal council where before anything starts, Jeff, like, congratulates them all profusely for, you know, weathering the storm and getting through the experience. And then he really, you know, much like uh, a lot of stuff in this season, this is the first time we're encountering a final tribal council, which is completely new. So he has to, like, walk us through it. And he starts by saying, hey, you know, if we vote for the sweetest person, it's going to be Sonia. Uh, don't know her last name. If we vote for the most athletic, it'll be Jervis. If the most outdoorsy person, it'd be Greg. You know, we can find positive attributes for everyone as to why they're worthy. But these two certainly played the game the best, uh, which I think the Internet will not necessarily keep in their minds for years <laughs> to come. Yeah. If we're looking at who might get canceled on Twitter first, we might look at Rudy. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it's funny. I've seen this final tribal council so many times. I have almost no notes for it. I didn't write anything down. I was just watching it and admiring it the other day. What What are the highlights? I mean, obviously, Sue's speech will get to the end and Rudy saying, uh, I feel dumb about what I did. What were these other highlights? I kind of forget. What what really needs I, to be brought up here? I, going back to Colleen a little bit, I like how she kind of calls out Rich when... Uh, yeah. She's questioning him and about what characteristics it would take to win. I really wish we had Kim Johnson here to talk about love, flexibility, understanding. Um, but when he says something about observation, she's like, "Really, observation?" And he's like, "Yeah." And then she's like, "But you didn't do. You say observation, but you didn't do too good on the uh, the challenge the other day." And then he explains that the well, it's a different kind of observation. You know, it's not about getting to know people. And he whatever he explains, but I just like that she, you know, calls him out right away on that. I do th- I do think the Jenna question is super interesting, too, where she sort of pulls like a, a pseudo Heidi by saying, you know, if you could replace yourselves with two people at the end, who would it be? And Rich says Rudy. And then he also says Greg. And I don't know if this was purposeful on Rich's part to call back to the, you know, relationship he had with Greg. But I always thought that that was interesting that he decides to make a reference. And of course, Kelly references Sonia and Gretchen saying, you know, I really admire those women. Good pick. To see... Pick two people yeah. not on the jury. Good job. 
Yeah, exactly. Sonia will come back from the edge of extinction instead of the final two <laughs> alongside Gretchen. But of course, before the Sue stuff, we also have to talk about the uh, the Greg, the infamous pick a number question as well. Okay, okay. Well, yeah, Kelly does not do well at this whole thing. Or like her whole shtick is, you know, if I could do it all over, I wouldn't join the alliance. It was just wrong, and they but like don't want to hear that. Yeah. Here's what I wonder. I remember, I remember rewatching this. Sh- I mean, it's probably been when I was rewatching it over ten years ago. I remember rewatching it at one point and just having this realization or this thought that came to me that thought, okay. What happens if Kelly wins? Like, what if this sets the precedent for who our winner is? That it really, truly is the person who got to know people the best and the best relationships and the best person. Because they say flat out from the beginning, Kelly gives her a whole thing about, don't judge me how I played the game. Judge me how I got to know you. Judge me how I was as a person. Mm -hmm. And Rich right away says, I take a different approach to this. And I don't know if that necessarily would have stuck, but I've always thought about what impact that would have if that was the game that was rewarded and how that would have changed, you know, seasons to follow. Careful, Paul, you're edging right into my argument I made earlier. Okay. Sorry. I'll back off a little bit. Sorry. I know, but this is the argument here all the time that, Oh, if, if, if Kelly wins, then survivor history plays out entirely differently and is canceled by the third season. People say that all the time. But I would also argue that I think a good amount of people have won the game with a take on the Kelly argument. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the whole Natalie White versus Russell Hans thing was don't focus necessarily on all these big moves I made. Focus more so on the fact that I talk with you as a person instead of a piece as a chessboard. Think about the time that we spent together. And it's more so not necessarily think about how I played. Don't think about how I played the game and more so think about how I played the game in terms of the relationships that we made. So I do think that Kelly's point sort of gets warped along the years to for to essentially cement itself as what's known today as the quote-unquote social game yeah as rob sesternino would have said come on guys think of the good times not the bad times <laughs> but yeah but that you were right kelly is trying to play i knew you're trying to play the strategy i knew you guys i made relationships blah 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 and that's a good argument except with the asterisk they thought she was a huge piece of shit so it didn't matter because if you if you listen to their words through the season, their whole perception of Kelly is, oh, Kelly was the spy. She would come in and pretend to get information from us and relay it back to the Toggies and vote with the Toggies. So they're like, you're a spy. Screw you. Anything you got from us was not real anyway because you're a piece of shit. So right. that's the asterisk that needs to be put in there. Yeah, it's that attitude. And also that, you know, Rich sort of comes – Rich goes on the weird parabola through all the years in Survivor, you know, where – you know, now with all the things that's happened with Rich and all that sort of stuff, he's 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 in a place where I think Rich should be in. But um, the first couple seasons, I mean, I think that you have to talk about this, Mario, even though like people respected Rich and, you know, uh, that sort of stuff. Rich was more on the villain side of things than than hero side of things. And so people didn't necessarily like Rich. But at the same time, Rich, you know, Rich didn't know anything about anyone, but I think that he did it in probably like the friendliest you know, well, not friendly, but just in the most like neutral way possible. Right. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't that Richard was out there like insulting people or like running them through the mud, like, like a certain, you know, survivor Samoa and survivor all-stars and survivor redemption Island contestant is there, but it's just, you know, I, I I don't know your kids because I didn't ever ask, you know, it wasn't like, you know, you know, you know, like screw your kids. I hate them. They're stupid. They're probably ugly too. And they probably do bad in school. It's just more like, like, I, I just never asked. I, I, it, it's not important. What's important to me is getting a voting alliance and winning immunities and, you know, trying to get further into this game. And it's like Rich, you know, really just approached it with that sense. And so, 
you know, it, it, it makes him cold with the other players. But on the other hand, it's not like he's icy or like negative, like a negative polarization. It's just, oh, it's rich. He's just out there and he's just really tryharding. Well, the interesting thing about Rich as well, and we talked about this before, is that what helps Richard is, you know, going back to that question that that Colleen asked before that Paul said, you know, what are the three things you you, uh, sort of espouse in your game? Rich does sort of blanch at at, uh, observation, but he finishes by saying ethics. He says, I played as ethically as humanly possible. I played cleanly. And one thing he gets a lot of credit for, especially like looking at the the final voting confessionals, is the fact that, you know, Rich was somebody who say what you want to about, you know, the actual idea of alliances. But Richard was somebody who relatively stuck to his word and, you know, was open and honest with people, sometimes to a fault. And I think what didn't help Kelly is, yes, she was making relationships with people, but she was also seen as double dealing a bit because she would make decisions and go back on them. She would make friends with people and then vote them out. And so Rich, that facet that Jay is talking about also worked in Rich's favor a bit in that he was a WYSIWYG. You know, you knew what you were going to get when you talk with Richard Hatch. And it depends on would you feel more burned by Kelly, who made the effort to become your friend but then vote you out? Or would you rather vote for Richard, who you were never completely friendly with, but at least he never, you know, held out his hand only to take it away from you at the last second? Yeah. And that's the one thing that I always like getting across with Borneo, that Kelly was really the villain. Villains don't win jury votes. Kelly was really the villain because you have to look at it from the Pagong point of view. Kelly, yes, made friends with me. We were friends. Then she went and used that information she knew about me against me and told the Toggies, which to them is a really bad violation of trust. So again, villains don't win jury votes, and Richard was not really the villain here. He was an annoying blowhard, but as has been pointed out over the years, he had really the cleanest win of any Survivor winner ever because he never really screwed anybody. So that's that's the choice. Yeah, and I mean, Sean's going to say in his voting confessional, you know, uh, he says, I think the general statement in the jury box is that this contest has degenerated from a contest of who's the most deserving into a contest of who's the least objectionable. And that, again, I sort of make a comparison to the Micronesia final two, where that was also a very palpable attitude. And so it could also become a thing, psychologically speaking, less about like, why should I vote for someone? And more so, you know, why should I not vote for this other person? And I think maybe the negatives of Kelly outweigh the negatives of Richard for a lot of people, like Sean, for instance. Okay, let's get to the final two jury speeches here. Uh, We'll talk about Sue in a second. But the Sean one, just for the purpose of history, I have to point this out because this gets asked all the time, that Sean brings up, oh, I think the fat naked fag is a wonderful idea. That's why I'm going to vote for you. And people are like, Sean, what a horrible person to say that on TV. The truth behind that is Richard had been talking with Sean. Sean was one of the closest guys to him on the island. And Richard had all these plans he wanted to do when he won the million dollars. He wanted to open an outdoor camp for kids. He wanted to make the lives of all his friends better. Just wanted to make people's lives better. But one of the things that he had joked about is Richard said, I want a calendar of myself. I just think it would be hilarious if there's a fat, naked gay guy in a calendar, 12 pictures of me naked, and people can hang it up because I'm famous now. And Richard said, I will call it the fat, naked fag calendar. And so that's what Sean is referring to. This was one of Richard's trolling ideas of what he would do with his fame is make a horrible, grotesque calendar of himself. So that's what that's what Sean's quoting here. 
Yeah, but Darth Gadar was all him, right? That nickname <laughs> yes. from the reunion. Yeah, there was a lot of nicknames for Richard, but she and Sean were very close. They had a very playful relationship. So it, it, well, if you look at Sean being horrible, he's not. He's just quoting Richard's joke there. Okay, the Sue speech. Well, I guess we got to talk about Greg with the numbers. We'll end with Sue. Greg and the numbers. Oh, this is a fun one to talk about now. <laughs> How many times has this story changed over the years? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let me sum this up. So Greg, of course, hopefully you know this, but if you've never seen Borneo for some reason, Greg comes up there and says, oh, this is stupid. This is an arbitrary game. I hate the show, basically. Pick a number between one and ten. We'll make it random. And uh, Richard pitch, picks seven. Kelly picks three. Greg later reveals it's nine, and that's why Richard wins. And that ends up being the swing vote. That's really the one that wins it for Richard. And... Boy, the story behind this has changed over the years because at the time it was, well, Greg was going to vote for Richard anyway because Richard's smarter and better, whatever. I mean, why would you vote for Kelly? But no one believes what Greg says anyway, and there's no Mm -hmm. recorded proof of Greg saying that. People will always ask me, can you point to one interview where Greg said he was going to vote for Richard? And I'm like, you know what? I can't actually find one anymore. I don't know where this was. So now the story has changed that – that, uh, that it was all random, and, and some people have used that as evidence. Richard shouldn't have won because it was all random, or this show was a joke because it was all random, or Kelly could have won it. She'd picked the right number. Again, nobody knows for sure at this point. There's so many half-truths and lies and corrections and, and retconning. So I don't know what the truth of this is anymore other than at the time it was believed that Greg would have voted for Richard anyway. He was just trolling the producers. Yeah, that's what I personally subscribe to because I think it goes back to like Burnett's assessment of Greg was that he is someone who deep down did care, but he knew the moment that he showed that he would show his vulnerability. And so this seems like quintessential to that behavior, right? Of I'm going to vote for Richard. I had a bond with Richard in the showtime. We were on the island together and I respect him as just a very intelligent guy, but I can't be forthright and I can't be straightforward and serious because that's not who Greg Buis is on Survivor Borneo. And so he comes up with like a cockamamie mask for it well, the entire time he puts on the war paint i i personally subscribe to that and he has to have a big f you to the show i mean that's his whole thing he thinks the whole show is stupid and all the stupid rules they have and the tribal council and the rituals like of course he needs to, to give him the middle finger and say i'm not going to play by your rules i'll let them pick a number whether that's true or not i don't think it really matters that much because um you know the, the bigger story is just greg doing whatever greg wants to do yeah and again greg has given interviews in recent years where he says, oh, no, it was still completely random. So I don't really know what the story is. He says whatever. Again, I my brother is an Ivy League graduate, and so is Greg. Greg went to, what, Brown, I believe? Mm-hmm. I've met a lot of Ivy League kids. I've been out there at Dartmouth and Yale and Harvard. I know I know the mentality. I have a hard time believing a Ivy League scholar would vote for Kelly to win, who at the time was a homeless river rafting guide who lived in her car in Las Vegas over this corporate guy who had this huge strategy and was a blowhard, but he knew what he was talking about. He was fun to talk to. I cannot, again, just human nature in a million years, believe an Ivy League scholar would vote for Kelly over Richard. I cannot see that. How about Jay? How about you? I'm curious on your thoughts on this one. I mean, I think that Greg, you know, it's tough because we, we've said it a, a, a thousand times on this show. The only people that know what goes on out there are the people that experienced it themselves. But it is very hard to take everyone who was out there 
at face value because not only are they trying to save face, but they are only one part of the story and, you know, they don't know everything that's going on in all in all senses. And I think that it's doubly so for Greg because, as you said, he he is trying to subvert the production and producers of this show. And so I think that him just saying, yeah, it was totally random. Survivor was one on a coin flip, you know, or, or a number guess. And that's just how it is. And it's like it probably isn't how it is. But that's his story, and he's sticking to it. So the question is, that's what Greg says. Do you believe him? Mm -hmm. See, and this is where I start to doubt myself. Because if Greg wanted to say, fuck you to this show, this is the stupidest show ever, that I'm going to ruin it. Boy, if he voted for Kelly over Richard, that would have been hilarious. So I can almost see Greg wanting to do that, too. And now I start to outsmart myself. (laughs) I don't know. I, I don't know how far Greg would go to, like, destroy the show i think he was more so somebody like be like a prankster or make a lark of things more so than like i'm going to crumble this institution Mm -hmm. from the inside out yeah but yeah it's just one of these questions that has plagued this finale for years none of us none of the four of us could tell you the definitive answer there is no definitive answer that nobody knows i don't know if anybody knows but it's one that has haunted the end of the season since day one that a lot of people would point out so wait, the winner just wins by arbitrary number? Isn't that stupid? <laughs> so anyway, just just point, wanted to point out that's out there, that mindset. Now we get to Sue's speech, the big one, the finale, which I'm not going to quote it word for word, but it basically is summed up by Kelly saying, or Sue saying, Kelly, I hope you die. <laughs> or no, it's more so, Kelly, if you died, I wouldn't help you. It's the this same speech. same effect. <laughs> The speech is so iconic in so many ways. And like you said, probably any one of us, you could like feed us the beginning of the line and you could finish the rest of the, you know, the speech from that line because there's just so many iconic parts. I'll say on a personal note, this has forever changed the way my wife and I say we will never, ever say manipulative. We always say manipulative. No matter what, yes. forever. Like you gotta have a nipple. In there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I I have also brought in you sucked on at that game. Uh, I, as part of my lexicon, I just such a weird phrasing of it. Instead of it's a combination of like you sucked on that day and you sucked at that game became you sucked on that game. <laughs> well, she has this whole eloquent speech. It's so well thought out. It's got themes. It's got a start and end. It's so well written to the point that a lot of people at the time thought there's no way she wrote that. Someone else wrote that for her. But it's like. She can't resist. She gets midway through the chat that her speech and she remembers that Kelly lost to Jervis and she can't resist <laughs> taking a dig at her. You sucked on that game. And then right back to the speech. <laughs> but yeah, there is a rumor at the time or there was that there's no way Sue could have written that speech. It's too eloquent. It's got it's too thematic. It's, it ties in too perfectly with the season. And the rumor at the time was, well, Sean would have been the most educated one there. Sean must have written it for her. I which love I've never theories. believed that rumor. Like- what? Yeah. Like, no. Like, clearly this is her, too, because it won. Like, even in her audition video, which we see later on, you know, she... Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote a poem. She, she writes poems for things like that. And, like, it's so her because, like, yeah, like, she... It's structured enough to go through all these different, you know, types of things that you, you look for in, in, a, in a speech or a piece of writing or something like that. But, like, there's so many things that are so inherently Sue about it. Just, like, I love the line about... This island is pretty much full of only two things. Like, really? That's really the island is literally just made up of snakes and rats. Like, I, no people. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> no trees, no coconuts. Those two. It even starts so well, though, because even just saying I have no questions, I just have statements is essentially Sue saying the library is open. 
uh, and basically starts by saying, Rich, like, you're such an asshole. You're the biggest jackass I've ever met in my life. But damn it if you don't have good work ethic. So I guess I respect that. And then Kelly, the rafting persona queen. That's the thing. As much accusations of somebody trying to ghostwrite Sue's speech, nobody could craft the term rafting persona queen except for <laughs> Sue Hawk. I have to point out, just a couple of weeks ago, Sean Kenneth was on Facebook and someone was asking him about the finale. And they asked him about that speech. And he actually said, he's like, oh, yeah, I totally proofread it for her. So he went through and proofread it. But those are Sue's words start to finish. Yeah, and that's the other thing as well. Like, if someone had wrote it, they would definitively told Sue, like, you're going a little harsh here. She's like, no, I don't care. I want to talk about her getting eaten by buzzards. That's got to be the thesis point. Oh, my God, that speech, when that aired on TV. Like, I, I just watched this. I remember in 2000, we're in, what, July, August, I forget. August. I'm sitting, yeah, sitting there with my wife. We have a newborn baby at home, and we're watching this. And, boy, that speech is on TV. And if that is not the harshest thing I have ever seen on TV, one person say to another, it just sucked all the air out of the room. And I remember my wife and I just looking at each other like, wow, what is this show turned into? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's intense. It's, And I remember when I was watching, I was watching it with my sister and my mom and my aunt in the basement. And I was 10 years old. And it is very formative, uh, very impressionable on a young child to have two grown adults like to have one just dress someone down so particularly like you said it starts like with some barbs of like hey you're the rafting persona queen and you got beat by the city boy and then it accelerates to hey i hate you i hope i'm the one vote who loses you nine hundred thousand dollars and if i found you on the street i would let you die it just goes from zero to 100 so quickly and sue is also so Matter of fact, with the delivery, I'm sure Jay can speak to it as, you know, uh, from the acting side of it. Like, even though the words accelerate, she doesn't. She stays on one level the entire time, and that almost makes it bite harder. Because you know she means every ounce of it. That this is carefully plotted out, that this is not her shooting from the hip, being angry, and just speaking out of frustration. No, she made sure to plan each and every word out and say it with dripping maliciousness, because that's what she's feeling in the moment. Yeah, what it reads to me when I see it is sincerity and i mean that in the utmost respectful kind of way in the sense that she knew she was being filmed on tv like as we've said many times they're painfully aware that this is a television show but i think that a lot of jurors today try to do a grandiose jury speech and what they're doing is they're trying to capture some sort of limelight as to look at me i'm the jury with the cutting speech put me on another season the survivor sort of thing and it's a, it's a it's a big play is what it is now for sort of attention. And I think Sue knew that this was going to be attention grabbing, but the fact that she prepared this speech and that, you know, apparently Sean proofread it and all that sort of stuff, this is how Sue's feeling. Sue is so vindictive towards Kelly and she has to deliver it. And I think that that's the whole thing. Like you said, she may have deviated a little bit with a, yeah, you sucked at that challenge, but then she, nope, nope, back on track. I got to say this and I have to say this to you. And it's, it's delivered almost with the tone of someone uh, you know, and this is taking a serious turn in a way, but like someone like at someone's intervention, like, you know, it really hurt me when you did these things. And, you know, this is Survivor. It's not an intervention. It's not someone, you know, messing up their life in some sort of way. This is a game show. But Sue is so hurt by what Kelly did that she has to say these words and she has to say them like this and she can't stop and she can't break and she's got to get all the way through it or else, you know, all hell's going to break loose. Okay. And we got to talk about the historical response or reaction to this speech. This was a big deal. Again, it's, this is a bigger than survivor thing. You got to put this into context here is that at the time, late nineties, 
we were starting to turn into the era of trash TV where like Jerry Springer was on TV and reality shows were starting. And there was already this mindset. Is this a good thing in America? Do we want to see people behaving ugly on TV? This was very much a discussion among psychologists and TV critics. So there was already a mindset in the late 90s. Had TV gone too far? And that led up into the premise of the show. Oh, my God, they're going to kill people on an island. How, how dare they? This TV has gone too far. That was nothing compared to the reaction to rats and snakes at the end. And I should point out, probably the most controversial reality TV moment up to this point is about a year before this. They had had the real world Seattle. I don't know if you guys are real world watchers, but there was a moment where a girl named Irene who had a, a Lyme disease and this guy named Steven who was a closeted homosexual. He was not out yet. They got in a big fight and they were calling each other names. And she said, ha ha, you're a homosexual. No one's told you yet, Stephen. And so he responded by slapping her and then taking her favorite mm. stuffed animal and throwing it into the Puget Sound out in Seattle. That was a huge controversial reality TV moment that a lot of people thought was, oh my God, someone's getting slapped on TV. Someone's getting outed. Like TV's gone too far. Then Rats and Snakes happens, which is like that times a hundred. This is like psychology just we're talking about this for weeks how horrible this was yeah i mean this was there were a good amount of water cooler moments in survivor right eating of the rats uh gretchen getting voted out you know the rudy and rich stuff but this truly was something that transcended the show and it helped that it was watched by 50 plus million people mm -hmm. got to see this live and in the moment and i, I talked about before but it like immediately vilifies sue she becomes like you know richard was someone who was definitely not liked but sue becomes one of the most like hated people in the cast if not in the show's history because they feel like it's unfair that she dug into kelly like this uh you know her her pop any popularity she had immediately plummets and it's it's crazy to think about it. it's been referenced so many times hell it's referenced next season when mm -hmm. mad dog votes for kel says well i'll give you a drink of water it is and I remember, you know, growing up in the in the aughts and the 2010s, watching those like innumerable reality TV countdown shows that pop up on MTV and VH1. And without a doubt, if you went into what are the top moments of reality television, number one is always bar none going to be snakes and rats. Like it's almost reached that rarefied air of an untouchable reality TV moment that perfectly represents, you know, the fervor and fire that a person can have towards somebody else, that it it almost is untouchable in that regard. Nothing can come close to what that was, especially at the beginning of, you know, the reality TV phenomenon. As Jay says, you could say that a lot of big moments that have happened after that, no matter what the show, are trying to mimic what Rats and Snakes did from both, like, a, a an actual, uh, like, execution perspective and from a reception perspective. Yeah. But again, one thing that I always have to point out, this was not universally beloved at the time. Again, well, this was very much, was this too far for someone to go on TV? And that's the whole thing, is that it, this was the water cooler driving talk sort of afterwards. And as you said, I think this vilifies Sue, but I think that what makes this stick the landing, what makes this show stick the landing is, you know, Sue says this thing. And I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, the effect of, of Sue's speech, I mean, we don't know you know, totally the effect on everyone. But 
from what we know and from what we see in there, it you know, Jervis feels like, you know, Jervis is changing his vote to Kelly. Like he was like, maybe I was going to vote for Richard, but then Sue did that thing. And you, you can hear him when he's giving his vote. So like, if anything, maybe Sue's speech backfired against people voting for Richard, but it didn't mm-hmm. matter. I think the thing that sticks the landing is, is that Richard wins this game. Sue <laughs> says this horrible crud about Kelly and then Richard wins the game. So that even though Sue was terrible, you know, with this tone and all that sort of stuff and just absolutely eviscerates Kelly. She's right. The snake ate the rat. And like, (laughs) I think that that is, that is so perfect. Like if, if, if Kelly wins this game, you know, because this is all of Sue's speech, like they're going to have a hell of a time trying to edit around this (laughs) if Kelly's winning this. So I think it's, it's one of those fortuitous things where Sue does this and then also Richard wins. I have to point out the unintentional comedy here, because like you said, the, the, it looks like the, the vote or the speech gets Jervis to switch his vote to Kelly. And Colleen flat out says, I'm switching my vote to Kelly. So Sue's vote, it probably should have been six to one Richard because of Sue's speech. It's now four to three Richard. So Sue can go to sleep at night going, you know what? Mine was the one vote that won. So I was right. Like, no, it wasn't. It should have been six one. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about that, though, because. I don't know. I initially thought as well that, like, yeah, Jervis, you know, swapped his vote. But I don't know. When you look at his voting confessional, and it's interesting, I think they Jervis's voting confessional is almost as long as the Snakes and Rats speech. Like, they just let him go completely unedited, unfiltered, responding to it because they know that he'll be good. He does start saying, like, my vote is for Kelly because I feel Kelly played the game better than anybody else. She came into this thing. She formed her alliance. And then he then digs into Sue being a sore loser. So I personally think that Jervis still would have voted for Kelly because he respected the game. I feel like Colleen Mm -hmm. is really the big one because Colleen says, like, I was initially going to go in voting for the other person, but I really respected the way this person, you know, uh, responded to these questions. And she does mention, like, the will part of of her own question. But I also do wonder if Colleen, like, when Sue talks about the drink of water thing, it does cut to Colleen. And I could imagine that Colleen is somebody who's, like, wow, Kelly handled Sue really well in that moment, so I'm Mm going to give her a vote. And that should be stated as well. Kelly, despite getting herself disemboweled in front of what used to be her best friend on the island, in front of national television, she just, like, nods along. And, you know, she has a couple of comments. She does, like, a hmm, interesting in response to something. She, you know, gives, like, a a little bit, like, a wow at the end. But that's basically it. What could have turned into, like, a really dirty, ugly screaming match between the two. Kelly is very composed and just keeps her mouth shut and essentially lets Sue maybe dig uh, a grave that gets her one vote, maybe two. I got to point out, right before she goes up to vote, Colleen says, this is awful, really. <laughs> all right, before we get to the the reveal, Paul, I just got to know, I got to get the sixth grade perspective on all this stuff. What did you think when you saw Snakes and Rats for the first time? Um, I definitely remember it. I just remember it being brutal. And I think, um, as epic as it is and how, like, um, what a big, what a big part of the show's history it is. I think like it also encapsulates the, like, um, the, the feeling at the time of this is a show that lets you be mean to people. And I think, Mm. um, I've told the story going into fifth grade after this. Like, I remember how I always talked about how much I love the show and I was like trying to get everyone to watch and stuff. And I remember my fifth grade teacher, like just giving the class a speech saying like, um, like, you know, I don't watch that show. It's because it's all about being mean to each other. And so I think the fact that so many people watched that 
the, that finale, like you said, not even people who were regular Survivor fans. Like, I think that was a huge takeaway from it. Whereas, like, now if you saw that, like, it's not, I mean, like, that's part of, like, TV in general and reality TV in general is people are mean to each other. But this being such a social experiment of putting people together, I think that was a perception at the time. Yeah, it is pretty crazy. Like, I'm thinking to the Marquesas reunion where Rosie O'Donnell gives away, like, the Sue Hawk Memorial Award, right? It is crazy how Sue's speech normalizes this idea of a bitter juror that, like, well, once a season, somebody's going to be really angry. Because, again, a bunch of different people come in to play this show. It shouldn't be a normality that someone's going to come in and rail against one of the contestants. But because Sue did it and because it was such a big moment for the show— it almost conditioned contestants to be like, oh, okay, so we can like go all out in our speeches? Fine. All right. I don't mind doing that. <laughs> yes, and somewhere it is said, like in Greek mythology, Athena springing from Zeus's thigh when rats and snakes happened, Corinne Kaplan sprung alive out of nowhere. Yeah. She was born from this speech. Exactly. <laughs> all right. And with that, that's the end of Survivor Borneo. They all go up and vote, and Jervis does his amazing vote, his voting comments. I love that one. Hope you win, Kelly, and shove it and stick and stick it in Sue's face. And then Greg goes up and smells the pen, which is a great Greg moment as he gets high on the pen. And they vote, and we do the live reveal. And sure enough, as the first season of Survivor should have ended, it ends up being 4-3, right down to the last vote. And Richard's like, I need oxygen. I need oxygen. We get the last reveal, and it's Richard Hatch somehow, inexplicably, has won, as Jeff Probst says, the first Survivor competition. Yeah, and also uh, Jeff Probst, again, comparing to how jolly he is usually in, in reunion shows, him being so stoic and professional as he reveals that final Rich vote. I don't know if that's him showing uh, his disappointment in Rich winning on his face or him just being like consummate professional, but I always find it so funny that this is not really like a jolly occasion from Jeff's perspective. And I do have to point out, before I get everyone's reactions, final reactions, after the Richard wins, he puts his hands, you know, over his head and goes, looks down. He can't believe it. He's shocked. And all the jurors come over and they shake hands. And the last thing we see is Sue walking up to Kelly and tries to hug her. And Kelly's like, yeah, I'm good. No, thanks. Mm. (laughs) And that's it. Now we get the epilogue where we get Rich (laughs) back at the airport and he's like, I'm going to do good things with this money. I'm going to change people's lives. I hope this makes me a better person, which we all know is exactly what happened. Notice he never said I'm going to pay taxes on this money. (laughs) Yeah, that's what he meant. He had a lot of good things he was going to do with it. But before that, though, we get the really awkward moment where it's Rich sitting at tribal council by himself, staring at Greg's vote, like contemplatively, and just have voiceover like, wow, I can't believe I actually did it. (laughs) Like he's like Carrie Bradshaw. <laughs> There's no way Paul knows who that is, but yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so, uh, okay. So, I love the fact you mentioned earlier, I think it was you, Mike, that they filmed this ending, or maybe it was Paul, they four different ways. They mm-hmm. filmed this. Like, can you imagine Rudy's? Rudy's is the one that I always picture. They filmed Rudy holding the vote, contemplative from Richard that caught him the win. He's like, I'm going to go home. I'm going to do great things. <laughs> like, who knows what Rudy would have done with the money? Yeah, I just can't imagine Rudy sitting in a Pontiac Aztec. Like, those <laughs> those images are incongruous to me. I'm going to give all my money to Proposition 12, which takes away gay rights. Like, no, Rudy, no, we can't do that. Cut. But yeah, I, I love that there was four versions of this out there, but we only saw the Richard one. And I wish they had done cheesy stuff like this in later seasons. They never do this again, this after thing where <laughs> Richard clips his, his, his uh, Pontiac Aztec, which is just super 
he says. <laughs> and that's it. That's the end of the season. Then we go right to the reunion. And we're not going to talk too much about the reunion. But final thoughts on the reveal, of the ending. What do you think about this ending now or at the time? It's just funny. One of my, um, it's one of my mom's cousins, but she, um, she lives in town. We're in the same city where I live and see her quite frequently. And like every time we get on a survivor talk, she watches, she's I mean, super, super casual. And, but like anytime we talk survivor, almost no matter what, we'll get to the point where she goes, I wish they would do what they did on the first one where they had them all read the votes when they all hated each other and stuff. That was so much more fun. Don't you wish they would do that? And like 20 years later, she's still hung up on this. So I do wonder, like, is that a moment that's that that worth it now? Because, uh, you know, we have not even had that as an option for a long time. But it does make it a it, it's a weird moment that when it like when the votes read and you kind of hear about five people clapping, it's just kind of yeah. a it's weird. <laughs> Well, that's the thing as well, is that they're also, like, begrudgingly clapping. Again, as Sean said, nobody really wants to vote for either one of them. So not only is one person winning, but one person is winning that, like, nobody's too happy about because they didn't win. So it's a weird audience to have them celebrate so rapturously in front of him. So that's why the, the like, the celebration is so awkward, right? Where everyone's just sort of, like, milling around, <laughs> hugging like they're weird bumper car people. How about you, yeah. Jay? Uh, well, you know... Again, it goes back to the fact that we were along for the ride, right? And so Richard winning, you know, and especially this, we were rooting for Rudy, and then Rudy loses the final three challenge, and we're crestfallen. And then we get into the final two, and then Sue has absolutely, like, you know, killed a person on national television. And then Rich wins. And it's almost like an afterthought in all of this sort of ways. And, you know, Richard's legend in a lot of this is going to start growing sort of afterwards when people when the season's over and before season two starts and everyone's going to like write articles about, well, Richard, you took the professional approach to the game and he did blah, 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 blah. But like at the time, Richard was literally like the third person, maybe even the fourth person of the final four that you were thinking about at that point. Cause you were thinking, Oh, Rudy. And Oh my God, Sue just killed Kelly. And Oh my God, Kelly's dead. And then it's like, Oh, Oh, rich one. And so it was kind of like, I don't want to say it was a letdown cause it wasn't necessarily a letdown, but it was, it's sort of like, Oh, oh, Rich won. And and it sort of makes sense. And what I love about it is it's sort of put into perspective. Like, this is a real game show with real people. Like, you know, yes, we as we've said, producers are doing some manipulating or manipulating behind the scenes. But, you know, you wouldn't necessarily script Richard to win with all of the stuff that's yeah. happened. And yet he did. Yeah, it's 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 I think people forget that in those days it was sort of like a weird situation well it's like a millennials versus gen x where all the big characters end up going out right before the finals and so you're left like okay this person won but that wasn't the biggest story and it considering how much of a magnet richard hatch has become in the game of survivor it's, it's weird to think about in retrospect but i think from like an arc perspective despite richard not being a huge part of the finale sans his him letting go of the totem in the final three his overall arc, and we see it with, like, the little montage that plays in the reunion, is a great story as well, though, right? Like, this, and it's, you say, you know, it's a parabola of Richard outside of the game, Jay. There's one here as well, where he comes in, cocky as all get out, then promptly gets humbled, then finds power in the game between fishing and forming the alliances, and then sort of falls out of power again towards the game and becomes so cocky, but yet ends up winning, at the end. So it's almost like, you know, Richard, did you really learn anything? And I like the point that you made, Paul, about how it really was like the staticism and stoicness of Richard versus the dynamicness and ever-changing presence of Kelly 
And in this case, the jury respected the fact that Richard kept to who he was from the very beginning. And despite Kelly going through a transformation, it was way too buggy for other people. So it was like a cool thing that meant a lot for the game, but was not going to mean, okay, the big villain strategist is always going to end up winning here. Much like every other result that comes in Survivor, it's all dependent on circumstances. Yeah, and I feel like we're underselling Richard a little bit. We've not talked about him a lot on this podcast, and it's really because, and it's it's nothing against personally against him, but that's such a modern way of looking at Survivor seasons. Oh, who won? Like, who won Borneo was almost an afterthought. Like, it's really, oh, which things happened along the way? Why did they happen? What is the aftermath? Oh, and this person was less standing. Oh, cool. Like, it's not really, that's kind of been the way Borneo has been described over the years. Oh, Richard was the only one playing and everyone else was stupid. And that is not so not the way anybody would have looked at it at the time. So that's just one thing I want to get across that I I feel we're not really talking about Richard as much as we should. I respect the hell out of him. I, I was actually mm-hmm. a big Richard fan at the time. I love that he won. But it was not him on such a high level over the rest of the show like people tend to think of it now. That in, in no way was re- realistic at the time. Yeah, I mean, if we're, if we're you know, I wouldn't want to say piling on Richard. But, like, I really have to also appreciate this archetype of a guy who won as well you know certainly people again they might uh be misinformed as to what is a winning game but i think it certainly inspires certain people to say okay well richard was very heady about the game as opposed to kelly who had more of her heart in it and maybe that means that i can approach the game from that perspective but i mean it cannot be stated enough that you know a big gay guy with a very cocky personality like Richard ends up winning the show. And it fundamentally changes, I think, the way that people viewed LGBTQ people mm-hmm. for quite some time, because they hadn't seen that, really. I, shows like The Real World had shown it, but again, that was not nearly as high profile. And, and what Richard essentially showed was he fought like hell to get where he was before he went on to Survivor. You know, he fought uh, a mountain that was twice as tall as straight guys around him in similar situations. And he showed that he was able to do it. He was able to ingratiate, he was able to become the provider and an alpha male, despite, you know, gay guys sort of being stereotyped as being more beta males or more effeminate types. He proved that stereotype wrong. And still watching it back to this day, like, it's freaking awesome. Like I said about Sue, there's never going to be another Richard Hatch. And I'm glad that there isn't, because, you know, he is somebody who is of his own mold and he also showed America that people from the gay community are not of a specific mold either. They're people and they can have different personalities and different, you know, temperaments. Yeah, personally, yeah. I love Richard. He's one of my all time favorite survivors. I love his cockiness. I love his confessionals. I love his the way his mind works. He was so good with describing what was going to happen. And again, I, I feel bad we're not really giving him that much credit, but. It's it's weird to talk about Richard these days. Like there's stuff that happened after the season, which I don't really care to get into because honestly, it has no bearing on Borneo. Borneo to me is an art thing from art piece from episode one to 13. I think Richard is fantastic in there. But the one thing that has been changed and retconned and I think is very inaccurate over the years is you get people nowadays thinking, oh, the bad guy won the first season of Survivor. And that is just not the case. I know Russell, who I fucking hate, Russell Hans, is like, oh, you know, the game has changed. You used to be able to win when you were a villain, and now everyone's a pussy. I'm like, Richard didn't win because he was a villain. And that really bothers me that people 
talk about that. Again, he had such a clean win. He really did try to do it as ethically as possible. And I just think he was fascinating. He was so fascinating in the season. But at the same thing, at the same time, again, once again, it's wrong to say he was on such a higher plane than everybody else because it was really a 16-person season, not a one. And it never was. Right. And and the show is not set up as as later seasons. I mean, even as 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 soon as Survivor 2. Like, this season is, to me, not set up as someone is villainous or a villain or something like that. Because I think you're right in the sense that if you have to pick a villain for this for the season, it's probably Kelly for the long term, even though Kelly's our journey character and she's just our emotional character. It's just she's the villain in the sense that nobody necessarily liked her. But I guess Sue becomes the villain after the snakes and rats speech, but it's literally the, you know, 10 minutes before the show's done, (laughs) you know, so the show is, there's no necessarily, no necessary villain, except we do have people that we root for and which is Pagong and Rudy. And so Pagong's done going into the, the finale. So really Rudy is our hero in the finale. And so the other three are by default less heroic. And so that's the whole thing I, I think that you're talking about in the sense that Richard is on the villain side of the coin, mm-hmm. but you know, he's not that villainous. He just was he was, you know, putting his head down and, and trying like hell to to, you know, sort of outthink this game before a lot of people were. And I think that sort of just gets misconstrued into he's a villain. And it's like, nah, he just you know, he was just out there doing the thing and was just a little more calculated than everyone else. Um, but, you know, you have to admit, Mario, if Richard Hatch were on Heroes versus Villains, what team would he be on? Well, of course. Yeah. And that's because right. But the bigger argument is it's stupid that they arbitrarily make people heroes and villains now. Uh, yeah. Oh, well, well, but but it's also like the reason why he would be on there is like the way the reason why Courtney Yates and Sandra were on there yeah. is because like he the he was cocky and he would trash talk people. And that's the thing as well as I think, again, the misconception that brewed after Richard's win was, well, you have to be strategic and then, you know, vote people out and be cutthroat. And that's how you're going to win the game. When again, it really wasn't. And it was almost the opposite for Richard. Richard had a very clear plan that he stuck to. And he was not somebody who would, Richard would not, you know, randomly blindside somebody because he didn't want them in their plans anymore. Richard was extremely careful with the way he carried things out because he was also very much aware from the very beginning, the structure of the game. Right. And so it's really interesting to compare like, you know, the, the inimitable Richard and Russell comparison, because the other one took what they thought Richard did and just completely bastardized it and played it so messy to when the other one was so neater and so much more methodical with the way he was thinking about how to play each stage of the game. Well, and you, you could even compound it further in the sense that the next season's forever Australia is won by Tina, right? And Tina is in a cohort with Colby and they're the final two and they've got like Keith and some people around them. Right. But they're controlling the game and Tina's controlling the game. And you could also talk about how they're calculated. They're controlling things. They're talking to people. They're letting people know things, you know, but what we don't see is that Tina is actually like getting to know people. So Tina's like a better version of sort of what Richard does, you know, and, and, and that's okay. Right. That, that Tina is that way and all that sort of stuff. But Richard, you know, sets a map. And I think that, you know, people have don't didn't understand the map for the longest time, because I think you're right. People are like, well, you have to play like Richard and you just have to cut people's throats. And it's like, you don't necessarily have to. But, you know, you do need to be thinking about what you're doing. Well, you shouldn't be cutting people's throats viciously. That's how you lose. And Richard never does that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, but yeah, so anyway, this is the end of Borneo. Richard wins. It's kind of a big meh from the audience. Leads to hundreds of think pieces and interviews and psychologists talking about what this means. And there was all sorts of stuff. Like, I remember there was uh, some female psychologist on The Daily Show or The Early Show the next day saying, a woman could never win a survivor jury vote. It's just not possible. So, like, it, it led to all these things that were bigger pictures and what it said about society. And Richard became a star for a while, although never quite to the level i think that he wanted to get uh partly mistakes on his own partly i think backlash against survivor but again it was a big deal there was always uh the the, the debate did the Toggy four actually win because they won the game but they didn't win the hearts and the minds rudy and colleen ended up being big deals bigger than richard and sue so it gets into this whole ethical thing and then survivor two comes along and it's really Everyone knows you make alliances this time. You do what the Toggy Four did. So again, the second season plays the exact same way no matter who wins. It makes no difference other than everyone knows you just can't be dicks like the Toggies this time because America will hate you. And that explains almost everything in Australia, people just trying not to be dicks on TV. Well, to your, And to your point about Richard also, post-Survivor, I think unfortunately uh, what did not help him is again, much like Sue was only remembered for a couple of things, Richard became remembered as the fat, naked gay guy. Mm -hmm. And so I remember that Richard did make a number of appearances on television, sometimes as himself, sometimes as someone very similar to himself, but it was almost always the same joke that I'm assuming they wanted to trot him out to do, which was like, I'm going to get naked, right. I'm going to eat bugs. And so there mm -hmm. really wasn't an opportunity for him to like actually stretch his wings and do something you know, that I'm sure he actually wanted to do. I don't know if it was finale night. I want to say it was finale night, but I'm not sure. Uh, Letterman that night on CBS, the uh, the Survivor cast around the finale, and I, I want to say it was that night, but I don't know. The Survivor uh, cast was on Letterman, and they did the top 10 list, right? And, you know, it was like top 10 ways. It was the top 10 know. things I learned on the Survivor Island. Yeah, you know, and, and people are saying the, the, the top 10 list, and obviously Richard gets number one, and it's a, it's a naked joke, and he's out there naked. You know what I mean? He's he's shaved at this point his beard. So it's kind of like the clean shaven Richard, but he's still naked and they're blurring him out. And it's like, that's the joke. Right. And they use Richard. I remember Richard was on the sitcom Becker once. Like yeah, he, he was. was he was a patient in Becker's office and they would he was just basically talking about how he survived an island and ate bugs. And, you know, they were again, it was a CBS show. They're using Survivor as like, hey, let's boost ratings on this other show. But it's well, it was. You know, also during this time, then they had um. There was many of the the castaways made rotations on live with Regis and Kathy Lee. I guess maybe Kelly. I, I can't remember what the time frame is. I, on think, this, I think it was. I think it was still no. Maybe it was. It was one of the. Oh, I think it was maybe when Kathy Lee left, and there was a long time where they kept rotating people in and out. And yeah, because I'm well, I'm pretty sure Sue filled in for Kathy Lee. Yeah, and funny. Colleen definitely was on the show, and I think maybe some of the other ones too. So they really were these 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 survivors were everywhere. But you're right in, in the sense that, you know, Colleen goes on and does the animal and Rudy does some things. And it's like Richard's just the guy, the naked guy that won Survivor. And it just it just never blossomed from that. Yeah, I'm, I want to follow up on that there. I mentioned it earlier. There's a book out there called The Stingray by Peter Lance, which was a book. Richard had hired this guy to write a biography on him. He knew he won Survivor. He hired this guy. Write my story. I'm going to be a big deal. And it eventually turned into a whole thing where it was about Stacy and the allegations on the rigging of the show and how Richard was just kind of a scoundrel. But Peter Lance made this really interesting point in the book. And I don't know, or I'm sure Richard himself would hate that I'm making this. But Peter Lance's argument was Richard had 
every opportunity in his hand after Survivor. He could have done anything, yet he always took the paycheck for the stupid hacky thing that made him be gay and or, uh, be naked on TV. And they're like, every single thing that Richard did after Survivor was the wrong move. He like made let people make a joke out of him. He was always the naked gay guy, and it really undercut any sense he had of an authority, of an expert, of a psychologist, a behavioral expert. And so that's the point of the book. Like Richard caused his own downfall. He just had no idea how to handle his celebrity. He was always the stupid naked guy on TV. And that, of course, leads up to All-Stars. I hear this question all the time. Why was Richard allowed to be naked in the challenges in All-Stars? The producer should have stopped that. That's what Richard did. That was his shtick. Like Richard did exactly what the producers wanted him to do, what everybody in America expected him to do. He's the naked guy in the challenge, and it did not end well for many reasons, but that's what Richard did. So it's kind of a tragedy if you look at the bigger picture, how Richard handled his celebrity and what it really – how he, he, he made lemons out of lemonade, basically. He went backwards. He could have done so much more, I think. As opposed to Kelly, who then subsequently like just goes completely off the grid for some time after yeah. this whole show. <laughs> And that's it. I believe with that, we have officially covered Survivor Borneo to the extent that it finally needed to be covered. Hey. <laughs> so, is there anything else we want to say about Kelly? I feel like we sort of actually touched upon her, ironically, near the end of the last podcast where we said, you know, Kelly's an important character, but not necessarily a really interesting one. She's going to come back for season 31 and actually be like pretty unmemorable. I think it's partially because her sort of attitude towards the game does not jut well with the whole voting blocks intense uh you know strategic mentality of survivor second chances but yeah she you know I, I think she had a really interesting run it's clear she learned some things about herself but i think her subsequent life between survivor seasons shows that like she was totally fine fading back into reality she was not there to pursue you know the spotlight anymore especially after her season ends with her getting eviscerated on live television yeah, I personally have nothing to say about Kelly. I just don't find her especially interesting. She is so flat as a TV character. I've always had a hard time saying even what really she represents. Like, maybe you guys have more to say. I have nothing really more to say about her other than she was a contestant on Survivor Borneo. I think she, it's like with Kelly, it's more about, I think it's she serves as a representation for um, a certain philosophy going into the game. Um, I don't want to say like a, being naive, but like being... Like, like she represents like that the moral conflict, and I think I mean that's a whole other podcast about what you know what modern Survivor lacks. But I think like a huge part of Survivor is lost whenever it gets to the point where like this this type of philosophy is is no longer a part of the game or or dealt with. I think that's when Survivor when it, is at its best when there is this question of morality and and where the lines are. And um, I think that's what she represents. So her as a character is like you could interchange her with anyone. Like there's nothing special or unique about about Kelly at all. Yeah, it's an interesting point that she serves a good she served a, an essential role in the story, right? Which was certain people wanted to be in an alliance, certain people refused to be in an alliance, and she's one of the people that was like joined it and then had a lot of regrets about it. She compares herself to Luke Skywalker, and that was a very unique position and a very important position when it came to debating the merits of the alliance. Uh, so I think she was essential 
to the season, much like we've said about nearly everybody in this season. I think when you look at her specifically of the final four, maybe arguably even of the final five or final six or hell, even final seven, her personality is probably not the one as sparkly as anybody from there. But I do really commend Kelly for, you know, what she was able to do. I could give her major kudos for like just sitting there and swallowing when Sue was tearing into her that entire time. And she did get three votes to win, which is, is pretty respectable. She, she did do some good stuff out there, including crushing those challenges. Anything to add, Jay, before we sign off here? I oh, mean, Kelly? Clay Jordan got three votes. <laughs> but Clay Jordan, much like Kelly, knew, you know, Penny's family. That's true. You know, he... <laughs> it's, it's the same. It's the same pluck. I think I've, I've covered, I think I've said enough on Kelly. I mean, I'm not going to besmirch anyone that was in season one of Survivor because I think they were all so important. And I, and I thank them for you know, the journey that they went on. Right. But I, I think that we've talked about Kelly's character enough. Okay. With that being said, we have covered Borneo again, the most important survivor season bar none. I really hope we've given people a new appreciation for it. We didn't really get into the reunion show, which is a whole podcast in itself. Other than I hear all the time, new survivor fans, like who's that guy that hosted? Why didn't they have Jeff probes? Which is always a funny question to me. That, of course, is Bryant Gumbel, who was one of the biggest journalists in America at the time, world-renowned yeah. prick and journalist. Everyone hated him, but he was very big name, and that's how big Survivor was at the time, that we get to the end of the show, they're like, this is a news event. This is a legitimate world event, the Survivor finale. We need someone big to cover it. They bring Bryant Gumbel over from the early show. He does a good job. I really like the Bryant Gumbel reunions. They're they're not flashy, and he's not a mouthpiece for the show, so he'll call people out on stuff and bring up interesting things. Like, I really like those, but eventually he moves well, on. Once, he, once he remembers whose name is whose. I know. He, he was kind of checked out by the third one, but I really like the professionalism he brings to the reunion, and that's, that's all I have to say about that one. Well, and I think this reunion was also a lot more conversational. I think they, they, made, they sort of just handed the microphone over to the players. Maybe it's because, again, Brian Kimball was not paying the most attention to the show at the time, but like, there was just a lot more back and forth, which was a lot of fun. It just reminded you, like, how good this cast is. Even BB seemed to be in good spirits. But, like, I loved the summary at the end of what people were doing. Like, Sean was going to be in Guiding Light. You know, Ramona and BB have been in ad campaigns. Ramona's running for EW. Like, there was so much going on for even the first couple of boots. And then, of course, we get the Reebok guys just randomly there in the <laughs> middle of the audience. Okay, yeah, I gotta Brian, drop a little. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, Brian Gumble was a big deal, and I and I and I I don't want to go into all of Brian Gumble's stuff, but like Brian Gumble hosted the primetime Olympics one time. I think it was like the Seoul Olympics, like '88 or something like that. And you know, some of these renowned sort of uh, you know bobblehead hosts that we have for things like like Bob Costas and whatnot. Like Bob Costas is kind of like, oh, he's the guy that hosts the Olympics, and it's like Brian Gumble was also that guy, kind of. Yeah. Like, big deal. Yeah, when you get Jeff Probst hosting the reunion in season five, that is not an upgrade. That yeah. is, oh, this isn't really a big news story anymore. Might as well get this host guy to talk about it. Right. That's now, the survivor's now in-house. Yeah. Okay. The one th trivia thing I wanted to, how I said that Richard Hatch made a lot of bad decisions after the show. There's one in particular that revolves the reunion show here where uh, it's kind of well-known lore at this point. The, the, when the, the players were cast for the first season, they were said, okay, you're going to do 13 episodes, blah, blah, blah. Then Survivor turned into a hit. And then the producer said, okay, well, we want you to come back for a reunion show at the end. But they were not planning to pay the players for the reunion show. 
And so Stacy, as the attorney, all this is documented in the book by the Stingray. Stacy said, they can't make you appear on the reunion show. This show is making you know money hand over fist. They should be paying us a bucket load of money to appear on one more episode. We're all stars now. So Stacy tried to unionize the players behind the scenes, and it would have worked except for Richard Hatch, as the story goes, sold her out. He went to the producers of CBS, said, you know, Stacy's trying to unionize. She's trying to turn them against you. I'm a good team player. I will work with the network because I want to be a star. And so the network made all the players sign these contracts right before the reunion saying, you'll get $10,000 or you'll get nothing and you'll like it. And so all the players were furious with Richard for selling them out. But that, again, is just one of the instances of Richard making these decisions after the show that did not bode well for him because he was seen as kind of a snake even outside the game and with that i think we're done we covered it yeah the only other thing is i'll get i'll get i'll point out the random reebok guys and don lee and jake safford and it seems super out of place but i don't know if you guys remember but there was a reebok campaign at the time where it was like the two of them in a survivor-like setting uh where they were like you know half naked and covered in in charcoal like sitting around the fire and i believe bb comes in and, like, crashes the party. I remember that campaign specifically, so they sort of got, like, invited aboard. And, of course, if you look at the buffs from Season 1 before they redid them, they were Reebok-sponsored. So Reebok, much like the U.S. Army and Target, was very well entrenched in Survivor. Yep, and Sitting Duck. Remember the corporation Sitting Duck that Colleen oh, yes. <laughs> And with that, we are going to jump many years ahead now on Historians, and we are going to Survivor Nicaragua soon, because that's where we left off chronologically. I know it makes no sense, but we've done all the seasons now, 1 through 20. We're going to go up to 21, and uh, really, I think for, I can speak for the four of us. I just really hope you guys enjoyed our coverage of Borneo, because this is a season that really means something to all of us, I would say. Are you, are you, are, are you saying that that Fabio season doesn't mean as much to you. <laughs> How dare you, Jay Fisher? <laughs> you know, we're going to be able to talk about another Montanan very soon. Um, yeah, and for one episode. Oh, Wendy, that's right. Uh, yeah, we're, I'm sure we're going to have plenty of insight there. This is a weird jump, but I mean, Borneo was a weird season, and Nicaragua was a weird season as well. I guess sort of flashing forward to the end of Heroes versus Villains. There was a lot of talk as to, like, how is Survivor going to keep going after that? You know, this is a big season. What's going to happen next? Obviously, it's going to keep going. I think production was a bit, uh, a little stalled as well. Of Like, okay, what do we do now? And so this is when we start to get back into the experimental stuff, much like the post-All-Stars phase. And so here, you know, we're going to uh, dividing castaways by age again for the first time in, like, nine seasons or something. And it's an interesting season. I remember, actually, Nicaragua was one of the seasons I think I talked about with you guys uh, in my Historian's Audition. I think, actually, the first... I forget, maybe one of the, the maybe the second conversation I had with you guys in the callbacks was about Nicaragua, how I feel like it's an underrated season. Do I think it's incredible? Absolutely not. Do I think there are interesting things that get glossed over in the overall negativity of the season that should be addressed? Yes, and I'm excited to address those. Okay, we're, we'll save that. We don't want to get too far into Nicaragua because we got to save something for that. But I will, before we get into this, it's a very polarizing season. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Are you a fan of Nicaragua, yes or no? Go around the room here. No. That's why I'm excited to talk about it on me personally because if I think about a lot of seasons, it's usually, if I come up with like what's like when, one of your least favorite seasons, I usually will say Nicaragua. So I'll be, that's sometimes the best part of the historians is like finding um, fun things about a season that's 
maybe not the most popular. So that's what I'm excited for. All right, Jay. Uh, a slight yes, but I don't want to because I, I agree with Mike in the sense that I think that Nicaragua was a little underrated, but it's also joyless in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, it's tough. It's tough to like. It's one of those like uh, it's a face only a mother could love. It's it's really like. <laughs> Uh, uh, but there's some there's some decent moments in there to be mined as opposed to other later seasons where I feel like there's not a lot of things to be mined from it. <laughs> Mike? Yeah, I'm with Jay. Slight thumbs up. I mean, it's going to be weird. This is going to indicate what a lot of people call the first Dark Ages of Survivor, which is seasons 21 to 24, and some might include 26 in there as well. And yeah, it, it's going to be it's going to be weird to sort of signal the shift and to, to Jay's point, when you sort of mount the uh, the joy in this season on on Nayanka, who in of herself <laughs> is not very joyful, or you get joy from the fact that she does bad things, it's a weird season. Yeah, uh, Nicaragua is what I call a snack season, where there's lots of fun little moments, but they add up to nothing. It's not a meal. It doesn't really work as a season, but I would give it a thumbs up still because it's fun, and I've had a lot of fun with it on the Funny 115. It's a fun one to write about. But if you guys were tired of me talking about Coach, you're going to really hate when I start raving about Nayanka. <laughs> I like Nayanka, Nayanka, actually. I know. Most people <laughs> I, I, hate her. I find her funny. Well, and, and I know that, Mario, you're going to have a lot to say, obviously, about the Purple Kelly of it all. Uh, and yeah, there, I mean, listen, it's a season with Dan Lembo. Like, we're going to have a lot of random Dan Lembo and Ben Reese stuff to talk about, I'm sure. Yeah, there's fun moments. That's all and, I care and, about. Yeah, and fun moments and, like, just the random Jimmy T stuff. Like, it's just it's just weird. Like, you just, you look J- back. Jimmy Johnson is on this season. Yeah, Jimmy Johnson. Yeah, Jimmy T, who's, uh, like, jealous of Jimmy Johnson. And it's like, yeah, you can be jealous of Jimmy Johnson. Dude's, like, uh, in the Football Hall of Fame. It's cool, dude. <laughs> well, just so you guys are ready, just so you know, Ben Ree is almost here. Oh, Lord. (laughs) Okay. We'll sign off. This is a six-hour podcast, whatever as it is. So, again, once again, we thank you for listening to the Survivor Historians. We do our best to get these episodes out as quickly as possible. We will try to be somewhat faster in Nicaragua just because it is a global pandemic and there's not much you can do right now. So we will do our best. As always, I'm Mario Lanza. I'm Jay Fisher. I'm Mike Bloom. Somebody wake Paul up. (laughs) <laughs> Oops, sorry. <laughs> Let's try that again. Are you uh, driving through Chicago again? Yeah, sorry. Here, let me uh, merge to the left here. And I'm Paul Oslison. Thank you for listening. And until next time, please do not taunt any snakes. Talk to you guys later. Goodbye. This is a really difficult vote because, I mean, does anybody really think, you know, go Kelly. She's number one. I'm so happy she made it to the final two. Or, God. I'm glad Rich made it there. Big winner. No. Well, I think we just want to end it, you know? Let's go. Manipulative.